folks. It is the day. You're back with Chase and Josh of Factor Fantasy, and we are hitting the absolute climax of the series and of the novel itself. Today, we're tackling part eight, where we will be doing chapters 29 through chapter 33, which is going to really involve, uh, I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves, but man, Almost everything that comes around, we're going to have some uh, full circles back from Sorcerer's Stone. We're going to have huge action that you know is non-stop in one of the chapters. We're going to have teachers versus teachers. We're going to have students in places. We're going to have horcruxes. We're going to have it all here today. You know, we have finally reached the peak of the mountaintop. Yes, there's still next week's episode where we'll tackle chapter 34 through the epilogue, but the majority of the wow factor is going to be right here today with Chase and I. That's Chase, I'm Josh, and we are going to go ahead and kind of get us diving right into it pretty soon. Uh, there's nothing new for me on my visual aspect. Same exact stuff. I've got my Harry Potter unofficial book of spells. I've got Harry Potter and Deathly Hallows, the novel. I've got Harry Potter, the Funko Pop, down to the last one here like we always talked about. But we have gone, went ahead and shifted to Harry Potter and Deathly Hallows Part 2, the film. Uh, you know, because in two weeks we're going to be doing the differences between, you know, from chapter 25 onwards through, uh, you know, versus what we see in part two of the film. So with that being said, I won't take up too much of our time before we dive right into it. I'll let Chase kind of say uh, his piece on what he's got, and then we're going to jump right into chapter 29 through 33. Buckle up, get ready, it's about to get real. <laughs> One shot, everything rides on, man. This is it. This is the one everyone will remember on our season one of Factor Fantasy. Uh, from this day to our last day, as we always say, you are the shields that guard the realms of fantasy. And just like today, they're going to need to be putting some shields around that damn castle. Because um, <laughs> we are at the climax, just like you said. Uh, on my visuals here, you'll see a little bit different. There's no dragon anymore. The dragon is gone. So you have... Hermione, Harry, and Ron back to the way they were, you know, the golden trio uh, really working together today. Um, and then at the bottom, you'll see I just added uh, McGonagall's back after a while. So we haven't seen McGonagall for a while and also uh, good old Hagrid. I have him at the bottom there. But, you know, after today, um, I, don't, I, I know your board's been dwindling for a while, but mine's going to look a lot different too, man. <laughs> it's going to look a lot different after today. And uh, uh, I, I think this is the moment everyone's waited for. This is when we get the biggest, I would say probably the biggest uh, action-packed full circle moments out of the entire series is today. You waited a year and a half for it. So let's go ahead and do it, man. And I'm going to let Jay Nelly kick us off today, guys. Absolutely. And as you can see, I mean, if you guys have gotten used to watching us on YouTube, uh, I always wear a hat during the recordings like nine times out of ten. Well, today, the action is going to knock my hat right off, so I didn't even put it on. I'm ready to jump <laughs> right into this bad boy. Before we do, you know we always kind of give a quick recap. So last week, we went ahead and talked a little bit about some plans to break into Gringotts into a vault. We had Grip Hook, we had Hermione taking Bellatrix Lestrange's appearance through the Polygis Potion, Ron was in a disguise, they went in there, they uh, met up with the unexpected Death Eater and Travers, it started to kind of go bad right from the jump, uh, Harry had to use the Imperious Curse on uh, Bogrod the 
Goblin, and on top of that, he had to use it on Traverse too. So Harry's using Unforgivable Curses. We get down into the vault. We see that dragon that Chase was telling you about. He took off his page because uh, off his uh, table there because we ended up getting into that vault, finding what we were looking for. Uh, Helga Hufflepuff's cup took that from the vault. Uh, they escaped on the dragon. They dropped off the dragon. Harry has this crazy vision. Voldemort finally knows they are after the Horcruxes. Uh, he killed almost everybody in that room in that vision. And while doing so, in his panic, Voldemort revealed the location of the final Horcrux to be at Hogwarts. Our guys, Harry, Ron, and our girl Hermione, they apparate to Hogsmeade, almost get caught by a dozen Death Eaters. Then who comes and saves the day? Albus Dumbledore's brother, Aberforth, opens the door, shows him the Goat Patronus, gets the Death Eaters off their back, and then we hear the whole story about Ariana Dumbledore and what actually happened that night. And that portrait of Ariana Dumbledore went uh, into Hogwarts, brought back someone we haven't seen in a very long time, Neville Longbottom. Happy Harry's back. They've got a tunnel into Hogwarts, and that's what we're picking up today. So, with that being said, let's get our malice in the chalice. Let's get this episode on the road, on the Hogwarts Express. We're going off the rails on this crazy train. I'm excited. We're going to knock this one out of the park, brother. Let's do it. Let's do it. Malice in the chalice, brother. Cheers. All right. So, I will go ahead and start us off on Chapter 29, The Lost Diadem. Neville... What the? How? But Neville had spotted Ron and Hermione, and with yells of delight, was hugging them too. The longer Harry looked at Neville, the worse he appeared. One of his eyes was swollen yellow and purple, there were gouge marks on his face, and his general air of unkeptness suggested that he had been living rough. Nevertheless, his battered visage shone with happiness as he let go of Hermione, and said again, I knew you'd come. Kept telling Seamus it was a matter of time. Neville, what's happened to you? What, this? Neville dismissed his injuries with a shake of his head. This is nothing. Seamus is worse. You'll see. Shall we get going then? Oh, he turned to Aberforth. Ab, uh, there might be a couple more people on the way. Couple more, repeated Aberforth ominously. What do you mean a couple more, Longbottom? There's a curfew and a car-walling charm on the whole village. I know, that's why they'll be operating directly into the bar, said Neville. Just send them down the passage when they get here, will you? Thanks a lot. Neville held out his hand to Hermione and helped her climb up onto the mantelpiece and into the tunnel. Ron followed, then Neville. Harry addressed Aberforth. I don't know how to thank you. You saved our lives twice. Look after him, then, said Aberforth gruffly. I might not be able to save him a third time. And Harry clambered up onto the mantelpiece and through the hole behind Ariana's portrait. There were smooth stone steps on the other side. It looked as though the passageway had been there for years. Brass lamps hung from the walls, and the earthy floor was worn and smooth. As they walked, their shadows rippled, fan-like, across the wall. How long's this been here? Ron asked as they set off. It isn't on the Marauder's map, is it, Harry? I thought there were only seven passages in and out of the school. They sealed off all of those before the start of the year, said Neville. There's no chance of getting through any of them now. Not with curses over the entrances and Death Eaters and Dementors waiting at the exits. He started walking backward, beaming, drinking them in. Never mind that stuff. Is it true? Did you break into Green Gods? Did you escape on a dragon? It's everywhere. Everyone's talking about it. Terry Boot got beaten up by Caro for yelling about it in the Great Hall at dinner. Yeah, it's true, said Harry, and Neville laughed gleefully. What did you do with the dragon? Release it into the wild, said Ron. Hermione was all for keeping it as a pet. Don't exaggerate, Ron. But what have you been doing? People have been saying you've been on the run, Harry, but I don't think so. 
I think you've been up to something. You're right, said Harry. But tell us about Hogwarts, Neville. We haven't heard anything. It's been... Well, it's not really like Hogwarts anymore, said Neville, the smile fading from his face as he spoke. Do you know about the Karos? Those two Death Eaters who teach here? But they do more than teach, said Neville. They're in charge of all discipline. They like punishment, the Karos. Like Umbridge? Nah, they make her look tame. The other teacher are all supposed to refer us to the Karos if we do anything wrong. They don't, though, if they can avoid it. You can tell they all hate them as much as we do. Amicus the bloke, he teaches what used to be defense against the dark arts, except now it's just the dark arts. We're supposed to practice the Cruciatus curse on people who've earned detentions. What? Harry, Ron, and Hermione's united voices echoed up and down the passage. Yeah, said Neville, that's how I got this one. He pointed at a particularly deep gash in his cheek. I refuse to do it. Some people are into it, though. Crab and Goyle love it. First time they've ever been topping anything, I expect. And Electo, Amicus's sister, teaches muggle studies, which is compulsory for everyone. We've all got to listen to her explain how muggles are like animals, stupid and dirty, and how they drove wizards into hiding by being vicious towards them, and how the natural order is being reestablished. I got this one, he indicated, to another slash on his face, for asking her how much muggle blood she and her brother have got. Blimey, Neville, said Ron, there's a time and place for getting a smart mouth. You didn't hear her, said Neville. You wouldn't have stood it either. The thing is, it helps when people stand up to them. It gives everyone hope. I used to notice that when you did it, Harry. But they'd use you as a knife sharpener, said Ron, wincing slightly as they passed the lamp and Neville's injuries were thrown into even greater relief. Neville shrugged. Doesn't matter. They don't want to spill too much pure blood, so they'll torture us a bit if we're mouthy, but they won't actually kill us. Harry did not know what was worse, the things that Neville was saying or the matter-of-fact tone in which he had said them. The only people in real danger are the ones whose friends and relatives on the outside are giving trouble. They get taken hostage. Old Zeno Lovegood was getting a too outspoken in the quibbler, and so they dragged Luna off on the train on the way back for Christmas. Neville, she's right, we've seen her. Yeah, yeah, I know. She managed to get a message to me. And from his pocket, he pulled a golden coin, and Harry recognized it as one of the fake galleons that Dumbledore's army had used to send one another messages. These have been great, said Neville, beaming at Hermione. The Karos never rumbled how we were communicating. It drove them mad. We used to sneak out at night and put graffiti on the walls. Dumbledore's army, still recruiting, stuff like that. Snape hated it. You used to? said Harry, who had noticed the past tense. Well, it got more difficult as time went on, said Neville. We lost Luna at Christmas, and Ginny never came back after Easter, and the three of us were sort of the leaders. The Karos seemed to know I was behind a lot of it, so they started coming down on me hard. Then Michael Corner went and got caught releasing a first year they chained up, and they tortured him pretty badly. That scared people off. No kidding, muttered Ron, as the passage began to slope upward. Yeah, well, I couldn't ask people to go through what Michael did, so we dropped those kind of stunts. But we were still fighting, doing underground stuff right up until a couple weeks ago. That's when they decided there was only one way to stop me, I suppose. And they went after Gran. They what? said Harry, Ron, and Hermione together. Yeah, said Neville, panting a little now because the passage was climbing so steeply. Well, you can see their thinking. It had worked really well kidnapping his kids to force their relatives to behave. I suppose it was only a matter of time before they did it the other way around. Thing was, he faced them, and Harry was astonished to see that he was grinning. They bit off a bit more than they could chew with Gran. Little old witch living alone, they probably thought they didn't need to send anyone particularly powerful. Anyways, Neville laughed, Dolish is still in St. Mungo's, and Gran's on the run. She sent me a letter. He clapped a hand to his breast pocket of his robes. 
telling me she was proud of me, that I'm my parents' son, and to keep it up. Cool, said Ron. Yeah, said Neville happily. Only thing was, once they realized they had no hold over me, they decided Hogwarts could do without me after all. I don't know whether they were planning to kill me or send me to Azkaban, but either way, I knew it was time to disappear. But, said Ron, looking thoroughly confused, aren't, aren't we heading straight back into Hogwarts? Of course, said Neville. You'll see. We're here. They turned a corner, and there ahead of them was the end of the passage. Another short flight of steps led to a door just like the one hidden behind Ariana's portrait. Neville pushed it open and climbed through. As Harry followed, he heard Neville call out to unseen people. Look who it is! Didn't I tell you? And as Harry emerged into the room beyond the passage, there were several screams and yells. Harry! It's Potter! It's Potter! Ron! Hermione! He had a confused impression of colored hangings, of lamps, of many faces. The next moment, he, Ron, and Hermione were engulfed, hugged, pounded on the back, their hair ruffled, their hands shaken by what seemed to be more than 20 people. They might have just won a Quidditch final. Okay, okay, calm down, Neville called, and as the crowd backed away, Harry was able to take in their surroundings. He did not recognize the room at all. It was enormous and looked rather like the interior of a particularly sumptuous tree house or perhaps a gigantic ship's cabin. Multicolored hammocks were strung from the ceiling and from a balcony that ran around the dark wood paneled and windowless walls, which were covered in bright tapestry hangings. Harry saw the gold Gryffindor lion emblazoned on scarlet, the black badger of Hufflepuff set against yellow, and the bronze eagle of Ravenclaw on blue. The silver and green of Slytherin alone were absent. They were bulging bookcases, a few broomsticks propped up against the walls, and in the corner, a large wooden case wireless. Where are we? The room of requirement, of course, said Neville. Surpassed itself, hasn't it? The carols were chasing me, and I knew I had just one chance for a hideout. I managed to get through the door, and this is what I found. Well, it wasn't exactly like this when I arrived. It was a load smaller. There was only one hammock and just Gryffindor hangings, but it's expanded as more and more of the DA have arrived. And the carols can't get in? Asked Harry, looking around for the door. No, said Seamus Finnegan, whom Harry had not recognized until he spoke. Seamus's face was bruised and puffy. It's a proper hideout. As long as one of us stays in here, they can't get at us. The door won't open. It's all down to Neville. He really gets this room. You've got to ask it for exactly what you need. Like, I don't want any Kakaro supporter to be able to get in. And it'll do it for you. You just got to make sure you close the loopholes. Neville's the man. It's quite straightforward, really, said Neville modestly. I've been here about a day and a half and getting really hungry and wishing I could get something to eat. And that's when the passage to the Hogshead opened up. I went through it and met Aberforth. He's been providing us with food because, for some reason, that's the one thing this room doesn't really do. Yeah, well, food's one of the five exceptions to Gamp's law of elemental transfiguration, said Ron to general astonishment. So we've been hiding out here for nearly two weeks, said Seamus, and it just makes more hammocks every time we need them. And it even spouted a pretty good bathroom once girls started turning up. And thought they'd like to wash. Yes, supplied Lavender Brown, whom Harry had not noticed up until that point. Now they looked around properly, he recognized many familiar faces. Both Patil twins were there, as were Terry Boot, Ernie Macmillan, Anthony Goldstein, and Michael Corner. Tell us what you've been up to, though, said Ernie. There have been so many rumors. We've been trying to keep up with you on Potter Watch, he pointed out the wireless. You didn't break into Gringotts. They did, said Neville, and the dragon's true, too. And there was a smattering of applause and a few whoops, and Ron took a bow. What were you after? asked Seamus eagerly. But before any of them could parry the question with one of their own, Harry felt a terrible, scorching pain in the lightning scar. As he turned his back hastily on the curious and delighted faces, the room of requirement vanished, and he was standing inside a ruined stone shack, 
and the rotting floorboards ripped apart at his feet. Disinterred golden box laid open and empty beside the hole, and Voldemort's scream of fury vibrated inside his head. With an enormous effort, he pulled out of Voldemort's mind again, back to where he stood, swaying in the room of requirement, sweat pouring from his face, and Ron holding him up. Are you alright, Harry? Neville was saying. You want to sit down? I expect you're tired, aren't No, said Harry. He looked at Ron and Hermione, trying to tell them without words that Voldemort had just discovered the loss of one of the other Horcruxes. Time was running out fast. If Voldemort chose to visit Hogwarts next, they would miss their chance. We need to get going, he said, and their expressions told him that they understood. What are we going to do then, Harry? asked Seamus. What's the plan? Plan? repeated Harry. He was exercising all his willpower to prevent himself succumbing again to Voldemort's rage. His scar was still burning. Well, there's something we, Ron, Hermione, and I need to do, and then we'll get out of here. Nobody is laughing or hoping anymore. Neville looked confused. What do you mean, get out of here? We haven't come back to stay, said Harry, rubbing a scar, trying to soothe the pain. There's something important we need to do. What is it? I, I can't tell you. There is a ripple of muttering at this. Neville's brows contracted. Why can't you tell us? It's something to do with fighting you-know-who, right? Well, yeah. Then we'll help you. The other members of Dumbledore's army were nodding, some enthusiastically, others solemnly, and a couple of them rose from their chairs to demonstrate their willingness for immediate action. You don't understand. Harry seemed to have said that a lot in the last few hours. We, we can't tell you. We've got to do it alone. Why? asked Neville. Because, in his desperation to start looking for the missing Horcrux, or at least to have a private discussion with Ron and Hermione about where they might commence their search, Harry found it difficult to gather his thoughts. His scar was still searing. Dumbledore left the three of us a job, he said carefully, and we weren't supposed to tell. I mean, he wanted us to do it, just the three of us. We are his army, said Neville, Dumbledore's army. We were all in it together. We've been keeping it going while you three have been off on your own. It hasn't exactly been a picnic, mate, said Ron. I never said it had, but I don't see why you can't trust us. Everyone in this room has been fighting, and they've been driven in here because the Carols were hunting them down. Everyone in here has proven they're loyal to Dumbledore and loyal to you. Look, Harry began without knowing what he was going to say, but it did not matter. The tunnel door had just opened up behind him. We got your message, Neville. Hello, you three. I thought you must be here. It was Luna and Dean. Seamus gave a roar of delight and ran to hug his best friend. Hi, everyone, said Luna happily. Oh, it's great to be back. Luna, said Harry distractedly, what are you doing here? How did you... I sent for her, said Neville, holding up the fake galleon. I promised her and Ginny that if you turned up, I'd let them know. We all thought if you came back, it would mean revolution, that we were going to overthrow Snape and the Caros. Of course that's what it means, said Luna brightly. Isn't it, Harry? We're going to fight them out of Hogwarts. Listen, said Harry with a rising sense of panic. I'm sorry, but that's not what we came back for. There's something we've got to do, and then... You're going to leave us in this mess? demanded Michael Corner. No, said Ron. What we're doing will benefit everyone in the end. It's all about trying to get rid of you-know-who. Then let us help, said Neville angrily. We want to be a part of it. There was another noise behind them, and Harry turned. His heart seemed to fail. Ginny was now climbing through the hole in the wall, closely followed by Fred, George, and Lee Jordan. Ginny gave Harry a radiant smile. He had forgotten, or nev had never fully appreciated, how beautiful she was. But he had never been less pleased to see her. Aberforth's getting a bit annoyed, said Fred, raising his hand in answer to several cries of greeting. He wants a kip, and his bars turned into a railway station. Harry's mouth fell open. Right behind Lee Jordan came Harry's old girlfriend, Cho Chang. She smiled at him. I got the message, she said, holding up her own fake galleon, and she walked over to sit beside Michael Corner. So what's the plan, Harry? said George. There isn't one, said Harry, still disoriented by the sudden appearance of all these people, unable to take everything in while his scar was burning so fiercely. Just gonna make it up as we go along, are we? My favorite kind, said Fred. 
You've got to stop this, Harry told Neville. What did you call them all back for? This is insane. We're fighting, aren't we? Said Dean, taking out his fake galleon. The message said Harry was back and we were going to fight. I'll have to get a wand, though. You haven't got a wand? Began Seamus. Ron turned suddenly to Harry. Why can't they help? What? They can help. He dropped his voice and said, so that none of them could hear about Hermione who stood between them. We don't know where it is. We've got to find it fast. We don't have to tell him it's a horcrux. Harry looked from Ron to Hermione who murmured, I think Ron's right. We don't even know what we're looking for. We need them. And when Harry looked unconvinced, you don't have to do everything alone, Harry. Harry thought fast, his scar prickling, his head threatening to split again. Dumbledore had warned him against telling anyone but Ron and Hermione about the horcruxes. Secret and lies. That's how we grew up. And Albus, he was a natural. Was he turning into Dumbledore? Keeping his secrets clutched to the chest, afraid to trust? But Dumbledore had trusted Snape. And where had that led? To murder at the top of the highest tower. All right, he said quietly to the other two. Okay. He called to the room at large, and all noise ceased. Fred and George, who had been cracking jokes for the benefit of those nearest, fell silent, and all of them looked alert, excited. There's something we've got to find, Harry said. Something... Something that'll help us overthrow you-know-who. It's here at Hogwarts, but we don't know where. It might have belonged to Ravenclaw. Has anyone heard of an object like that? Has anyone ever come across something with her eagle on it, for instance? He looked hopefully towards the little group of Ravenclaws, to Padma, Michael, Terry, and Cho. But it was Luna who answered, and she was perched on the arm of Ginny's chair. Well, there's her lost diadem. I told you about it, remember, Harry? The lost diadem of Ravenclaw? Daddy's trying to duplicate it. Yeah, but the lost diadem, said Michael Corner, rolling his eyes, is lost, Luna. That's sort of the point. When was it lost? asked Harry. Centuries ago, they say, said Cho, and Harry's heart sank. Professor Philippe says the diadem vanished with Ravenclaw herself. People have looked, but, she appealed to her fellow Ravenclaws, nobody's ever found a trace of it, have they? They all shook their heads. Sorry, but what is a diadem? asked Ron. It's a kind of crown, said Terry Boot. Ravenclaws was supposed to have magical properties to enhance the wisdom of the wearer. Yes, Daddy's Raxpert siphons, but Harry cut across Luna. And none of you have ever seen anything that looks like it? They all shook their heads again. Harry looked at Ron and Hermione, and his own disappointment was mirrored back at him. An object that had been lost this long and apparently without trace did not seem like a good candidate for the Horcrux hidden in the castle. Before he could formulate a new question, however, Cho spoke again. If you'd like to see what the diadem's supposed to look like, I could take you up to our common room and show you, Harry. Ravenclaw's ring it and her statue. Harry's scar scorched again. For a moment, the room of requirements swam before him, and he saw instead the dark earth soaring beneath him, like, and he felt the great snake wrapped around his shoulders. Voldemort was flying again, whether to the underground lake or here to the castle, he did not know. Either way, there was hardly any time left. He's on the move, he said quietly to Ron and Hermione. He glanced at Cho, then back at them. Listen, I know it's not much of a lead, but I'm going to go and have a look at the statue and at least find out what the diadem looks like. Wait for me here and keep, you know, the other one safe. Cho had gotten to her feet, but Ginny said rather fiercely, No, Luna will take Harry, won't you, Luna? Oh, yes, I'd like to, said Luna happily, and Cho sat down again looking disappointed. How do we get out? Harry asked Neville. Over here. He led Harry and Luna to a corner where a small cupboard opened into a steep staircase. It comes out somewhere different every day, so they never have been able to find it. Only trouble is, we never know exactly where we're going to end up when we go out. Be careful, Harry. They're always patrolling the corridors at night. No problem, said Harry. See you in a bit. He and Luna hurried up the staircase, which was long, lit by torches and turned corners in unexpected places. At last, they reached what appeared to be a solid wall. Get under here, Harry told Luna, pulling out the invisibility cloak 
and throwing it over both of them. He gave the wall a little push. It melted away at his touch, and they slipped outside. Harry glanced back and saw that it had resealed itself at once. They were standing in a dark corridor. Harry pulled Luna back into the shadows, fumbled in the pouch around his neck, and took out the Marauder's map. Holding it close to his nose, he searched and located his and Luna's dots at last. We're up on the fifth floor, he whispered, watching Filch moving away from them, a corridor ahead. Come on, this way. They crept off. Harry had prowled the castle at night many times before, but never had his heart hammered this fast, never had so much depended on a safe passage through the place. Through squares of moonlight upon the floor, past suits of armor whose helmets creaked at the sound of their soft footsteps around corners beyond which who knew what lurked, Harry and Luna walked, checking the Marauder's map whenever light permitted, twice pausing to allow a ghost to pass without drawing attention to themselves. He expected to encounter an obstacle at any moment. His worst fear was Peeves, and he strained his ears with every step to hear the first telltale signs of the poltergeist's approach. This way, Harry breathed Luna, plucking his sleeve and pulling him toward a spiral staircase. They climbed in tight, dizzying circles. Harry had never been up here before. At last, they reached a door. There was no handle, no keyhole, but a plain expanse of aged wood and a bronze knocker in the shape of an eagle. Luna reached out a pale hand, which looked eerie floating in midair, connected, unconnected to arm or body. She knocked once, and in the silence, it sounded to Harry like a cannon blast. At once, the beak of the eagle opened, but instead of a bird's call, a soft musical voice said, Which came first, the phoenix or the flame? Hmm, what do you think, Harry? said Luna, looking thoughtful. What, isn't there just a password? Oh no, you've got to answer a question, said Luna. What if you get it wrong? Well, you have to wait for someone who gets it right, said Luna. That way you learn, you see. Yeah, trouble is, we can't really afford to wait for anyone else, Luna. No, I see what you mean, said Luna seriously. Well then, I think the answer is that a circle has no beginning. Well reasoned, said the voice, and the door swung open. The deserted Ravenclaw common room was a wide, circular room, airier than Harry had ever seen in Hogwarts. Graceful arched windows punctuated the walls, which were hung with blue and bronze silks. By day, the Ravenclaws would have had a spectacular view of the surrounding mountains. The ceiling was domed and painted with stars, which were echoed in the midnight blue carpet. There were tables, chairs, and bookcases in a niche opposite the door, and it stood a tall statue of white marble. Harry recognized Rowena Ravenclaw from the bust he had seen at Luna's house. The statue beside a door that led, he guessed, to dormitories above. He strode right up to the marble woman, and she seemed to look back at him with a quizzical half-smile on her face. Beautiful, yet slightly intimidating. A delicate-looking circlet had been reproduced in marble on the top of her head. It was not unlike a tiara that Fleur had wore during her wedding. There were tiny words etched into it. Harry stepped out from under the cloak and climbed up under Ravenclaw's plinth to read them. Wit beyond measure is man's greatest treasure. Which makes you pretty skint witless, said a cackling voice. Harry rolled around, slipped off the plinth, and landed on the floor. The sloping-shouldered figure of Electo Caro was standing before him, and even as Harry raised his wand, she pressed a stubby forefinger to the skull and snake branded on her forearm. And that is chapter 29, The Lost Diadem. Since I went through the chapter, Chase, go ahead and kick us off with your takeaways of that chapter. Yeah, man, a good amount of takeaways here uh, to kick us off for today. So the first one is the fact that they're torturing people at Hogwarts. That's kind of like a big one. Uh, if anyone recalls anything about Hogwarts and their headmaster, Dumbledore always said, never lay a hand on my students. 
and now we're just using uh, unforgivable curses on students now? Like, so that's a thing? So uh, the fact that, you know, Neville's eyes is swollen yellow and purple, and he has those gash marks on their face, and they're wondering where theirs are from. Now you're hearing about the Karos. That's another big one. Uh, and that they're known for their punishment at Hogwarts. Uh, and then uh, the next big takeaway I have from here is that, um, so as far as Neville tells the group that he sent Luna a message, um, and that uh, the reason he got the message to the rest of the DA was with um, that gold fake coin is kind of a full circle moment from Dumbledore's army that Hermione gave the group. And that's how he got the message uh, to him from Luna. So that was like a huge deal there, which that was from my favorite book. And, uh, you know, I got to give my girl props, even though her character is overblown <laughs> a lot of times. Not um, in the books. The, in the movies, it's overblown. In the books, yeah, not in the book. In the film, really. So, <laughs> yeah. um, Luna then, uh, of course, I did think this was kind of impactful was, of course, they mentioned that Luna was captured on the train at Christmas and Jenny actually left after Easter and Michael Corner got caught releasing uh, got caught releasing a person that was a first year uh, that was being tortured. So you're starting to realize with kind of the names of these students like Hogwarts, just like Neville was saying, it's not what it used to be. Like you have some major issues. Uh, Hogwarts students are trying to escape here. Uh, then another big one is Neville mentions, you know, another kind of full circle moment um, from Order of the Phoenix. I guess you can kind of say full circle, but he said they went after his grand. So they went after his grandmother. Um, and uh, Dawlish is still in St. Mungo's uh, and Grand's still on the run. So that was a big moment there. Um, as far as then another uh, big moment here is... Uh, they couldn't decide whether or not uh, to kill Neville or send him to Azkaban. Um, and that's when, like, he decided it would be time to disappear and really kind of start, you know, pushing back at this mess. Uh, and then, of course, Neville takes the group to the Room of Requirement. I thought that was a big impact moment. Could definitely full circle kind of there, going back to that room. Um, of course, the group kind of sees Seamus Finnegan. We haven't seen him in a while. Um and he mentions, you know, the Karos can't get to the room. And then, of course, Neville uh, tells the group that <laughs> Aberforth is starting to get kind of pissed <laughs> because, you know, people are uh, going in and out of his little bar thing, but he is providing them with food. So I thought that was good because it shows Aberforth isn't a complete tool. <laughs> like He can kind of help them out a little bit. Um and then Lavender Brown, uh, she's in the room of requirement. Remember, old Ronald had a little thing for her. <laughs> There's a full circle moment with Lavender, uh, kind of, that you'll break us down for today. <laughs> One of those parts. Um, Harry even notices the Patil twins, uh, Terry Boot, Ernie McMillan, Anthony Goldstein, and Michael Corner. You know, you're having these full circle moments from all the people that were in the DA. So it's kind of like... That 70s show, the gang's back together. We're all all right. We're all all right. And uh, from here, then, you know, Harry has that vision of Voldemort and he's screaming. And um, Harry tries to uh, tell them that Voldemort has found out about the loss of uh, previous Horcruxes. And uh, then from the next kind of impact moment I had was Neville really 
reminds them, you know, we're his army and they're Dumbledore's army and they're all together and supporting Harry and he's kind of pushing Harry to let him know what's going on, which Harry won't, but just really shows his support for him. Uh, and then, of course, uh, you know, Luna and Dean show up in the room of requirements. And then um, from here, I do have uh, so Jenny, uh, you know, she shows up and is climbing through the hole, followed by Fred, George, and Lee Jordan. So, very important characters we've seen throughout the series. So, you're kind of having this like family reunion going on right here over in Aberforth's area. Aberforth's getting a little pissed because they're having a little too much fun in the bar tonight. <laughs> Someone's got to get security. It's <laughs> time to get out of here. Um, and then, and this is definitely a big one, is because remember, it kind of shows you know the weird state of mind harry's in almost like anxious but he's missed jenny and he forgot how beautiful he was kind of a foreshadowing there but he's never been less pleased to see her because kind of what's going on at the moment but also kind of shows like he cares so much about her and then you have this other impact moment that's definitely an ironic full circle is cho chang remember dirty cho that we saw uh, Saw in my favorite book how well that went on Valentine's Day. <laughs> that went super well. Um, and then, you know, that kind of leads into uh, the next. Well, I guess I kind of want to bring this up right before he mentions the whole, you know, Jenny steps in the way of that is, you know, Harry tells Neville, you know, you've got to stop this because he really cares for all these people. Whereas it kind of shows his maturity a little bit over the years because. I feel like before, especially back in Order of the Phoenix, he would have been all for it. Like, he would have pulled the whole uh, serious attitude of, you know, a little risk, a risky business. But now he's, like, trying to be, you know, he's seeing what Voldemort's capable of, so he's really worried about these guys. Um, and then from here, you know, uh, at this moment I have is, this is when, uh, this is kind of a, a big quote that's impactful, is it's, secrets and lies that's how he grew up albus was a natural it's just another full circle reminder there they're still kind of wondering whether or not dumbledore was as trustful as they thought and that was as on that was on page 583 in the middle um and then it says you know from this point uh luna um but so luna mentions that her dad was trying to duplicate the lost diadem. So remember when we were having that moment I gave a little bit of hint of foreshadowing on that we talked about a few episodes ago? Well, now it's come full circle finally, and you see what Xenophilius was trying to duplicate there. Um, and then, you know, Cho even said on page 584, it was lost centuries ago. So still, every, I feel like every time you feel like this group gets ahead, it's still another thing in the way where it's like, well, shit, like no one's been able to find it for centuries and we got, what, a, a couple hours? <laughs> All right, good luck. <laughs> All right. Uh, next one is, um, I thought this is, it's not really that big of a deal. I, I guess you could kind of not really know what a diadem is, so I'm okay with it. But just again, like Ron's like, what's a diadem? Like, all right. <laughs> You've only been... <laughs> Kind of like you've heard so many people talk about this. I get it. It's the first time it's really brought up, but I mean, Ron's definitely not the brightest of the group. Let's just kind of say that. I didn't really have a problem with it, but just a typical Ron moment. Uh, I did think this was kind of uh, 
funny. It's not really important, but Luna mentions, you know, daddy's rack spurt uh, C4s or whatever. So Siphons. it's just another, what were they called? It was like Siphons. SI. Siphons. 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 Yeah. So I thought that was interesting. Um, and then it, it, this is that big moment on page 584 at the bottom where Cho says, if you'd like to see what the diadem is supposed to look like, you know, she says she can take him over to the Ravenclaw, uh, Ravenclaw area. And that's when Jenny jumps in the way and it's really a full circle for them uh, because, you know, you know, she remembers the history with Cho and Harry and she's like, Luna can take him. <laughs> like, Luna, you'd be happy to do it, right? Oh, yes. And Luna has no idea what's going on. She's she's very smart, but she's definitely off in her own world. We'll just say that. And then, um, then of course, uh, this is kind of a, a big area was... Um, I thought this was interesting was Harry was asking how do they get there and then they were showing how uh, the staircase comes out like a different uh, a different area every time um, so like you wouldn't be able to find it so I just thought it was interesting how they kind of get around the castle up to that area um, and then the next one here that I have was this is definitely a full circle is Harry puts it takes that marauder's map uh, back on and you know has the invisibility cloak and uh, just think of like how many times we've seen Harry use this map before so it's definitely kind of a full circle there um, and it, just even the fact that it says when they are finally getting there this is I really appreciated this because I told you I used to be a Ravenclaw <laughs> so I appreciated how creative this was for how they kind of show their personality but of course, there's no keyhole, no handle. It's got the aged wood and the bronze knocker in the shape of the eagle. But instead of a password, like the Gryffindor common rooms, you got to answer the question. So it really shows kind of their intellectuality there. Uh, and Luna even says, you know, if you get it wrong, you just wait till someone answers it right <laughs> to go in. Um, and then, of course, the Ravenclaw room where it describes it's that circular room. Uh, and it was like graceful arched windows, kind of punctuated walls. They could see the mountains on that side. It just sounded beautiful to me. Almost kind of like if you're in the Alps or kind of like Pocahontas vibe or something. Like Almost like they wanted to give the Ravenclaws the prefix shit. But they just felt like they had to, had to actually make the bathrooms nice for the prefix. But everything else went to the Ravenclaws. So I kind of feel a little bit sort of way about that. <laughs> Being a Gryffindor. But uh, then uh, from this point, of course, uh, you know, Harry sees the Marble Woman. That's definitely a big moment there uh, with uh, what was reproduced on top of her head, which, you know, referring to the diadem thing and where it says wit beyond measure is man's greatest treasure. That's a huge moment. Um, and uh, then at the very end here, you know, you have this moment like, oh, crap, like, wow, that, that didn't go very well. And at the very end here is you have uh, Caro puts, you know, puts a finger on her dark mark and then is alerting the Dark Lord and everyone there that Harry's there. So definitely uh, great. Like, we're, we're definitely in it now. Uh, what about you, man? What takeaways did you have? Yeah, I'll just go through some of the ones I found more important through the chapter here. Uh, obviously, Neville being in rough shape with the bruises and gouge marks on his face. 
Uh, Neville telling Aberforth more people are going to be coming directly into the bar. It's a little bit of foreshadow that kind of comes full circle in the same chapter. Uh, this secret passage is one of the ones that wasn't even on the Marauder's map. The one from the Hogshead into the Room of Requirement. That's a new secret passage yep. that not even Fred and George knew about, which is pretty impressive. Uh, you know, ne Neville tells Harry, Ron, and Hermione, like you said, about how Hogwarts has changed, that the Caros are in charge of discipline, and they make Umbridge look like really tame comparatively. Uh, now they actually changed the Defense Against the Dark Arts class to just the Dark Arts, and Amicus Caro makes them practice the Cruciatus Curse on people who get detention. Um, the, the school has been teaching you know, kids about muggles being vicious and kind of like overpowering the wizards and making them go into hiding as if it was the muggles' fault when you know that's not really an accurate representation of history. So it kind of shows how you know whoever makes the curriculum can kind of feed the brains of the youth. You know, it's kind of something that we see in America too with certain textbooks and how you know back in the day Christopher Columbus was you know kind of glorified there was Columbus Day without realizing he did a lot of like really fucked up shit you know now that's kind of changed to Indigenous yeah. Peoples Day and things of that nature so it just goes to show even in these you know like fictional novels there's you know you, you can kind of you know poison the mind of young people by putting whatever you want whoever teaches a curriculum kind of has the next generations you know what they believe so going from there uh, Neville tells Harry that he wouldn't have stood it either and how it helps when people stand up to people because it gives everyone else hope and how he used to know this, that, that would happen when Harry would do it. So Neville, to me, has come a long way from that round-faced, chubby boy who didn't really have a lot of friends and was just really awkward. He's come a long way into almost like a leader of sorts, which I really appreciated some character progression for Neville. Yeah. Um, I love the Rebel stuff that Neville tells him that him, Ginny, and Luna would do and what they were up to. And then kind of piecing off of what you said about when they tried to attack uh, Neville's grandma, she put Dollish in St. Mungo's, and now she's on the run. I can only imagine, like, you know, an 80-year-old yeah. lady, you know, putting that. Because, guys, remember who Dollish is? He's an Auror. Dollish is an yeah. Auror. He's, like, the one. And, like, you know, almost to this point that I'm going to bring up here in a second, you know, she's 80 years old, put an Auror in the hospital, and, like, is on the run. But Dollish continuously sucks at everything. He's the worst. Remember, uh, Dumbledore cursed him in Order of the Phoenix. Then in the beginning <laughs> of this book, they said that the Order put a confundus charm on Dollar, so he uh, was he was like the false trail that the Order placed for, like, they hoped that Voldemort would pick up. That's when they were moving Harry from the Dursleys. They put confundus charm on him. Then remember, Dirk Cresswell escaped from Dollish on his way to Azkaban, and now we see that Neville's grandmother outsmarted Dollish and he got put in St. Mungo's. So, honestly, Dollish needs to be fired. He's not a good or He's barely a capable <laughs> wizard. So, I just want to bring that up because I found that very interesting. Uh, next point I have is the room requirement does outdo itself. We already kind of talked about what it did in terms of putting the hammocks there, extra bathrooms when the girls started to join, really kind of giving them everything they would need to survive, even a passageway to the hogshead to receive food. Um, page 583, Ron finally has a good idea. You know, he tells like Harry, like, hey, listen, like we don't have to tell them it's a Horcrux, but we could probably use their help. They've been in Hogwarts. Yeah. There's Ravenclaws here that might know a little bit more about what we're looking for than we do. So even Hermione says, you know what? I think Ron's right. So if Hermione's saying <laughs> Ron's right, we got a surprising shock here. Ron finally comes in and does something beneficial for the team. Uh, full circle moment. We learn Ravenclaw's lost item is the Horcrux of Hogwarts. Well, they, they believe it might be the Horcrux of Hogwarts. They need to find. I do think it's pretty badass to enter the Ravenclaw common room. Like you already brought up that you have to answer like a riddle. Uh, it keeps them all sharp and smart like Ravenclaws are. So I thought that was yeah. interesting. And then the very last thing I have before I let you go ahead and jump into... Uh, chapter 30 is just, you know, Electo Caro finds Harry and Luna and presses a dark mark and summons Voldemort. So that's yep. those are the takeaways, man. That's really the bang and the, the bread and butter of what that 
chapter really entails and some of the bigger ones that I had taken away from that. So I'll go ahead and turn it over to you, let you take us through chapter 30. I do have two bullet points if you want me to take two sure. bullet points and I'll have you start on page go 591. On page 589 here of chapter 30, The Sacking of Severus Snape, I just say that Luna stuns Electo Caro, and this is the first time she's ever used a stunning spell for real. She even mentions like she yeah. used to practice it in the in the DA, but now she actually was able to stun a Death Eater with that stunning spell, so that was pretty cool. Then page 590, Amicus tries to charge in the Ravenclaw common room, but he can't answer the question because he's stupid. And so I thought that was really funny, like how... <laughs> Her brother tries to come in and like it's like trying to shout to the students, open it up from the inside because he can't get in because he can't answer the riddle. And so from there, I'll go ahead and turn it over to Chase on page 591 when Professor McGonagall appears, and then uh, he'll just take it through the rest of the chapter. Perfect. May I ask what you're doing, Professor Caro? Trying to get through this damn door, shouted Amicus. Go and get Flitwick. Get him to open it now. But isn't your sister in there? asked Professor McGonagall. Didn't Professor Flitwick let her in earlier this evening at your urgent request? Perhaps she could open the door for you. Then needn't wake up half a, half the castle. She ain't s answering, you old besom. You open it. Garn. Do it now. Certainly, if you wish, said Professor McGonagall with awful coldness. There was a gentle tap of the knocker and the musical voice asked again, Where do vanished objects go? into non-being which is to say everything replied professor mcgonagall nicely phrased replied the eagle door knocker and the door swung open the few ravenclaws who had remained behind sprinted for the stairs amicus burst over the threshold brandishing his wand hunched like his sister he had a pallid doughy face and tiny eyes which fell at once on electo sprawled motionless on the floor he let out a yell of fury and fear what have they done? The little whelps, he screamed. I'll cruciate the lot of them. They'll tell me who did it. And what's that dark lord going to say? He shrieked, standing over his sister and smacking himself on the forehead with his fist. We haven't got him, and they've gorn and killed her. She's only stunned, said Professor McGonagall impatiently, who had stooped down to examine Electo. She'll be perfectly all right. No, she bludgering well won't, bellowed Amicus. Not after the Dark Lord gets hold of her. She's going and sent for him. I felt me Mark burn, and he thinks we've got Potter. Got Potter? said Professor McGonagall sharply. What do you mean, got Potter? He told us Potter might try and get inside Ravenclaw Tower and to send for him if we caught him. Why would Harry Potter try to get inside Ravenclaw Tower? Potter belongs in my house. Beneath the disbelief and anger, Harry heard a little strain of pride in her voice and affection for Minerva McGonagall gushed up inside him. We was told he might come in here, said Carol. I don't know why, do I? Professor McGonagall stood up and her beady eyes swept the room. Twice they passed right over the place where Harry and Luna stood. We can't push it off on the kids, said Amicus, his pig-like face suddenly crafty. Yeah, that's what we'll do. We'll say Electa was ambushed by the kids, them kids up there. He looked up at the starry ceiling toward the dormitories, and we'll say they forced her to press the mark, and that's why he got a false alarm. He can punish him. A couple of kids, more or less. What's the difference? Only the difference between the truth and lies, courage and cowardice, said Professor McGonagall, who had turned pale. A difference in short, which you and your sister seem unable to appreciate, but let me make one thing very clear. You are not going to pass off your many ineptitudes on the students of Hogwarts. I shall not permit it. Excuse me, 
Amicus moved forward until he was offensively close to Professor McGonagall, his face within inches of hers. She refused to back away, but looked down at him as if he were something disgusting she had found stuck to the laboratory seat. It's not a case of what you'll permit, Minerva McGonagall. Your time is over. It's us that's in charge here now, and you'll back me up or you'll pay the price. And he spat in her face. Harry pulled off the cloak of his, off himself, raised his wand, and said, You shouldn't have done that. As Amicus spun around, Harry shouted, Crucio! The Death Eater was lifted off his feet. He writhed through the air like a drowning man, thrashing and howling in pain. And then with a crunch and shattering glass, he smashed into the front of the bookcase, crumpled, insensible to the floor. I see what Bellatrix meant, said Harry, the blood thundering through his brain. You need to really mean it. Potter! whispered Professor McGonagall, clutching her heart. Potter, you're, you're here? What? How? She struggled to pull herself together. Potter, that was foolish. He spat at you, said Harry. Potter, I, I that was really gallant of you, but don't you realize? Yeah, I do, Harry assured her. Somehow her panic steadied, steadied him. Professor McGonagall, Voldemort's on the way. Uh, are we allowed to say the name now? asked Luna, with an air of interest pulling off the invisibility cloak. The appearance of a second law outlaw seemed to overwhelm Professor McGonagall, who staggered backward and fell into a nearby chair, clutching at the neck of her old tartan dressing gown. I don't think it makes any difference what we call him, Harry told Luna. He already knows where I am. In a distant part of Harry's brain and the part connected to the angry burning scar, he could see Voldemort sailing fast over the dark lake in ghostly green boat. He had nearly reached the island where the stone basin stood. You must flee, whispered Professor McGonagall. Now, Potter, as quickly as you can. I can't, said Harry. There's something I need to do, Professor. Do you know where the diadem of Ravenclaw is? The di diadem of Ravenclaw? Of course not. Hasn't it been lost for centuries? She sat up a little straighter. Potter, it was madness, utter madness for you to enter this castle. I had to, said Harry. Professor, there's something hidden here that I'm supposed to find, and it could be the diadem. If I could just speak to Professor Flitwick, there was a sound of movement and clinking glass. Amicus was coming around. Before Harry and Luna could act, Professor McGonagall rose to her feet, pointed her wand at the groggy Death Eater, and said, Imperio! Amicus got up, walked over to her sister, picked up her wand, then shuffled obediently to Professor McGonagall and handed it over along with his own. Then he lay on the floor beside Electo. Professor McGonagall waved her wand again, and a length of shimmering silver rope appeared out of thin air and snake around the carrows, binding them tightly together. Potter, said Professor McGonagall, turning to face him again with a superb indifference to the carrows predicament. If he who must not be named does indeed know that you are here... As she said it, a wrath that was like physical pain blazed through Harry, setting his scar on fire, and for a second he looked down upon the basin whose potion had turned clear and saw that no golden locket lay safe beneath the surface. Potter, are you all right? Are you all right? said a voice, and Harry came back. He was clutching Luna's shoulder to steady himself. Time's running out. Voldemort's getting nearer, Professor. I'm acting on Dumbledore's orders. I must find what he wanted me to find. But we've got to get the students out while I'm searching the castle. It's me Voldemort wants, but he won't care about killing a few more or less, not now. Not now he knows I'm attacking Horcruxes. Harry finished the sentence in his head. You're acting on Dumbledore's orders? She repeated with a look of dawning wonder. Then she drew herself up to his fullest, her fullest height. We shall secure the school against he who must not be named while you search for this object. Is that possible? I think so, said Professor McGonagall dryly. We teachers are rather good at magic, you know. 
I'm sure we will be able to hold him off for a while if we all put our best efforts into it. Of course, something will have to be done about Professor Snape. Let me... And if Hogwarts is about to to enter a state of siege with the Dark Lord at its gates, it would indeed be advisable to take as many in- innocent people out of the way as possible. With the flu network under observation and apparition impossible within the grounds, there's a way, said Harry quickly, and he explained about the passageway leading into Hogshead. Potter, we're talking about hundreds of students. I know, Professor, but if Voldemort and Death Eaters are concentrating on the school's boundaries, they won't be interested in anyone who's disapparating out of Hogshead. There's something in that, she agreed. She pointed her wand at the carrows, and a silver net fell upon the bound bodies, tied itself around them, and hoisted them into the air, where they dangled beneath the blue and gold ceiling like two large, ugly sea creatures. Come, we must alert the other heads of house. You'd better put that cloak back on. She marched toward the door, and as she did to raise her wand, from the tip burst three silver cats with spectacle markings around their eyes. The Patronuses ran sleekly ahead, filling the spiral staircase with silvery light as Professor McGonagall, Harry, and Luna hurried back down. Along the corridors they raced, and one by one, the Patronuses left them. Professor McGonagall, tartan dressing gown, rustled over the floor, and Harry and Luna jogged behind her under the cloak. They had descended two more floors when another set of quiet footsteps joined theirs. Harry, whose whose scar was still prickling, heard them first. He felt in a pouch around his neck for the marauder's map, but before he could take it out, McGonagall too seemed to become aware of their company. She halted, raised her wand ready to duel, and said, Who's there? It is I, said a low voice. From behind a suit of armor stepped Severus Snape. Hatred boiled up in Harry at the sight of him. He had forgotten the details of Snape's appearance and the magnitude of his crimes, forgotten how his greasy black hair hung in curtains around his thin face, how his black eyes had a dead cold look. He was not wearing night clothes, but was dressed in his usual black cloak. He, too, was holding his wand ready for a fight. Where are the Karos? he asked quietly. Wherever you told them to be, I expect, Severus, said Professor McGonagall. Snape stepped nearer, and his eyes flitted over Professor McGonagall into the air around her, and if he knew that Harry was there, Harry held his wand up too, ready to attack. "'I was under the impression,' said Snape, "'that Electo had apprehended an intruder.' "'Really,' said Professor McGonagall. "'And what gave you that impression?' Snape made a slight flexing movement of his left arm, where the dark mark was branded to his skin." Oh, but naturally, said Professor McGonagall, you Death Eaters have your own private means of communication. I forgot. Snape pretended not to have heard her. His eyes were still probing the air all about her, and he was moving gradually closer with an air of hardly noticing what he was doing. I did not know that it was your night to patrol the corridors, Minerva. You have some objection? I wonder what could have brought you out of your bed at this late hour. I thought I heard a disturbance, said Professor McGonagall. Really? But all seems calm. Snape looked into her eyes. Have you seen Harry Potter, Minerva? Because if you have, I must insist. Professor McGonagall moved faster than Harry could have believed. Her wand slashed through the air, and for a split second, Harry thought that Snape must crumple unconscious, but the swiftness of the shield charm was such that McGonagall was thrown off balance. She brandished her wand at a torch on the wall, and it flew out of its bracket. Harry, about to curse Snape, was forced to pull Luna out of the way of the descending flames, which became a ring of fire that filled the corridor and flew like a lasso at Snape. 
Then it was no longer fire, but a great black serpent that McGonagall blasted to smoke, which reformed and solidified in seconds to become a swarm of pursuing daggers. Snape avoided them only by forcing the suit of armor in front of him, and with echoing clangs and daggers sank, one after another into its breast. Minerva, said a squeaky voice, and looking behind him, still shielding Luna from the flying spells, Harry saw professors Flitwick and Sprout sprinting up the corridor toward them in their nightclothes with the enormous Professor Slughorn panting along at the rear. No, squealed Flitwick, raising his wand. You'll do no more murder at Hogwarts! Flitwick's spell hit the suit of armor behind which Snape had taken shelter. With a clatter, it came to life. Snape struggled free of the crushing arms and sent it flying back toward his attackers. Harry and Luna had to dive sideways to avoid it as it smashed into the wall and shattered. When Harry looked up again, Snape was in full flight. McGonagall, Flitwick, and Sprout all thundering around, uh, thundering after him. He hurtled through a classroom door, and moments later, he heard McGonagall cry, Coward! Coward! What's happened? "'What's happened?' asked Luna. Harry dragged her to her feet, and they raced along the corridor, trailing the invisibility cloak behind them into the deserted classroom where Professors McGonagall, Flitwick, and Sprout were standing at the smashed window. "'He jumped,' said Professor McGonagall, as Harry and Luna ran into the room. "'You mean he's dead?' Harry sprinted to the window, ignoring Flitwick and Sprout's yells of shock at his sudden appearance. "'No, he's not dead,' said McGonagall bitterly. Unlike Dumbledore, he was still carrying a wand, and he seems to have learned a few tricks from his master. With a tingle of horror, Harry saw in the distance a huge bat-like shape flying through the darkness toward the perimeter wall. There were heavy footfalls behind him and a great deal of puffing. Slughorn had just caught up. Harry, he panted, massaging his immense chest beneath his emerald green silk pajamas. My dear boy, what a surprise, Minerva. Do you please explain? Severus, what? Our headmaster is taking a short break, said Professor McGonagall, pointing at the Snape-shaped hole in the window. Professor, Harry shouted, his hands at his forehead. He could see the infury-filled lake sliding beneath him, and he felt the ghostly green boat bump into the underground shore, and Voldemort leapt from it with murder in his heart. Professor, we've got to barricade the school. He's coming now. Very well. He who must not be named is coming. She told the other teachers. Sprout and Flitwick gasped. Slughorn let out a low groan. Potter has work to do in the castle on Dumbledore's orders. We need to put in place every protection of which we are capable while Potter does what he needs to do. You realize, of course, what nothing we do will be able to stop out you-know-who indefinitely, squeaked Flitwick. But we can hold him up, said Professor Sprout. Thank you, Nimona, said Professor McGonagall. And between the two witches, there passed a look of grim understanding. I suggest we establish a basic protection around this place, around the place, then gather our students and meet in the Great Hall. Most must be evacuated, though, if any of those who are over age wish to stay and fight, I think they ought to be given the chance. Agreed, said Professor Sprout. Already hurrying toward the door, I shall meet you in the Great Hall in 20 minutes with my house. And as she jogged out of sight, they could hear her muttering, Tentacula! Devil Snare and Snargoloff Paws. Pods. Yes. I'd like to see Death Eaters fighting those. I can act from here, said Flitwick. And although he could barely see out of it, he pointed his wand through the smashed window and started muttering incantations of great complexity. Harry heard a weird rushing noise, as though Flitwick had unleashed the power of the wind into the grounds. Professor, Harry said, approaching the little charms master. Professor, I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt, but this is important. 
Have you got any idea where the diadem of Ravenclaw is? Protecto horribilis! The diadem of Ravenclaw? Squeaked Flitwick. A little extra wisdom never goes amiss, Potter, but I hardly think it would be much use in this situation. Only meant... Do you know where it is? Have you ever seen it? Seen it? Nobody has seen it in living memory. Long since lost, boy. Harry felt a mixture of desperate disappointment and panic. What then was the Horcrux? We shall meet you and your Ravenclaws in the Great Hall, Phileas, said Professor McGonagall, beckoning to Harry and Luna to follow her. They had just reached the door when Slughorn rumbled into speech. My word! He puffed pale and sweaty, his walrus mustache a quiver. What a to-do! I am not all sure whether this is wise, Minerva. He is bound to find a way in, you know, and anyone who has tried to delay him will be in most grievous peril. I shall expect you and the Slytherins in the Great Hall in twenty minutes also, said Professor McGonagall. If you wish to leave with your students, we shall not stop you. But if any of you attempt to sabotage our resistance or take up arms against us within this castle, then, Horace, we duel to kill. Minerva! He said aghast. The time has come for Slytherin House to decide upon its loyalties, interrupted Professor McGonagall. Go and wake your students, Horace. Harry did not say much. Harry did not say to watch, Slughorn splutter. He and Luna ran after Professor McGonagall, who had taken up a position in the middle of the corridor and raised her wand. Pierre Totem! Oh, for heaven's sake, Filch, not now! The aged caretaker had just come hobbling into view, shouting, Students out of bed! Students in the corridors! They're supposed to be, you blithering idiot! shouted McGonagall. Now go and do something! Something constructive! Find Peeves! Peeves? stammered Filch as though he had never heard the name before. Yes, Peeves, you fool! Peeves! Haven't you been complaining about him for a quarter of a century? Go and fetch him at once! Filch evidently thought Professor McGonagall had taken leave of her senses, but hobbled away, hunched-shouldered, muttering under his breath. And now, Pierre Totem Locomotor, cried Professor McGonagall, and all along the corridors the statues and suits of armors jumped down from their plinths, and from the echoing crashes from the floors above and below, Harry knew that their fellows throughout the castle had done the same. Hogwarts is threatened, shouted Professor McGonagall. Man the boundaries. Protect us. Do your duty to our school. Clattering and yelling, the horde of moving statues stampeded past Harry, some of them smaller, others larger than life. They were animals, too, and then clanking suits of armor, brandished swords, and spiked balls on chains. Now, Potter, said McGonagall, you and Miss Lovegood had better return to your friends and bring them to the Great Hall. I shall rouse the other Gryffindors. They parted at the top of the next staircase, Harry and Luna running back toward the concealed entrance to the room of requirement. As they ran, they met crowds of students, most wearing traveling cloaks over their pajamas, being shepherded down to the Great Hall by teachers and prefects. That was Potter! Harry Potter! It was him, I swear! I just saw him! But Harry did not look back, and at last they reached the entrance to the room of requirement. Harry leaned against the enchanted wall, which opened to admit them, and he and Luna sped back down the steep staircase. What? As the room came into view, Harry slipped down a few stairs in shock. It was packed, far more crowded than when he had last been in there. Kingsley and Lupin were looking up at him, as were Oliver Wood, Katie Bell, Angelina Johnson, and Alicia Spinnett, Bill and Floor, and Mr. and Miss Weasley. Harry... 
What's happening? said Lupin, meeting him at the foot of the stairs. Voldemort's on his way. They're barricading the school. Snape's run for it. What are you doing here? How do you know? We sent messages to the rest of Dumbledore's army, Fred explained. You couldn't expect everyone to miss the fun, Harry. And the DA let the Order of the Phoenix know, and it all kind of snowballed. What first, Harry? called George. What's going on? They're evacuating the younger kids and everyone's meeting in the Great Hall to get organized, Harry said. We're fighting. There was a great roar and a surge toward the foot of the stairs. He was pressed back against the wall as they ran past him. The mingled members of the Order of the Phoenix, Dumbledore's army, and Harry's old Quidditch team, all with their wands drawn, heading up into the main castle. Come on, Luna, Dean called as he passed, holding out his free hand. She took it and followed him back up the stairs. The crowd was thinning. Only a little knot of people remained below in the room of requirement, and Harry joined Miss Weasley, who was struggling with Jenny. Around them stood Lupin, Fred, George, Bill, and Floor. You're underage, Miss Weasley shouted at her daughter as Harry approached. I won't permit it. The boys, yes, but you've got to go home. I won't, Jimmy, Jenny's hair flew as she pulled her arm out of her mother's grip. I'm in Dumbledore's army, a teenager's gang. A teenager's gang that's about to take him on, which no one else has dared to do, said Fred. She's 16, shouted Miss Weasley. She's not old enough. What you two were thinking, bringing her with you? Fred and George looked slightly ashamed of themselves. Mom's right, Jenny, said Bill gently. You can't do this. Everyone underage will have to leave. It's only right. I can't go home, Jenny shouted, angry tears sparkling in her eyes. My whole family is here. I can't stand waiting there alone and not knowing. And Her eyes met Harry for the first time. She looked at him, be searchingly. But he shook his head, and she turned away bitterly. Fine, she said, staring at the entrance to the tunnel back to Hogshead. I'll say goodbye now, then. And there was a scuffling and a great thump. Someone else had clambered out of the tunnel, overbalanced, lightly, and fallen. He pulled himself up on the nearest chair, looked around, though lopsided, horn-rimmed glasses, and said, Am I too late? Has it started? I only just found out, so I... I... Percy spluttered into silence. Evidently, he had not expected to run into most of his family. There was a long moment of astonishment, broken by Fleur, turning to Lupin and saying in a wildly transparent attempt to break the tension, So Al's a little teddy. Lupin blinked at her, startled. The silence between the Weasleys seemed to be solidifying like ice. I, oh yes, he's fine, Lupin said loudly. Yes, Tonks is with him and at, his, at her mother's. Percy and the other Weasleys were still staring at one another frozen. Here, I've got a picture, Lupin shouted, pulling a photograph from inside his jacket and showing it to Floor and Harry, who saw a tiny baby with a tuft of bright turquoise hair waving fat fists at the camera. I was a fool, Percy roared, so loudly that Lupin nearly dropped his photograph. I was an idiot. I was a pompous prat. I... I Ministry-loving, family-disowning, power-hungry moron, said Fred. Percy swallowed. Yes, I was. Well, you can't say fairer than that, said Fred, holding out his hand to Percy. Miss Weasley burst into tears. She ran forward, pushed Fred aside, and pulled Percy into a strangling hug. While he patted her on the back, his eyes on his father. I'm sorry, Dad, Percy said. Mr. Weasley blinked rather rapidly. Then he too hurried to hug his son. What made you see sense, Purse? inquired George. It's been coming for a while, said Percy, mopping his eyes under his glasses with a corner of his traveling cloak. 
but I had to find a way out, and it's not so easy at the ministry. They're imprisoning traitors all the time. I managed to make contact with Aberforth, and he tipped me off 10 minutes ago that Hogwarts was going to make a fight of it, so here I am. Well, we do look to our prefects to take a lead at times, such as these, said George in good in imitation of Percy's most pompous manner. Now, let's get upstairs and fight, or all the good Death Eaters will be taken. Will be taken. So you're my sister-in-law now, said Percy, shaking hands with Floor as they hurried off toward the staircase with Bill, Fred, and George. Jenny, barked Miss Weasley. Jenny had been attempting undercover of the reconciliation to sneak upstairs too. Molly, how about this, said Lupin. Why doesn't Jenny stay here? Then at least she'll be on the scene and know what's going on, but she won't be in the middle of the fighting. I. That's a good idea, said Miss Weasley firmly. Jenny, you stay in the room, you hear me? Jenny did not seem like the idea, but under her father's unusually stern gaze, she nodded. Mr. and Miss Weasley and Lupin headed off the stairs as, as well. Where's Ron? asked Harry. Where's Hermione? They must have gone up to the Great Hall already, Mr. Weasley called over his shoulder. I didn't see them pass me, said Harry. They said something about a bathroom, said Jenny. Not long after you left. A bathroom? Harry strode across the room to an open door leading off the room of requirement and checked the bathroom beyond. It was empty. You're sure they said bath, but then his scarf seared and the room of requirement vanished. He was looking through the high wrought iron gates with winged boars on pillars at either side, looking through the dark grounds toward the castle, which was ablaze with lights. Nagini lay draped over his shoulders. He was possessed of that cold, cruel sense of purpose that preceded murder. Yeah, man, uh, pretty intense chapter. Uh, what did you get for your takeaways, brother? That no matter how many times I tell you, you will never call Mrs. Weasley Mrs. Weasley. It's always Miss Weasley with you. She is a married woman. <laughs> she has a husband Ooh, and children. Miss, she deserves yeah. the title of Mrs. Weasley. Ah, Miss okay. Weasley has got it going on. Mrs. <laughs> yeah. Weasley. So that's like my takeaway number one. But to kind of get into the takeaways of the actual chapters uh chapter here for chapter 30 i have voldemort sent a message ahead to the death eaters at hogwarts saying that harry might try and get into ravenclaw tower that's interesting because like yep. I, I don't know understand exactly how he sends that message like you know did he send it obviously he can't send a patronus because he's evil as all evil can be so how did he send that message to the death eaters is my question uh you know to myself not not verbally to you but so that was a takeaway i had is you know obviously he sent a message somehow to the Death Eaters saying, hey, Harry might try to get into Ravenclaw Tower. Uh, next yeah. one I have is McGonagall. She stands up for the students and he spits in her face and Harry is like, no, sir. <laughs> Absolutely not. And so uh, this is where I say Harry uses yet another unforgivable curse on Amicus this time and using the Cruciatus curse. So he's used the Imperious curse on Bogrod the Goblin at Gringotts, using the Imperious curse on Travers the Death Eater at Gringotts. Now he's using the Cruciatus curse on Amicus. How many unforgivable curses are we going to let Harry get away with here? So just throwing that out there. Uh, Voldemort's on the way. It's a race against time. McGonagall plans to secure the school against Voldemort with the other teachers. Uh, see, this is something that, you know, when we go in, not, not next week, but the week after when we talk about the differences, we'll talk about this. But uh, this is one part that I think the movie actually did better than the novel was, like, that cool duel between Snape and McGonagall. Here in the book, it still yeah. was great, but it wasn't just McGonagall versus Snape. It was McGonagall and Flitwick and Professor Sprout. And, you know, he ended up escaping up in, like, in the corridors, and it wasn't that in the Great Hall. 
But I still thought it was yeah. a cool little moment where McGonagall and Snape duel, and other teachers, Loyola Dumbledore, arrive and help her, and Snape flees like a coward. So, throwing that yeah. out there. <laughs> uh, another thing that I really do believe people really underestimate Professor Flitwick because of his size. But, you know, everyone, I think we talked about interesting facts. Professor Flitwick was a dueling champion at one point. Like, yeah, Professor was. Flitwick was this very, very powerful guy. Like, so he's, he's no slouch. He's someone that you want on your side when shit gets real. Um, yeah. After that, Professor McGonagall threatens Slughorn and tells him that if he tries to sabotage their resistance or take up arms against them, that her and Slughorn are going to duel to the death, which is pretty badass. I see you, McGonagall, yeah. really taking charge here, man. That's great stuff. And then <laughs> uh, a couple more I've got. I, I love that. McGonagall brings school statues and suits of armor to life and tells them to do their duty to the school. I thought that was pretty badass. Yeah. And then on top of that, when we get back into the room of requirement, the remainder of the Order of the Phoenix arrives. We've got Bill, we've got Lupin, we've got Mr. and Mrs. Weasley. We have Fred and George <laughs> there. Percy shows up out of the clear blue sky. Uh, you know, they, they try to send Ginny home, uh, but when Percy arrives... You know, the whole, they finally, he's on the right team. I'm talking about Percy. He was against them the whole way around, on the ministry side, ever since. Honestly, I would say he started kind of going more towards the ministry side as early as Goblet of Fire when he worked as the undersecretary to Barty Crouch. And ever since then, it's just been ministry, 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 screw screw the family. You know, even got to the point yeah. where Rufus Scrimmager brought him over for Christmas, and they, like, they got a big fight with the parents, and, you know, they like Fred and George threw, like, like parsnips out his glasses and stuff. So I thought it was cool. We kind of get a resolution. Percy finally comes back on the right side. I thought it was funny that Fred and George kind of like make fun of him. Like, oh, you were like a ministry-loving Pratt. Like, they just gave him a whole issue. He's like, yeah, I was. Like, I can't be fairer than that. Welcome to the team, man. So I thought that was pretty interesting. And then obviously the last takeaway I have is Voldemort is now at the gates of Hogwarts. It's about to go down. What takeaways did you have? I think you hit all the takeaways, nailed them on the head. Uh, the other thing I was just going to really kind of um i guess piggyback on i really thought it was cool just like you said that that fight between snape and mcgonagall um just in the book i thought it was cool how she like brandished the lasso of like the the whip it was kind of like when dumbledore almost did it in order of the phoenix with the fire when she brandished it from the torch on the side of the wall and then you know the knives uh were shot over at severus but you you can see you know how it really describes severus isn't one to be taken lightly i mean it, mcgonagall shot that spell at him and he blocked it instantly where it almost knocked her off balance and he stopped the knives by making that suit of armor come to life like it shows you know he is the half-blood prince like he's he honestly in my opinion he deserved that defense against the dark arts <laughs> position <laughs> he's fucking good dude <laughs> he is great like mcgonagall is pretty badass and you can see there's a reason why she said we get we need some help against snape is basically what she was saying like they can't do it all themselves um so i just thought that was great i thought you hit the other ones you nailed them on the head i thought the full circle moments uh, jenny once again gets no respect even though she's a quidditch champion <laughs> just kind of throwing that out there <laughs> but uh and i did think it was cool mcgonagall i think this is one of the first times we i think it probably i think it is the first time we've actually seen her patronuses now where she conjured the cat patronuses down the hall so i thought that was really cool that so just to uh piggyback on that and i thought the big bat wing thing was cool i think in the movie is correct me if i'm wrong uh because it's been a minute since I've seen the movie, and I'm going to rewatch it before we do our differences. He, he turns into, like, a raven or something in the movie, right? I know it's a bat. 
that it's, in the book, but it's more like a shadow. It doesn't. He doesn't turn into any sort of animal. It's more like the whisper, whispering, whisping shadow, black shadow that kind of covers Electo and Amicus and jumps out the window. Um, gotcha. Yeah, so it doesn't actually turn into a real formed animal in the film. So okay, interesting. I I knew it wasn't a bat. That's why I just wanted yeah. to check. But uh, yeah, no. So I thought it was good. Everything else, uh, you had the nail on the head and. You know, who would have thought uh, Snape would have been on the run, man? And and here we go. And now we're this is it. We this is the highest point in the mountain right now. And Jay Nelly's going to take us through it. And brace yourself because uh, the brakes are off. We don't have any more brakes, and uh, we're falling off the tracks now. <laughs> There's no coming back. It's all you, Jay Nelly. Awesome. And just to like reiterate your point that you were talking about with the suit of armor where Snape threw it in front of the knives and they caught him. If you guys actually want to see that, that's literally the cover art of chapter 30. Of, uh, mm-hmm. Chapter 30, the sacking of Severus Snape, there's a suit of armor with like, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, like eight knives just into the chest of the suit of armor right there on the yeah. illustrated cover art of that chapter. So uh, great, great observation there. Uh, yeah, let's go ahead and get into chapter 31. This is Honestly, one of my favorite chapters, not just of the book, but the entire series. It's it's, it's about to go this down. It, I'm going to take a little sip this of water here before I jump worked. into this. Yeah, so this hard for. This is climax yeah, I mean, o'clock, baby. Before you get started, everyone let this sink in. This is what you've waited for, not just on the Harry Potter arc that premiered since October 25th uh, this year. Or, well, last year, really, of uh, 2020. Now we're in 2021. But even going to really 2019, when we started this show in season one, this episode, this moment right now, is what you've been waiting for. And take it away, Janelle. Sounds like a plan. We are in chapter 31, the Battle of Hogwarts. It's climax o'clock, baby. Let's go ahead and start this bad boy off. The enchanted ceiling of the Great Hall was dark and scattered with stars and below it, The four long house tables were lined with disheveled students, some in traveling cloaks, others in dressing gowns. Here and there shone the pearly white figures of school ghosts. Every eye, living and dead, was fixed upon Professor McGonagall, who was speaking from the raised platform at the top of the hall. Behind her stood the remaining teachers, including the Palomino Centaur Ferenz and the members of the Order of the Phoenix who had arrived to fight. Evacuation will be overseen by Mr. Filch and Madame Pomfrey. Prefix, when I give the word, you will organize your house and take your charges in an orderly fashion to the evacuation point. Many of the students looked petrified. However, as Harry skirted the wall, scanning the Gryffindor table for Ron and Hermione, Ernie Macmillan stood up at the Hufflepuff table and shouted, And what if we want to stay and fight? There was a smattering of applause. If you are of age... You may stay, said Professor McGonagall. What about our things? Called a girl at the Ravenclaw table. Our trunks, our owls. We have no time to collect possessions, said Professor McGonagall. The important thing is to get you out of here safely. Where's Professor Snape? shouted a girl from the Slytherin table. He has, to use the common phrase, done a bunk, replied Professor McGonagall. And a great cheer erupted from the Gryffindor, Hufflepuff, and Ravenclaws. Harry moved up the hall alongside the Gryffindor table, still looking for Ron and Hermione. As he passed, faces turned in his direction, and a great deal of whispering broke out in his wake. We have already placed protection around the castle, Professor McGonagall was saying, but it is unlikely to hold for very long unless we reinforce it. I must ask you, therefore, to move quickly and calmly, 
and do as your prefix, but her final words were drowned as a different voice echoed throughout the hall. It was high, cold, and clear. There was no telling from where it came. It seemed to issue from the walls themselves, like the monster it had once commanded. It might have lain dormant there for centuries. I know that you are preparing to fight. There were screams amongst the students, some of them who clutched each other, looking around in terror for the source of the sound. Your efforts are futile. You cannot fight me. I do not want to kill you. I have great respect for the teachers of Hogwarts. I do not want to spill magical blood. There was silence in the hall now, the kind of silence that presses against the eardrums that seems too huge to be contained by the walls. Give me Harry Potter, said Voldemort's voice, and none shall be harmed. Give me Harry Potter, and I shall leave the school untouched. Give me Harry Potter, and you will be rewarded. You have until midnight. The silence swallowed them all again. Every head turned. Every eye in the place seemed to have found Harry, to hold him frozen in the glare of thousands of invisible beams. Then a figure rose from the Slytherin table, and he recognized Pansy Parkinson as she raised a shaking arm and screamed, But he's there! Potter's there! Someone grab him! But before Harry could speak, there was a massive movement. The Gryffindors in front of him had risen and stood facing not Harry, but the Slytherins. Then the Hufflepuffs stood, and almost at the same moment, the Ravenclaws. All of them, with their backs to Harry. All of them, looking toward Pansy instead. And Harry, awestruck and overwhelmed, saw wands emerging from everywhere, pulled from beneath cloaks and from under sleeves. Thank you, Mrs. Parkinson, said Professor McGonagall in a clipped voice. You will leave the hall first, Mr. Filch, if the rest of your house could follow. Harry heard the grinding of benches and then the sound of the Slytherins trooping out on the other side of the hall. Ravenclaws, follow on, cried Professor McGonagall. Slowly, the four tables emptied. The Slytherin table was completely deserted, but a number of older Ravenclaws remained seated while their fellows filed out. Even more Hufflepuffs stayed behind, and half of the Gryffindor remained in their seats. Necessitating Professor McGonagall's descent from the teacher's platform to chivy with the underage on their way. Absolutely not, Creevy. Go! And you, Peeks! Harry hurried over to the Weasleys, all sitting together at the Gryffindor table. Where are Ron and Hermione? Haven't you found began Mr. Weasley looking worried, but he broke off as Kingsley had stepped forward on the raised platform to address those who had remained behind. We only got half an hour until midnight, so we need to act fast. A battle plan has been agreed between the teachers of Hogwarts and the Order of the Phoenix. Professors Flitwick, Sprout, and McGonagall are going to take groups of fighters up to the three highest towers, Ravenclaw, Astronomy, and Gryffindor, where they'll have a good overview, excellent positions from which to work spells. Meanwhile, Remus, he indicated Lupin, Arthur, he pointed toward Mr. Weasley sitting at the Gryffindor table, and I will take groups into the grounds. We'll need somebody to organize the defenses of the entrances of the passageways into the school. Sounds like a job for us, called Fred, indicating himself and George, and Kingsley nodded his approval. All right, leaders up here, and we'll divide up the troops. Potter, said Professor McGonagall, hurrying up to him as students flooded the platform, jostling for position, receiving instructions. Aren't you supposed to be looking for something? What? Uh, oh, said Harry. Oh, yeah. He had almost forgotten about the Horcrux, almost forgotten that the battle was being fought so that he could search for it. 
The inexplicable absence of Ron and Hermione had momentarily driven every other thought from his mind. Then go, Potter, go! Right, yeah. He sensed following him as he ran out of the Great Hall, eyes upon him, into the entrance hall still half crowded with evacuating students. He allowed himself to be swept up the marble staircase with them, but at the top he hurried off along a deserted corridor. Fear and panic were clouding his thought process. He tried to calm himself, to concentrate on finding the Horcrux, but his thoughts buzzed as frantically and fruitlessly as wasps trapped beneath the glass. Without Ron and Hermione to help him, he could not seem to marshal his ideas. He slowed down, coming to a halt halfway along an empty passage where he sat down upon a plinth of a departed statue and pulled out the Marauder's Map out of the pouch around his neck. He could not see Ron's or Hermione's names anywhere on it, though the density of the crowd of dots now making its way to the room of requirement might, he thought, be concealing them. He put the map away, pressed his hands over his face, and closed his eyes trying to concentrate. Voldemort thought I'd go to Ravenclaw Tower. There it was, a solid fact, the place to start. Voldemort had stationed Electo Caro in the Ravenclaw common room, and there could be only one explanation. Voldemort feared that Harry already knew his Horcrux was connected to that house. But the only object anyone seemed to associate with Ravenclaw was a lost diadem. And how could the Horcrux be the diadem? How was it possible that Voldemort, the Slytherin, had found the diadem that had eluded generations of Ravenclaws? Who could have told him where to look when nobody had seen the diadem in living memory? In living memory. Beneath his fingers, Harry's eyes flew open again. He leapt up from the plinth and tore back the way he had come, now in pursuit of his one last hope. The sound of hundreds of people marching towards the room requirement grew louder and louder as he returned to the marble stairs. Prefects were shouting instructions, trying to keep track of the students in their own houses. There was much pushing and shoving. Harry saw Zachariah Smith bowling over first years to get to the front of the queue. Here and there, younger students were in tears, while older ones called desperately for friends or siblings. Harry caught sight of a pearly white figure drifting across the entrance hall below, and he yelled as loudly as he could over the clamor, Nick! Nick! I need to talk to you! He forced his way back through the tide of students, finally reaching the bottom of the stairs where nearly headless Nick, ghost of Gryffindor Tower, stood waiting for him. Harry! My dear boy! Nick made to grasp Harry's hands with both of his own. Harry's felt as though they had been thrust into icy water. Nick, you've got to help me. Who's the ghost of Ravenclaw Tower? Nearly headless Nick looked surprised and a little offended. The Grey Lady, of course. But if it is ghostly services you require, it's got to be her. Do you know where she is? Let's see. Nick's head wobbled a little on his ruff as he turned hither and thither, peering over the heads of the swarming students. That's her over there, Harry. The young woman with the long hair. Harry looked in the direction of Nick's transparent pointing finger and saw a tall ghost who caught sight of Harry looking at her, raised her eyebrows, and drifted away through a solid wall. Harry ran after her. Once through the door of the corridor into which she had disappeared, he saw her at the very end of the passage, still gliding smoothly away from him. Hey, wait, come back. She consented to pause, floating a few inches from the ground. Harry supposed that she was beautiful, with her waist-length hair and floor-length cloak, but she also looked haughty and proud. Close to, he recognized as a ghost he had passed several times in the corridor, but to whom he had never spoken. You're the Grey Lady? She nodded, but did not speak. The ghost of Ravenclaw Tower? That is correct. Her tone was not encouraging. Please, I need some help. I need to know anything you can tell me about the lost diadem. 
A cold smile curved her lips. I am afraid, she said, turning to leave, that I cannot help you. Wait! He had not meant to shout, but anger and panic were threatening to overwhelm him. He glanced at his watch as she hovered in front of him. It was quarter to midnight. This is urgent, he said fiercely. If that diadem's at Hogwarts, I've got to find it fast. You are hardly the first student to covet the diadem, she said disdainfully. Generations of students have badgered me. But this isn't trying to get better marks, Harry shouted at her. It's about Voldemort. Defeating Voldemort. Or aren't you interested in that? She could not blush, but her transparent cheeks became more opaque, and her voice was heated as she replied, Of course, I. How dare you suggest? Well, help me then. Her composure was slipping. It, it is not a question of, she stammered, my mother's diadem. Your, your mother's? She looked angry with herself. When I lived, she said stiffly, I was Helena Ravenclaw. You're her daughter? But then you must know what happened to it. While the diadem bestows wisdom, she said with an obvious effort to pull herself together, I doubt that it would greatly increase your chances of defeating the wizard who calls himself Lord. Haven't I just told you? I'm not interested in wearing it, Harry said fiercely. There's no time to explain. If you care about Hogwarts, if you want to see Voldemort finished, you've got to tell me anything you know about the diadem. She remained quite still, floating in midair, staring down at him, and a sense of hopelessness engulfed Harry. Of course, if she had known anything, she would have told Flitwick or Dumbledore, who had surely asked her the same question. He had shaken his head and made to turn away when she spoke in a low voice. I stole the diadem from my mother. You, you did what? I stole the diadem, repeated Helena Ravenclaw in a whisper. I sought to make myself cleverer, more important than my mother. I ran away with it. He did not know how he managed to gain her confidence, and did not ask. He simply listened, hard, as she went on. My mother, they say, never admitted that the diadem was gone, but pretended that she had it still. She concealed her loss, my dreadful betrayal, even from the other founders of Hogwarts. Then my mother fell ill, fatally ill. In spite of my perfidy, she was desperate to see me one more time. She sent a man who had long loved me, though I spurned his advances, to find me. She knew that he would not rest until he had done so. Harry waited. She drew a deep breath and threw back her head. He tracked me to the forest where I was hiding. When I refused to return with him, he became violent. The Baron was always a hot-tempered man. Furious at my refusal, jealous of my freedom, he stabbed me. The Baron? You mean... The bloody baron, yes, said the gray lady, and she lifted aside the cloak she wore to reveal a single dark wound in her white chest. When he saw what he had done, he was overcome, he was overcome with remorse. He took the weapon that had claimed my life and used it to kill himself. All these centuries later, he wears his chains as an act of penitence, as he should, she added bitterly. And, and the diadem? It remained where I'd hidden it when I had heard the baron blundering through the forest toward me, concealed inside a hollow tree. A hollow tree, repeated Harry. What tree? Where was this? A forest in Albania. A lonely place I thought was far beyond my mother's reach. Albania, repeated Harry. Sense was emerging miraculously from his confusion, and now he understood why she was telling him what she had denied Dumbledore and Flitwick. You've already told someone this story, haven't you? another student. She closed her eyes and nodded. I had no idea. He was flattering. He seemed to, to understand. 
to sympathize. Yes, thought Harry, Tom Riddle would certainly have understood Helena's Ravenclaw desire to possess fabulous objects to which she had little right. Well, you weren't the first person Riddle wormed things out of, Harry muttered. He could be charming when he wanted. So Voldemort had managed to wheedle the location of the lost diadem out of the Grey Lady. He had traveled to that far-flung forest and retrieved the diadem from its hiding place, perhaps as soon as he had left Hogwarts, before he had even started working at Borgen and Burke's. And wouldn't those secluded Albanian woods have seemed an excellent refuge when, so much later, Voldemort had needed a place to lie low, undisturbed for ten long years? But the diadem, once it became his precious horcrux, had not been left in that lowly tree. No, the diadem had been returned secretly to its true home, and Voldemort must have put it there. The night he asked for a job, said Harry, finishing his thought. I beg your pardon? He hid the diadem in the castle the night he asked Dumbledore to let him teach, said Harry. Saying it out loud enabled him to make sense of it all. He must have hidden the diadem on his way up to or down from Dumbledore's office. But it was still worth trying to get the job. Then he might have gotten the chance to nick Gryffindor's sword. Well, thank you. Thanks. Harry left her floating there, looking utterly bewildered. As he rounded the corner back into the entrance hall, he checked his watch. It was five minutes until midnight, and though he now knew what the last Horcrux was, he was no closer to discovering where it was. Generations of students had failed to find the diadem that suggested that it was not in Ravenclaw Tower, but if not there, where? What hiding place had Tom Riddle discovered inside Hogwarts Castle that he believed would remain secret forever? Lost in his desperate speculation, Harry turned a corner, but he had taken only a few steps down the new corridor when the window to his left broke open with a deafening, shattering crash. As he left the side, a gigantic body flew in through the window and hit the opposite wall. Something large and furry detached itself whimpering from the new arrival and flung itself at Harry. Hagrid! Harry bellowed, fighting off Fang, the boarhound's attentions, as the enormous bearded figure clambered to his feet. What the? Harry! You're here! You're here! Hagrid stooped down, bestowed upon Harry a cursory and rib-cracking hug, then ran back to the shattered window. Good boy, Grumpy! He bellowed through the hole in the window. I'll see you in a moment! That's a good lad! Beyond Hagrid, out in the dark night, Harry saw bursts of light in the distance and heard a weird, keening scream. He looked down at his watch. It was midnight. The battle had begun. Blimey, Harry, panted Hagrid. This is it, eh? Time to fight. Hagrid, where have you come from? Heard you know who from up in our cave, said Hagrid gr grimly. Voice carried, didn't it? You got until midnight to give me Potter. Knew you must be here. Knew it must be happening. Get down, Fang. Uh, so we came to join in. Me and Groppy and Fang smashed our way through the boundary by the forest. Groppy was carrying us, Fang and me. Told him to let me down at the castle, so he shoved me through a window, bless him. Not exactly what I meant, but, uh... Where's Ron and Hermione? That, said Harry, is a really good question. Come on. They hurried together along the corridor, Fang lolloping beside them. Harry could hear movement through the corridors all around, running footsteps, shouts through windows. He could see more flashes of light in the dark grounds. Where are we going? Puffed Hagrid, pounding along at Harry's heels, making the floorboards quake. I don't know exactly, said Harry, making another random turn. But Ron and Hermione must be around here somewhere. The first casualties of the battle were already strewn across the passage ahead. Two stone gargoyles that usually guarded the entrance to the staff room had been smashed apart by a jinx that had sailed through one of the broken windows. 
They remained stirred feebly on the floor. And as Harry leapt over one of their disembodied heads, it moaned faintly, Oh, don't mind me. I'll just lie here and crumble. Its ugly stone face made Harry think suddenly of the marble busts of Rowena Wavenclaw at Xenophilius' house, wearing that mad headdress, and then of the statue of Ravenclaw Tower with the stone diadem upon her white curls. And as they reached the end of the passage, the memory of a third stone effigy came back to him, that of an ugly old warlock onto whose head Harry himself had placed a wig and a battered old tiara. The shock shot through Harry with the heat of fire whiskey, and he nearly stumbled. He knew at last where the Horcrux sat waiting for him. Tom Riddle, who confided in no one and operated alone, might have been arrogant enough to assume that he, and only he, had penetrated the deepest mysteries of Hogwarts Castle. Of course, Dumbledore and Flitwick, those model pupils, had never set foot in that particular place, but he, Harry, had strayed off the beaten track in his time at school. Here at last was a secret he and Voldemort knew that Dumbledore had never discovered. He was roused by Professor Sprout, who was thundering past, followed by Neville and a half a dozen others, all of them wearing earmuffs and carrying what appeared to be large potted plants. Mandrakes, Neville bellowed at Harry over his shoulder as he ran, going to lob them over the walls. They won't like this. Harry now knew where to go. He sped off with Hagrid and Fang galloping behind him. They passed portrait after portrait, and painted figures raced alongside them. Wizards and witches in ruffs and breeches and armors and cloaks cramming themselves into each other's canvases, screaming news from other parts of the castle. As they reached this end of the corridor, the whole castle shook, and Harry knew, as a gigantic vase blew off its plinth with explosive force, that it was in the grip of enchantments more sinister than those of the teacher and the order. It's all right, Fang, it's all right, yelled Hagrid, but the great Borohound had taken flight as slivers of china flew like shrapnel through the air, and Hagrid bounded off after the terrified dog, leaving Harry alone. He forged on through the trembling passages, his wand at the ready, and for the length of one corridor, the little painted knight, Sir Cadogan, rushed from his painting to painting beside him, clanking along in his armor, screaming encouragement, his fat little pony cantering behind him. Braggarts and rogues, dogs and scoundrels, drive them out, Harry Potter! See them off! Harry hurled around the corner and found Fred and a small knot of students, including Lee Jordan and Hannah Abbott, standing beside another empty plinth whose statue had concealed the secret passageway. Their wands were drawn and they were listening at the concealed hole. Nice night for it, Fred shouted as the castle quaked again, and Harry sprinted by, elated and terrified in equal measure. Along yet another corridor he dashed, and then there were owls everywhere and Mrs. Norris was hissing and trying to bat them with her paws, no doubt to return them to their proper place. Potter! Aberforth Dumbledore stood blocking the corridor ahead, his wand held ready. I've had hundreds of kids running through my pub, Potter. I know, we're evacuating, said Harry. Voldemort's attacking because they haven't handed you over yet. Yeah, said Aberforth. I'm not deaf. The whole of Hogsmeade heard him. And it never occurred to you to keep a few Slytherins hostage? They're kids of Death Eaters you've just sent to safety. Wouldn't have been a bit smarter to keep them here? It wouldn't stop Voldemort, said Harry, and your brother would never have done it. Aberforth grunted and tore away in the opposite direction. Your brother would have never done it. Well, it was the truth, Harry thought as he ran on again. Dumbledore, who defended Snape for so long, would never have held students' ransom. And then he skidded around a final corner, and with a yell of mingled relief and fury, he saw them. Ron and Hermione 
both with their arms full of large, curved, dirty yellow objects, Ron with a broomstick under his arm. Where the hell have you been? shouted Harry. Chamber of Secrets, said Ron. Chamber what? said Harry, coming to an unsteady halt before them. It was Ron. All Ron's idea, said Hermione breathlessly. Wasn't it absolutely brilliant? There we were after you left. And I said to Ron, even if we do find the other one, how are we going to get rid of it? We still hadn't gotten rid of the cup. And then he thought of it. The basilisk. What the? Something to get rid of horcruxes, said Ron simply. Harry's eyes dropped to the objects clutched in Ron and Hermione's arms. Great curved fangs, torn, he now realized, from the skull of a dead basilisk. But how did you get in there, he asked, staring from the fangs to Ron. You need to speak parcel tongue. He did, whispered Hermione. Show him, Ron. Ron made a horrible, strangled, hissing noise. It's what you did to open the locket, he told Harry apologetically. I had to have a few goes to get it right, but, he shrugged modestly, we got there in the end. He was amazing, said Hermione. Amazing! So, Harry was struggling to keep up. So, so we're another horcrux down, said Ron, and from under his jacket he pulled the mangled remains of Hufflepuff's cup. Hermione stabbed it, thought she should. She hasn't had the pleasure yet. Genius, yelled Harry. It was nothing, said Ron, though he looked delighted with himself. So what's new with you? And as he said it, there was an explosion from overhead. All three of them looked up as dust fell from the ceiling and they heard a distant scream. I know what the diadem looks like and I know where it is, said Harry, talking fast. He hid it exactly where I hid my old potions book, where everyone's been hiding stuff for centuries. He thought he was the only one to find it. Come on. As the walls trembled again, he led, two, he led the other two back through the concealed entrance and down the staircase into the room of requirement. It was empty except for three women. Ginny, Tonks, and an elderly witch wearing a moth-eaten hat whom Harry recognized immediately as Neville's grandmother. Ah, Potter, she said crisply as if she'd been waiting for him. You can tell us what's going on. Is everyone okay? said Ginny and Tonks together. As far as we know, said Harry. Are there still people in the passage to the hogshead? He knew that the room would not be able to transform while there were still users inside it. I was the last to come through, said Mrs. Longbottom. I sealed it. I think it unwise to leave it open now Aberforth has left his pub. Have you seen my grandson? He's fighting, said Harry. Naturally, said the old lady proudly. Excuse me, I must go and assist him. With surprising speed, she trotted up off towards the stone steps. Harry looked at Tonks. I thought you were supposed to be with Teddy at your mother's. I couldn't stand not knowing, Tonks looked anguished. She looked after him. Have you seen Remus? He was planning to lead a group of fighters into the grounds. Without another word, Tonks sped off. Ginny, said Harry, I'm sorry, but we need you to leave too. Just for a bit, then you can come back in. Ginny looked simply delighted to leave her sanctuary. And then you can come back in, he shouted after her as she ran up the steps after Tonks. You've got to come back in! Hang on a moment, said Ron sharply. We've forgotten someone. Who? asked Hermione. The house elves. They'll all be down in the kitchen, won't they? You mean we ought to get them fighting? asked Harry. No, said Ron seriously. I mean, we should tell them to get out. We don't want any more Dobbies, do we? We can't order them to die for us. There was a clatter as the basilisk fangs cascaded out of Hermione's arms. Running at Ron, she flung them around his neck and kissed him full on the mouth. Ron threw away the fangs and broomsticks he was holding and responded with such enthusiasm that he lifted Hermione off her feet. 
Is this the moment? Harry asked weakly, and when nothing happened except that Ron and Hermione gripped each other still more firmly and swayed on the spot, he raised his voice, Oi! There's a war going on here! <laughs> Ron and Hermione broke apart, their arms still around each other. I know, mate, said Ron, who looked as though he had recently been hit on the back of the head with a bludger. So it's now or never, isn't it? Never mind that. What about the Horcrux? Harry shouted. Do you think you could just just hold it in till we've got the diadem? Yeah, right, sorry, said Ron, and he and Hermione set about gathering up fangs, both pink in the face. It was clear, as the three of them stepped back into the corridor upstairs, that in the minutes they had spent in the room of requirement, the situation within the castle had deteriorated severely. The walls and ceiling were shaking worse than ever. Dust filled the air, and through the nearest window, Harry saw bursts of green and red light so close to the foot of the castle that he knew the Death Eaters must be very near to entering the place. Looking down, Harry saw Grop the giant meandering past, swinging what looked like a stone gargoyle torn from the roof and roaring his displeasure. Let's hope he steps on some of them, said Ron as more screams echoed from close by. As long as it's not any of our lot, said a voice, Harry turned and saw Ginny and Tonks both with their wands drawn at the next window, which was missing several panes. Even as he watched, Ginny sent a well-aimed jinx into a crowd of fighters below. Good girl, roared a figure running through the dust toward them and Harry saw Aberforth again, his gray hair flying as he led a small group of students past. They look like they might be breaching the northern battlements. They've bought giants of their own. Have you seen Remus? Tonks called after him. He was doing Dolohov, shouted Aberforth. I haven't seen him since. Tonks, said Ginny. Tonks, I'm sure he's okay. But Tonks had run off into the dust after Aberforth. Ginny turned helpless to Harry, Ron, and Hermione. They'll be all right, said Harry, though he knew they were empty words. Ginny, we'll be back in a moment. Just keep out of the way. Keep safe. Come on, he said to Ron and Hermione, and they ran back to the stretch of wall beyond which the room of requirement was waiting to do the bidding of the next entrant. I need the place where everything is hidden. Harry begged of it inside his head, and the door materialized on the third run past. The fur of the battle died the moment they crossed the threshold and closed the door behind them. All was silent. There was in a place of the size of a cathedral... With the appearance of a city, its towering walls built of objects hidden by thousands of long-gone students. He never realized anyone could get in, said Ron, his voice echoing in the silence. He thought he was the only one, said Harry. Too bad for him. I've had to hide stuff in my time. This way, he added. I think it's down here. He passed the stuffed troll and the vanishing cabinet Draco Malfoy had mended last year with such disastrous consequences. Then hesitated, looking up and down the aisles with junk, he could not remember where to go next. Accio diadem, cried Hermione in desperation, but nothing flew through the air toward them. It seemed that, like the vaulted Gringotts, the room would not yield its hidden objects that easily. Let's split up, Harry told the other two. Look for a stone bust of an old man wearing a wig and a tiara. It was standing on a cupboard, and it's definitely somewhere near here. They sped off in adjacent aisles. Harry could hear the other's footsteps echoing around the towers of piling junk of bottles, hats, crates, chairs, books, weapons, broomsticks, bats. Somewhere near here, Harry muttered to himself. Somewhere. Somewhere. Deeper and deeper into the labyrinth he went, looking for objects he recognized from one of his previous trips into the room. His breath was loud in his ear, and then his very soul seemed to shiver. There it was, right ahead the blistered old cupboard in which he had hidden his old potions book, and on top of it, the pockmarked stone warlock wearing a dusty old wig 
and what looked like an ancient, discolored tiara. He had already stretched out his hand, though when he remained ten feet away, a voice behind him said, Hold it, Potter. He skidded to a halt and turned around. Crab and Goyle were standing behind him, shoulder to shoulder, wands pointed right at Harry, and through the small space between their jeering faces, he saw Draco Malfoy. That's my wand you're holding, Potter, said Malfoy, pointing his own through the gap between Crab and Goyle. Not anymore, panted Harry, tightening his grip on the Hawthorne wand. Winter's keepers, Malfoy. Who's lent you theirs? My mother, said Draco. Harry laughed, though there was nothing very humorous about the situation. He could not hear Ron or Hermione anymore. They seemed to have run out of earshot, searching for the diadem. So how come you three aren't with Voldemort? asked Harry. We're going to be rewarded, said Crabbe. His voice was surprisingly soft for such an enormous person. Harry had hardly ever heard him speak before. Crabbe was smiling like a small child promised a large bag of sweets. We hung back, Potter. We decided not to go. Decided to bring you to him. Good plan, said Harry in mock admiration. He could not believe that he was this close and he was going to be thwarted by Malfoy, Crabbe, and Goyle. He began edging slowly backwards towards the place where the Horcrux sat lapsided on the bust. If he could just get his hands on it before the fight broke out. So how did you get in here? He asked, trying to distract them. I virtually lived in the room of hidden things all last year, said Malfoy, his voice brittle. I know how to get in. He was hiding the corridors outside, grunted Goyle. We can do disillusion charms now. And then, his face split into a gormless grin, you turned up right in front of us and said you were looking for a didum. What's a didum? Harry! Ron's voice echoed suddenly from the other side of the wall to Harry's right. Are you talking to someone? With a whip-like movement, Crab pointed his wand at the 50-foot mountain of old furniture, of broken trunks, of old books, and robes, and undefinable junk, and shouted, Descendo! The wall began to totter, and then the top third crumbled on the aisle next to where Ron stood. Ron! Harry bellowed, as somewhere out of sight Hermione screamed and Harry heard an innumerable objects crashing to the floor on the other side of the destabilized wall. He pointed his wand at the rampart and cried, Finite! And it steadied. No! shouted Malfoy, staying Crab's arm as a ladder made to repeat his spell. If you wreck the room, you might bury this diadem thing. What's the matter? said Crab, tugging himself free. It's Potter the Dark Lord wants. Who cares about a diadem? Potter came in here to get it said Malfoy with ill-disguised impatience at the slow-wittedness of his colleagues. So that must mean... Must mean... Crab turned on Malfoy with his undisguised ferocity. Who cares what you think? We don't take your orders no more. Draco, you and your dad are finished. Harry! shouted Ron again from the other side of the junk wall. What's going on? Harry! mimicked Crab. What's going on? No! Potter! Crucio! Harry had lunged for the tiara. Crab's curse had missed him, but it hit the stone bust which flew into the air and the diadem soared upward and dropped out of sight in the mass of objects on which the bust had rested. Stop! Malfoy shouted at Crab, his voice echoing through the enormous room. The Dark Lord wants him alive! So? I'm not killing him, am I? Yelled Crab, throwing off Malfoy's restraining arm. But if I can, I will. The Dark Lord wants him dead anyways. What's the dip? A jet of scarlet light shot past Harry, 
by inches. Hermione had run around the corner behind him and sent a stunning spell straight at Crab's head. It only missed because Malfoy pulled him out of the way. It's that mudblood! Avada Kedavra! Harry saw Hermione dive aside, and his fury that Crab had aimed to kill wiped everything else from his mind. He shot a stunning spell at Crab, who lurched out of the way, knocking Malfoy's wand out of his hand and it rolled out of sight beneath a mountain of broken furniture and boxes. Don't kill him! Don't kill him! Malfoy yelled at Crab and Goyle, who were both aiming at Harry. Their split-seconds hesitation was all Harry needed. Expelliarmus! Goyle's wand flew out of his hand and disappeared into the bulwark of objects beside him. Goyle leapt foolishly on the spot, trying to retrieve it. Malfoy jumped out of range as Hermione's second stunning spell, and Ron, appearing suddenly at the end of the aisle, shot a full body-bind curse at Crab, which narrowly missed. Crab wheeled around and screamed, Avada Kedavra again! Ron leapt out of sight to avoid the jet of green light. The wandless Malfoy cowered behind a three-legged wardrobe as Hermione charged toward them, hitting Goyle with a stunning spell as he came. It's somewhere here, Harry yelled at her, pointing at the pile of junk in which the old tiara had fallen. Look for it while I go help her. Harry! She screamed. A roaring, billowing noise behind him gave him a moment's warning. He turned and saw both Ron and Crab running as hard as they could up the aisle toward them. Like it, hot scum, roared Crab as he ran. But he seemed to have no control over what he had done. Flames of abnormal size were pursuing them, licking up the sides of the junk bulwarks which were crumbling to suit at their touch. Aguamenti, Harry bawled, but the jet of water that soared from the tip of his wand evaporated in air. Run! Malfoy grabbed the stunned Goyle and dragged him along. Crab outstripped all of them, now looking terrified. Harry, Ron, and Hermione pelted along in his wake, and the fire pursued them. It was not normal fire. Crab had used a curse of which Harry had no knowledge. As they turned a corner, the flames chased them as though they were alive, sentient, intent upon killing them. Now the fire was mutating, forming a gigantic pack of fiery beasts. Flaming serpents, chimeras, and dragons rose and fell and rose again, and the detritus of centuries on which they were feeding was thrown up in the air into their fanged mouths, tossed high on clawed feet before being consumed by the inferno. Malfoy, Crab, and Goyle had vanished from view. Harry, Ron, and Hermione stopped dead. The fiery monsters were encircling them, drawing closer and closer. Claws and horns and tails lashed. The heat was as solid as a wall around them. What can we do? Hermione screamed over the deafening rows of the fire. What can we do? Here. Harry seizes a pair of heavy-looking broomsticks from the nearest pile drunk, threw under Ron, who pulled Hermione onto it behind him. Harry swung his legs over the second broom, and with hard kicks to the ground, they soared up in the air, missing by feet the horned beak of a flaming raptor that snapped its jaws at them. The smoke and heat were becoming overwhelming. Below them, the cursed fire was consuming the contraband of generations of hunted students, the guilty outcomes of thousands of banned experiments, the secrets of the countless souls who had sought refuge in this room. Harry could not see a trace of Malfoy, Crab, or Goyle anywhere. He swooped as low as he dared over the marauding monsters of flame to try and find them, but there was nothing but fire. What a terrible way to die. He had never wanted this. Harry, let's get out, let's get out, bellowed Ron, though it was impossible to see where the door was through the black smoke. And then Harry heard a thin, piteous human scream amidst the terrible commotion, the thunder of devouring flame. It's too dangerous, Ron yelled, but Harry wheeled in the air, his glasses giving his eyes some small protection from the smoke. He raked the firestorm below, seeking a sign of life, a limb, or a face that was not charred like wood. And then he saw them. 
Malfoy, with his arms around the unconscious Goyle, the pair of them perched on a fragile tower of charred desks, and Harry dived. Malfoy saw him coming and raised one arm, but even as Harry grasped it, he knew at once it was no good. Goyle was too heavy, and Malfoy's hand, covered in sweat, slid instantly out of Harry's. If we die for them, I'll kill you, Harry, roared Ron's voice, and as a great flaming chimera bore down upon them, he and Hermione dragged Goyle onto their broom and rose, rolling and pitching in the air once more as Malfoy clambered up behind Harry. The door! Get to the door! The door! screamed Malfoy in Harry's ear, and Harry sped up, following Ron and Hermione and Goyle through the billowing black smoke, hardly able to breathe, and all around them the last few objects, unburned by the devouring flames, were flung into the air as the creatures of the cursed fire cast them high in celebration, cups and shields, a sparkling necklace, and an odd, old, discolored tiara. What are you doing? What are you doing? The door's that way, screamed Malfoy, but Harry made a hairpin swerve and dived. The diadem seemed to fall in slow motion, turning and glittering as it dropped toward the maw of a yawning serpent, and then he had it, caught it around the wrist. Harry swerved again as the serpent lunged at him. He soared upwards and straight toward the place where he prayed the door stood open. Ron, Hermione, and Goyle had vanished. Malfoy was screaming and holding Harry so tightly it hurt. Then, through the smoke, Harry saw a rectangular patch on the wall and steered the broom at it, and moments later, clean air filled his lungs and collided with the wall in the corridor beyond. Malfoy fell off the broom and lay face down, gasping, coughing, and retching. Harry rolled over and sat up. The door to the room of requirement had vanished, and Ron and Hermione sat panting on the floor beside Goyle, who was still unconscious. Crab! choked Malfoy as soon as he could speak. Crab! He's dead, said Ron harshly. There was silence, apart from panting and coughing. Then a number of huge bangs shook the castle, and the great cavalcade of transparent figures galloped past on horses, their heads screaming with bloodlust under their arms. Harry staggered to his feet when the headless hunt had passed them, and he looked around. The battle was still going on all around him. He could hear more screams than those of the retreating ghosts. Panic flared within him. Where's Ginny, he said sharply. She was here. She was supposed to go back into the room of requirement. Blimey, do you reckon it'll still work after that fire? Asked Ron. But he got to his feet, rubbing his chest and looked left and right. Shall we split up and look? No, said Hermione, getting to her feet too. Malfoy and Goyle remained slumped hopelessly on the corridor floor. Neither of them had wands. Let's stick together. I say we go. Harry, what's that on your arm? What? Oh yeah. He pulled the diadem from his wrist and held it up. It was still hot, blackened with soot. But, as he looked at it closely, he was just able to make out the tiny words etched upon it. Whip beyond measure is man's greatest treasure. A blood-like substance, dark and tarry, seemed to be leaking from the diadem. Suddenly, Harry felt the thing vibrate violently, then break apart in his hand, and as it did so, he thought he heard the faintest, most distant scream of pain, echoing not from the grounds or the castle, but from the thing that had just fragmented in his fingers. It must have been fiend fire, whimpered Hermione, her eyes on the broken pieces. Sorry? Fiend fire, cursed fire. It's one of those substances that destroy horcruxes, but I would never, ever have dared to use it. It's so dangerous. How did Crab know how to? He must have learned from the Karos, said Harry grimly. Shame he wasn't concentrating when he mentioned how to stop it, really, said Ron, whose hair, like Hermione's, was singed and whose face was blackened. If he hadn't tried to kill us all, I'd be quite sorry he was dead. But don't you realize, whispered Hermione, this means if we can just get the snake. But she broke off as yells and shouts and the unmistakable noises of dueling filled the corridor. 
Harry looked around, and his heart seemed to fail. Death Eaters had penetrated Hogwarts. Fred and Percy had just backed into view, both of them doing masked and hooded men. Harry, Ron, and Hermione ran forward to help. Jets of light flew in every direction, and the man dueling Percy backed off fast. Then his hood slipped, and they saw a high forehead and streaked hair. Hello, minister, bellowed Percy, sending a neat jinx straight at Thickness, who dropped his wand and clawed at the front of his robes, apparently in awful discomfort. Did I mention I'm resigning? You're joking, Purse, shouted Fred, as a Death Eater he was battling collapsed under the weight of the three separate stunning spells. Thickness had fallen to the ground with tiny spikes erupting all over him. He seemed to be turning into some form of sea urchin. Fred looked at Percy with glee. You actually are joking, Purse. I don't think I've ever heard you joke since you were... The air exploded. They had been grouped together. Harry, Ron, and Hermione, Fred and Percy, the two Death Eaters at their feet. One stunned, the other transfigured, and in that fragment of a moment, when danger seemed temporarily at bay, the world was rent apart. Harry felt himself flying through the air, and all he could do was hold as tightly as possible to that thin stick of wood that was his one and only weapon, and shield his head in his arms. He heard the screams and yells of his companions without a hope of knowing what had happened to them. And then the world resolved itself into pain and semi-darkness. He was buried in the wreckage of a corridor that had been subjected to a terrible attack. Cold air told him that the side of the castle had been blown away. And hot stickiness on his cheek told him that he was bleeding copiously. Then he heard a terrible cry that pulled at his insides. That expressed agony of a kind neither flame nor curse could cause. And he stood up swaying more frightened than he had been that day. More frightened, perhaps, than he had been in his entire life. And Hermione was struggling to her feet in the wreckage. And three red-headed men were grouped on the ground where the wall had blasted apart. Harry grabbed Hermione's hand as they staggered and stumbled over stone and wood. No! 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 Someone was shouting, No! Fred! No! And Percy was shaking his brother, and Ron was kneeling beside them, and Fred's eyes stared without seeing, the ghost of his last laugh still etched upon his face. And that is chapter 31, The Battle of Hogwarts. I know that was a long one, so Chase, take us away with some of your takeaways, and I'll do mine, and we'll keep this battle running. Yeah, let's go ahead and raise our wands for a minute and just have a moment of silence here for for the fallen here. Uh, one of our favorites, definitely one of your favorites, uh, for Fred Weasley. Okay, yeah, let's get it, uh, get it going for these takeaways. What an action-packed chapter. Like, this was definitely the climax of the book, in my opinion. <laughs> When you want to say takeaway is basically like every line of this chapter is pretty much a takeaway, but I'll run through them as quick as I can for you for what I have. So the first one I thought was pretty impactful was, uh, you know, you have all the teachers, including the ghost, even Ferenz is mentioned, all of them were in the Great Hall on page 608. 
Um, even Ernie McMillan, uh, props to him. He stood up at the Hufflepuff table and said we should stay and fight. And then that's when McGonagall said, if you're of age, you can stay. Uh, and then if, I thought this was impactful when they said, where's Professor Snape? And she said he has uh, to use the common phrase, done a bunk. <laughs> so I thought that was pretty <laughs> awesome of McGonagall there. Even though it's against my boy, I give her props. <laughs> I got to give her props on that. Um, the next one, so uh, um, the big part of Voldemort saying, give me Harry Potter uh, and none shall be harmed. Give me Harry Potter and I shall leave the school untouched. Give me Harry Potter and you will be rewarded. You have until midnight. So now we know it's a crunch time. Not only undesirable, number one, but now Voldemort's using his sinister ways to even turn the students on Harry at this point. And Pansy Parkinson, you know, she stands up and it's like, but he's here. Potter's there. Someone grab him. And uh, Professor McGonagall, uh, good for her, standing up for Harry. And, uh, you know, she tells him, you'll be the first to leave along with the rest of your house that can follow. Uh, and Kingsley said there's a battle plan that's been agreed upon at Hogwarts in the Order of the Phoenix. So Professor Flitwick, Sprout, and McGonagall are going to be taking the groups of fighters up to the three towers. So Ravenclaw, Astronomy, and Gryffindor. Uh, meanwhile, uh, Remus and Arthur will take groups to the grounds, and then uh, they'll have the organized defense of the entrances on the passageways that they needed. And that's when Fred said, uh, sounds like a job for us, indicating himself and George and Kingsley um, not in approval, and that's on page 611. Um, You're just going to read back what I already read? <laughs> I'm just not notating that so they can see the <laughs> battle plan, almost like Game of Thrones, most definitely. Anyways, um, so uh, as far as here, here's kind of a, a big moment here is they didn't know where Ron and Hermione were, and then someone had mentioned the bathroom. Um, Voldemort, of course, uh, uh, here's... Uh, I thought this was kind of like a uh, just a interesting fact here it's that in loving memory on page 613 at the top and of course nick uh this is when the ghost nick became involved when he's searching for the diet in living memory that's where he figured it out it wasn't loving memory it was in a living memory and that's in where he living thought to memory use the ghost. my bad yeah make Correct. sure i read my notes there in living memory page 16 13 at the top um but uh, that's when, remember, he was asking Nick, uh, Nick, who's the ghost of Ravenclaw Tower, and he points out, you know, this is the person and you find out that's actually Rowena Ravenclaw. So that was a big moment there. Uh, um, Rowena Ravenclaw's daughter, Helena Ravenclaw. She wasn't Rowena Ravenclaw. Helena, Ravenclaw. Helena Ravenclaw. Yeah, sorry, Helena Ravenclaw. Um, and then you learn the story of uh, the Baroness and the diadem and how she stole it. And, you know, brought her mom torture, and she kind of brought shame on her house, really. Um, and then uh, past that point, so just, yeah, Helena Ravenclaw, you're right there. But uh, this kind of jumps a big portion here, but... Um, and then this is when you find out that she's actually told the story already to another student, which, of course, we could have pretty much predicted was Tom Riddle. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then at this point, I did have a big impact moment here was uh, as when as the gigantic body like flew through the window and hit the opposite side of the wall. This is kind of when that momentum of the battle starts really picking up. Uh, and then you have that kind of full circle moment with Hagrid and Grop 
at the moment when Groppy like shows up um, and they kind of disappear off into into the night and then you have the first casualties of the battles that were strewn across the passage ahead um, near the two stone gargoyles uh, that usually grounded the entrance of the staff room so you kind of have that full circle moment there on page 619 um, and then at this moment here you have hundreds of kids that were kind of like thundering through the public trying to get Harry's attention um, as he's kind of uh, taken off there and um, it, it, it says on page 622 uh, it, it's 622 remember Aberforth was talking to Harry and saying like why didn't you take some of them hostage and that was a big moment and he kind of shows his stuff back at Aberforth and says like your brother would have never done that and it shows how Aberforth really kind of I guess he's kind of one of those people like does whatever it takes to win <laughs> like doesn't really care <laughs> like we'll do whatever it takes um from there uh of course like this is when they see Ron and Hermione with the basilisk um the basilisk uh, teeth and it was all Ron's idea. So he finally did something good for the group again. So Ron's like kind of on a roll here. And uh, they said they'd been at the Chamber of Secrets. So you find out that's where this whole thing about the bathroom was. Um, and they figured out how to get rid of the goblet. So now at this point, you're down another Horcrux. So we're just taking it off one by one. And you have another full circle moment here because Harry asked, how did you even get it open? The bathroom. And he learned how to speak Postle Tongue. He just practiced from Harry from when he opened up the locket. So that's a huge full circle moment there, something you usually don't even think about. And then so at this point, think about it. You've already destroyed the locket, the diary, the ring, and the goblet. So all that's left, we have th two left that we know of, right? We have two left, the diadem and Nagini. And um, then so now from this point, the next impact moment I had was... Of course, Harry sees Neville's grandmother in Tonks. I thought that was kind of uh, a little bit of a full circle moment there. Um, and Harry tells Jenny to leave the uh, <laughs> leave the room, and he's like, "Come back!" Like, no, you have to have to come back here. But she rushes on off, and then here's that big moment we've all been waiting for. Finally, Ron doesn't dig any more holes. And uh, what a full circle moment this is, going all the way back to Spew, man. Ron says, the house elves, <laughs> they'll be down in the kitchen, won't they? You mean we ought to get them fighting here? He said, no, said Ron, seriously. I mean, we should tell them to get out. We don't want any more Dobbies. And that's when it really impacted Hermione uh, because of the cause there. And I think this is the moment where she realized Ron has finally matured. And of course, she, you know, dropped the basilisk fangs, throws her arms around Ron, and kisses him right on the mouth. And of course, Harry's like, "We're in the middle of this war, like, <laughs> like really now?" But uh, so I thought it was an excellent moment there, finally. Um, and then at this moment here, so uh, that's when uh, you know it says, you know, Voldemort has giants on his own. And they've uh, taken the North Battlements. So that was kind of a big moment. Remember, we were talking about a uh, full circle moment going even back to Half-Blood Prince where they were saying there was hurricanes and Voldemort has made alliances with giants. And remember, Hagrid had gone out there to try to make alliances with giants, but it didn't work. And uh, then the next impact moment I have here is... Uh, so 
um it, remember he remembers where it is he says there it is right ahead uh and then it was in the cupboard where he hid his old potions book so he goes back and then of course it wouldn't be a harry potter story without these three screwing up screwing up the plan you have crab goyle and draco always coming out of nowhere at the worst possible time and then of course um it's really full circle there because i you know you always you can't end a harry potter story without that kind of trifecta duel without you know six the three on three we got our basketball squads going back and forth and uh, this kind of brings up to something i'm gonna talk about later but freaking crab casting fiend fire one how the hell is he even smart enough to do that because we've talked about that on interesting facts and voldemort's casted it before but it takes a very smart wizard to do that and he can't even pronounce diadem correctly (laughs) so just kind of throwing that out there but whatever i'll buy it (laughs) but you know it goes out of control uh harry's about to lose the diadem and then the full circle moment they hop on brooms like what a kind of full circle moment there almost like quidditch like that's how they're gonna escape and then of course you have uh that moment when they get out like kind of an unfortunate moment like a sad moment not as impactful i guess because but he has been there from the beginning but he's kind of an ass but of course you know crab's dead um but he's really his own downfall because he casted uh fiend fire and they thought he was unconscious but no he's dead and um uh and and another thing about this fight too is of course crab kept casting like crucio apparently like unforgivable curses are just the thing to do now like unforgivable curses are just like legal everywhere i guess <laughs> like no one gives a fuck anymore <laughs> like now that we're at the end who cares they're all gonna die anyways right so it just throwing that out there uh so then at that point uh i do have that of course really this next big moment is you know the diadem you find out that the fiend fire uh is is something that kills horcruxes and the diadem's bleeding and the diadem breaks in harry's harry's hands and and then you have that probably to me and i'm you know to me and he's definitely more impactful to you but definitely someone that's been there for us for the beginning one of the good old boys uh definitely probably the funniest character (laughs) one of the funniest there's two of them in the entire book uh the castle gets hit and crumbles and and percy was there dueling with fred and you just hear those agonizing screams of and percy trying to just say no 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 fred no and then it even describes him as the typical fred almost like a uh, a smile on his face as he's gone and and we've seen the last of fred uh so wands up in the air for fred um definitely an impactful moment there that will always resonate with us and those are my impact moments what about you man yeah i got quite a few of them i can just run through them real quick just to kind of bullet pointed things you know mcgonagall addresses a school about the preparations and evacuations like you mentioned, Voldemort calls from the turnover of Harry. They've got to midnight. Pansy Parkinson tries to tell Great Hall to turn in on Harry and grab him. And all the other students surround the Slytherins. I thought that was badass. They're like, you ain't getting to Harry without getting through us. So that was really cool. Yeah, the battle plans have been set. And Kingsley gives out the instructions. 
We learn that the ghost of Ravenclaw Tower is Helena Ravenclaw, Ravenna Ravenclaw's daughter. We learn that the Bloody Baron killed Helena Ravenclaw and then killed himself. We learn that Helena put the diadem in a hollow tree in Albania and told Voldemort about it. Harry pieces together that Voldemort returned the diadem to Hogwarts the night he asked Dumbledore for a, the defense against the Dark Arts job. And then that big guy smashed into the wall, the giant form smashed into the wall with a dog. That's Hagrid. Hagrid arrives. And, and then and like the next one I got right there is really that's when the battle sort of begins. Got that cool full circle moment from Half-Blood Prince where Harry remembers when he hid his potions book and put a wig on a warlock bust with a tear on top. So that was a full circle from Half-Blood Prince there. We get a full circle from Chamber of Secrets because Professor Sprout, Neville, and others are going to throw mandrakes over the walls of the Death Eaters. And the mandrakes, remember, they can, if like full-grown mandrakes, you pull them out, the sound can kill a full-grown adult if, like, you know, if they're heard. So we got them coming making an appearance from Chamber of Secrets. Aberforth, like you mentioned, suggested that they should have held Slytherin students hostage. What a savage guy. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, <laughs> yeah. We got to give Ron his property. I know last week's episode we kind of you know, made the case that Ron has kind of been more of a detriment to the team than helpful to the team. But he, he has his moments in this one, right? He made a genius move in getting into the Chamber of Secrets using Parcel Tongue that he actually picked up on from when he heard Harry open the locket. Now we got another Horcrux down in the Hufflepuff Cup. That's done. Now we've got a full circle moment for Ron's concern with the house elves, like you mentioned, all the way back from Goblet of Fire with this spoo stuff. Uh, it causes Hermione to lose her mind, jump into Ron's arms, and kissing him with all she's got. So we finally get them together. It's been a long time coming. They've been, uh, you know, you know, playing grab ass with each other, and uh, finally they seal the, <laughs> the seal the kiss. Finally, so. Finally, they They're did it. They got, they got past their own differences. Together, man. <laughs> yeah. Try to do that in high school, you get in trouble. Don't ask me how I know. Anyways, <laughs> uh, then from there, Aberforth tells Tonks that Remus is doing Dolohov, and Tonks runs off after him. Unfortunately, this is a foreshadow. I'm not going to say anything else. Uh, Malfoy, Crabbe, and Goyle are already uh, waiting, like kind of in the room when Harry opens it. They kind of crawl in behind him. They're kind of waiting for him where the diadem is. So they sneak up on Harry. Like you mentioned, Crab actually sent killing curses at Hermione and Ron. Like the dude was trying to actually kill him. Uh, Crab is somehow skilled. I, I almost had the same thing you did at this part. I was like, Crab is somehow skilled enough to summon Fiendfire, but it kind of <laughs> backfires since his own spell killed him. Uh, but the Fiendfire also destroyed the diadem. So there we go. Another Horcrux down. Now we get another full circle back to Chamber of Secrets with the appearance of the Headless Hunt. Thought that was cool. The Headless Hunt running through the, the corridor. And then... The last one, Death Eaters penetrated the castle. You know, Fred and Percy incapacitate the Death Eaters that they were dueling, but then the wall blasted apart in a huge explosion, leaving Fred dead. So that's kind of my last takeaway and really encapsulates the, the chapter in its entirety. Like you mentioned, Wands Up for Fred. It was really tough. Reading this for the first time back in 2007 when the book came out, very few deaths hit me. Uh, in novels the way that Fred Weasley's death hit me because in a way it just wasn't necessary like there was no like Fred wasn't a main character it didn't like one of those like it's one of those senseless killings that it makes sense in terms of the storyline like you know Voldemort and like his followers do just kill at will but you would have never guessed someone as and not really insignificant because he is funny he comes up with awesome moments he's like kind of the go-to guy people look up to him he's very popular people love Fred but like he's not one of those people that's necessarily like, 
you know, at least with other ones that are either like super good ores and can fight really well against Death Eaters, and those are the ones you want to take out. You know, Fred's just a really good businessman. He's really, really funny. He's a jokester with his brother. Him and his brother created something from the ground up together. They decided, like, almost a full circle moment, they were defending the secret passages in and out of the school because they're the ones that knew where the secret passages were. And then, unfortunately, you know, this happens. It's senseless killing. It was an explosion of the wall. Nothing could have prepared anyone for it. Out of everyone that was there, the only good guy that was left dead from that explosion, unfortunately, was Fred Weasley. He's gone. We're without him. But unfortunately, the show goes on. And so that'll take us right into the next chapter here. Chapter 32, The Elder Wand. And how we're going to do this chapter is I'm going to read to a certain page. I'm going to turn it over to Chase. He's going to read the remainder of The Elder Wand. And then he's all. And then we're going to talk about our takeaways from the chapter of The Elder Wand. And then Chase is going to take us through chapter 33 to close us out today after that. So without further ado, I'll go ahead and start chapter 32, The Elder Wand. The world had ended. So why had the battle not ceased? The castle fallen silent in horror, and every combatant laid down their arms. Harry's mind was in freefall, spinning out of control, unable to grasp the impossibility, because Fred Weasley could not be dead. The evidence of all his senses must be lying. And then a body fell past the hole, blown into the side of the school, and curses flew in at them from the darkness, hitting the wall behind their heads. Get down, Harry shouted as more curses flew through the night. He and Ron had both grabbed Hermione and pulled her up to the floor. But Percy lay across Fred's body, shielding it from further harm. And when Harry shouted, Percy, come on, we've got to move, Percy shook his head. Percy! Harry saw tears streaks, tears tracks streaming the grime coating Ron's face as he seized his elder brother's shoulders and pulled. But Percy would not budge. Percy, you can't do anything for him. We're going to... Hermione screamed. And Harry, turning, did not need to ask why. A monstrous spider the size of a small car was trying to climb through the huge hole in the wall. One of Aragog's descendants had joined the fight. Ron and Harry had shouted together. Their spells collided, and the monster was blown backward, its legs jerking horribly and vanished into the darkness. It brought friends! Harry called to the others and glanced over the edge of the castle through the hole in the wall the curses had blasted. More gigantic spiders were climbing the side of the building, liberated from the forbidden forest into which the Death Eaters must have penetrated. Harry fired stunning spells down upon them, knocking the lead monster into its fellows so that they rolled back down the building and out of sight. Then more curses came soaring over Harry's head, so close he felt the force of them blow his hair. Let's move, now! Pushing Hermione ahead of him with Ron, Harry stooped to seize Fred's body under the armpits. Percy, realizing what Harry was trying to do, stopped clinging to the body and helped. Together, crouching low to avoid the curses flying at them from the grounds, they hauled Fred out of the way. Here, said Harry, and they placed him in a niche where a suit of armor had stood earlier. He could not bear to look at Fred a second longer than he had to, and after making sure that the body was well hidden, he took after Ron and Hermione. Malfoy and Goyle had vanished, but at the end of the corridor, which was now full of dust and falling masonry, glass long gone from the windows, he saw many people running backward and forward, whether friends or foes, he could not tell. Rounding the corner, Percy let out a bull-like roar. Rookwood! And he sprinted off in the direction of a tall man who was pursuing a couple of students. Harry, in here! Hermione screamed. She had pulled Ron behind a tapestry. They seemed to be wrestling together, and for one mad second, Harry thought they were trying to embrace again. Then he saw that Hermione was trying to restrain Ron from stopping to have him stop running after Percy. Listen to me! Listen, Ron! I want to help! 
I want to kill Death Eaters! His face was contorted, smeared with dust and smoke, and he was shaking with rage and grief. Ron, we're the only ones who can end it. Please, Ron, we need the snake. We've got to kill the snake, said Hermione. But Harry knew how Ron felt. Pursuing another Horcrux could not bring the satisfaction of revenge. He, too, wanted to fight, to punish them, the people who had killed Fred, and he wanted to find the other Weasleys and, above all, make sure, make quite sure that Ginny was not. But he could not permit that idea to form in his mind. We will fight, Hermione said. We have to reach the snake. But let's not lose sight now of what we're supposed to be doing. We are the only ones who can end it. She was crying, too, and she wiped her face on her torn and singed sleeve as she spoke. But she took great heaving breaths to calm herself as, still keeping a tight hold on Ron, she turned to Harry. You need to find out where Voldemort is because he'll have the snake with him, won't he? Do it, Harry. Look inside him. Why was it so easy? Because the scar had been burning for hours, yearning to show him Voldemort's thoughts? He closed his eyes on her command and at once the screams and bangs and all the discordant sounds of the battle were drowned until they became distant as though he stood far, far away from them. He was standing in the middle of a desolate but strangely familiar room with peeling paper on the walls and all the windows boarded except for one. The sounds of the assault in the castle were muffled and distant. The single unblocked window revealed distant bursts of light where the castle stood, but inside the room it was dark except for a solitary oil lamp. He was rolling his wand between his fingers, watching it, his thoughts on the room in the castle. The secret room only he had ever found, the room, like the chamber, that you had to be clever and cunning and inquisitive to discover. He was confident that the boy would not find the diadem. Although Dumbledore's puppet had come much farther than he had expected, he came too far. My lord, said a voice desperate and cracked, he turned. There was Lucius Malfoy sitting in the darkest corner, ragged, and still bearing the marks of the punishment he had received after the boy's last escape. One of his eyes remained closed and puffy. My lord, please, my son. If your son is dead, Lucius, it is not my fault. He did not come and join me like the rest of the Slytherins. Perhaps he has decided to befriend Harry Potter. No, never, whispered Malfoy. You must hope not. Aren't, aren't you afraid, my lord, that Potter might die at another hand before yours? Asked Malfoy, his voice shaking. Wouldn't it be, forgive me, more prudent to call off this battle? Enter the castle and seek him yourself. Do not pretend, Lucius, that you wish to cease the battle so that you can discover what has happened to your son. And I do not seek Potter. Let me go ahead and start that over again. My apologies. Do not pretend, Lucius, you wish the battle to cease so that you can discover what has happened to your son. And I do not need to seek Potter. Before the night is out, Potter will have come to find me. Voldemort dropped his gaze once more to the wand in his fingers. It troubled him, and those things that troubled Lord Voldemort needed to be rearranged. Go and fetch Snape. Snape, my lord? Snape. Now. I need him. There is a service I require from him. Go. Frightened and stumbling a little through the gloom, Lucius left the room. Voldemort continued to stand there, twirling the wand between his fingers, staring at it. It is the only way, Nagini, he whispered, and he looked around, and there was the great thick snake now suspended in midair, twisting gracefully within the enchanted, protected space he had made for her. A starry, transparent sphere somewhere between glittering cage and tank. With a gasp, Harry pulled back and opened his eyes. At the same moment, his ears were assaulted with the screeches and cries, the smashes and bangs of the battle. He's in the shrieking shack. The snake's with him. It's got some sort of magical protection around it. 
He's just sent Lucius Malfoy to find Snape. Voldemort sitting in the Shrieking Shack? Said Hermione, outraged. He's not, he's not even fighting? He doesn't think he needs to fight, said Harry. He thinks I'm going to go to him. But why? He knows I'm after the Horcruxes. He's keeping Nagini close beside him. Obviously, I'm going to have to go to him to get near the thing. Right, said Ron, squaring his shoulders. So you can't go. That's what he wants, what he's expecting. You stay here and look after Hermione, and I'll go and get it. Harry cut across Ron. You two stay here. I'll go under the cloak, and I'll be back as soon as I... No, said Hermione. It makes more sense if I take the cloak in. Don't even think about it, Ron snarled at her. Before Hermione could get farther than Ron, I'm just as capable. The tapestry at the top of the staircase on which they stood was ripped open. Potter! Two masked Death Eaters stood there, but even before their wands were fully raised, Hermione shouted, Glaceo! The stairs beneath their feet flattened into a chute, and she, Harry, and Ron hurtled down it, unable to control their speeds, but so fast that the Death Eaters' stunning spells flew far over their heads. They shot through the concealing tapestry at the bottom and spun onto the floor, hitting the opposite wall. Duro! cried Hermione, pointing her wand at the tapestry, and there were two loud, sickening crunches as the tapestry turned to stone, and the Death Eaters pursuing them crumpled against it. Get back! shouted Ron, and he, Harry, and Hermione flattened themselves against the door as a herd of galloping desks thundered past, shepherded by a sprinting Professor McGonagall. She appeared not to have noticed them. Her hair had come down, and there was a gash on her cheek. As she turned the corner, they heard her scream, Charge! Harry, you get the cloak on, said Hermione. Never mind us. But he threw it all over all three of them, large enough Large though they were, he doubted anyone would see their disembodied feet through the dust that clogged the air, the falling stone, and the shimmer of spells. They ran down the next staircase and found themselves in a corridor full of duelers. The portraits on either side of the fighters were crammed with figures screaming advice and encouragement, while Death Eaters, both masked and unmasked, dueled students and teachers. Dean had won himself a wand, for he was face-to-face -face with Dolohov, Parvati with Travers. Harry, Ron, and Hermione raised their wands at once, ready to strike, but the duelers were weaving and darting around so much that there was a strong likelihood of hurting one of their own side if they cast curses. Even as they stood braced, looking for an opportunity to act, there came a great whee! And looking up, Harry saw Peeves zooming over them, dropping Snargolopods down onto the Death Eaters, whose heads were suddenly engulfed in wriggling green tubers like fat worms. Arrgh! There was a fistful of tubers that hit the cloak over Ron's head, the slimy green roots were suspended improbably in midair as Ron tried to shake them loose. Someone is invisible there, shouted a masked Death Eater, pointing. Dean made the most of the Death Eater's momentary distraction, knocking him out with a stunning spell. Dolohov attempted to retaliate, and Parvati shot a body bind curse at him. Let's go, Harry yelled, and he, Ron, and Hermione gathered the cloak tightly around themselves and pelted heads down through the midst of the fighters, slipping in little pools of snargle of juice toward the top of the marble staircase into the entrance hall. I'm Draco Malfoy. I'm Draco. I'm on your side. Draco was on the upper landing, pleading with another masked Death Eater. Harry stunned the Death Eater as they passed. Malfoy looked around, beaming for his savior, and Ron punched him from under the cloak. Malfoy fell backward on top of the Death Eater, his mouth bleeding, utterly bemused. That's the second time we've saved your life tonight, you two-faced bastard, Ron yelled. There were more duelers all over the stairs and in the hall. Death Eaters everywhere. Harry looked, Yaxley, close to the front doors, in combat with Flitwick a masked Death Eater dueling Kingsley right beside him. Students ran in every direction, some carrying or dragging injured friends. Harry directed a stunning spell toward the masked Death Eater. It missed, but nearly hit Neville, who'd emerged from nowhere, brandishing armfuls of venomous tentacula, which looped itself happily around the nearest Death Eater and began reeling him in. 
Harry, Ron, and Hermione sped down the marble staircase. Glass shattered to their left, and the Slytherin's hourglass that recorded house points spilled its emeralds everywhere so that people slipped and staggered as they ran. Two bodies fell from the balcony overhead as they reached the ground, and a great blur that Harry took for an animal sped four-legged across the hall to sink its teeth into one of the fallen. No, shrieked Hermione, and with a deafening blasmer wand, Fenrir Greyback was thrown backward from the feebly stirring body of Lavender Brown. He hit the marble banisters and struggled to return to his feet. Then, with a bright white flash and crack, a crystal ball fell on top of his head and he crumpled to the ground and did not move. I have more, shrieked Professor Trelawney from over the banisters. More for any who want them. Here! And with a movement like a tennis serve, she heaved another enormous crystal sphere from her bag, waved her wand through the air, and caused the ball to speed across the hall and smash through a window. And at the same moment, the heavy wooden doors of the great hall burst open, and more of the gigantic spires forced their way through the entrance hall. Screams of terror rent the air. The fighters scattered, Death Eaters and Hogwartians alight, and the red and green jets of light flew through the midst of the oncoming monsters which shuddered and reared, more terrifying than ever. How do we get out? yelled Ron over all the screaming, but before either Harry or Hermione could answer, they were bowled aside. Hagrid had come thundering down the stairs, brandishing his flowery pink umbrella. Don't hurt him! Don't hurt him! he yelled. Hagrid, no! Harry forgot everything else. He sprinted out from under the cloak, running bent double to avoid curses illuminating the whole hall. Hagrid, come back! But he was not even halfway to Hagrid when he saw it happen. Hagrid vanished amongst the spiders, and with a great scurrying... A foul, swarming movement, they retreated under the onslaught of spells, Hagrid buried in their midst. Hagrid! Harry heard someone calling his own name, whether friend or foe, he did not care. He was sprinting down the front steps in the dark grounds, and the spiders were swarming away with their prey, and he could see nothing of Hagrid at all. Hagrid! He thought he could make out an enormous arm waving from the midst of the spider swarm. Was he made to chase after them? His way was impeded by a monumental foot which swung down out of the darkness and made the ground on which he stood shudder. He looked up. A giant stood before him, twenty feet high, its head hidden in the shadow, nothing but its tree-like hairy shins illuminated by the light from the castle doors. With one brutal fluid movement, it smashed a massive fist through an upper window, and glass rained down upon Harry, forcing him back under the shelter of the doorway. Oh my! shrieked Hermione as she and Ron caught up with Harry and gazed upward at the giant, now trying to seize people through the window above. Don't! Ron yelled, grabbing Hermione's hand as she raised her wand. Stun him and he'll crush half the castle. Hagger? Grop came lurching around the corner of the castle. Only now did Harry realize that Grop was indeed an undersized giant. The gargantuan monster trying to crush people on the upper floors looked around and let out a roar. The stone steps trembled as he stomped toward its, his smaller kin, and Grop's lopsided mouth fell open, showing yellow, half brick sized teeth, and they launched themselves at each other with the savagery of lions. Run! Harry roared, and the night was full of hideous yells and blows as the giants wrestled, and he seized Hermione's hand and tore down the steps, Ron bringing up the rear. Harry had not lost hope of finding and saving Hagrid. He ran so fast they were halfway toward the forest before they were brought up short again. The air around them had frozen. Harry's breath caught and solidified in his chest. Shapes moving out in the darkness, swirling figures of concentrated blackness moving in great waves toward the castle, their faces hooded and their breath rattling. Ron and Hermione closed in beside him as the sounds of fighting behind him grew suddenly muted, deadened because the silence only Dementors could bring was falling thickly through the night, and Fred was gone, and Hagrid was surely dying or already dead. Come on, Harry, said Hermione's voice from a very long way away. Patronus is Harry, come on. 
He raised his wand, but a dull hopelessness was spreading through him. How many more lay dead that he did not yet know about? He felt as though his soul had already left his body. Harry, come on, screamed Hermione. A hundred Dementors were advancing, gliding toward them, sucking their way closer to Harry's despair, which was like a promise of a feast. He saw Ron's silver terrier burst in the air, flicker feebly, and expire. He saw Hermione's otter twist in midair and fade. His own wand trembled in his hand, and he almost welcomed the oncoming oblivion, the promise of nothing, of no feeling. And then a silver hare, a boar, and a fox soared past Harry, Ron, and Hermione's heads. The Dementors fell back before the creature's approach. Three more people had arrived out of the darkness to stand beside them, their wands outstretched, continuing to cast their Patronuses, Luna, Ernie, and Seamus. That's right, said Luna encouragingly, as if they were back in the room of requirement, and this was simply spell practice for the DA. That's right, Harry. Come on, think of something happy. Something happy, he said, his voice cracked. We're all still here, she whispered. We're still fighting. Come on now. There was a silver spark, then a wavering light, then with the greatest effort it had ever cost him, the stag burst from the end of Harry's wand, it cantered forward, and now the Dementor scattered in earnest, and immediately the night was mild again, but the sound of the surrounding battle were loud in his ears. Can't thank you enough, said Ron shakily, turning to Luna, Ernie, and Seamus. You just saved, whether the war and an earthquaking tremor, another giant came lurching out of the darkness from the direction of the forest, brandishing a club taller than any of them. Run, Harry shouted again, but the others needed no telling. They all scattered in not a second too soon, for the next moment the creature's vast foot had fallen exactly where they had been standing. Harry looked around. Ron and Hermione were following him, but the other three had vanished back into the battle. Let's get out of range, yelled Ron as the giant swung its club again, and its bellows echoed through the night across the grounds where bursts of red and green light continued to illuminate the darkness. The Whomping Willow, said Harry, go! Somehow he walled it all up in his mind, crammed it into a small space into which he could not look now. Thoughts of Fred and Hagrid and his terror for all the people he loved scattered in and outside the castle must all wait because they had to run. They had to reach the snake in Voldemort because that was, as Hermione said, the only way to end it. He sprinted, half believing he could outdistance death itself, ignoring the jets of light flying in the darkness all around him and the sound of the lake crashing like the sea and the creaking of the forbidden forest through the night was windless. Through grounds that seemed themselves to have risen in rebellion, he ran faster than he had ever moved in his life. And it was he who saw the great tree first, the willow that protected the secret at its roots with whip-like slashing branches. Panting and gasping, Harry slowed down, skirting the willow-swiping branches, peering through the darkness toward his thick trunk, trying to see the single knot in the bark of the old tree that would paralyze it. Ron and Hermione caught up. Hermione, so out of breath, she could not speak. How, how are we going to get in, panted Ron. I can see the place if we just said Crookshanks again. Crookshanks, wheezed Hermione, bent double, clutching her chest. Are you a wizard or what? Oh, right, yeah. Ron looked around and directed his wand at a twig on the ground and said, Wingardium Leviosa. And the twig flew up from the ground, spun through the air as if caught by a gust of wind, then zoomed directly at the trunk through the willow's ominously swaying branches. It jabbed at a place near the roots, and at once the writhing tree became still. Perfect, panted Hermione. Wait. For one teetering second, while the crashes and booms of the battle filled the air, Harry hesitated. Voldemort wanted him to do this, wanted him to come. Was he leading Ron and Hermione into a trap? But then the reality seemed to close in upon him, cruel and plain. The only way forward was to kill the snake, and the snake was where Voldemort was, and Voldemort was at the end of this tunnel. 
Harry, we're coming. Just get in there, said Ron, pushing him forward. Harry wriggled into the earthy passage hidden in the tree roots. It was a much tighter squeeze than it had been the last time they had entered. The tunnel was low-ceilinged. They had to double over, double up to move through it nearly four years previously. Now there was nothing for it but to crawl. Harry went first, his wand illuminated, expecting at any moment to meet barriers. But none came. They moved in silence. Harry's gaze fixed upon the swinging beam of light that the wand shone while held in his fist. At last, the tunnel began to slope upward, and Harry saw a sliver of light ahead, and Hermione tugged at his ankle. The cloak, she whispered, put the cloak on. He groped behind him, and she forced a bundle of slippery cloth into his free hand. With difficulty, he dragged it over himself, murmured, Nox, extinguishing his wand light, and continued on his hands and knees as silently as possible, all his senses straining, expecting every second to be discovered, to hear a cold, clear voice, to see a flash of green light. Then he heard voices coming from the room directly ahead of them, only slightly muffled by the fact that the opening at the end of the tunnel had been blocked by what looked like an old crate. Hardly daring to breathe, Harry edged right up to the opening and peered through a tiny gap left between the crate and the wall. The room was dimly lit, but he could see Nagini swirling and coiling like a serpent underwater, safe in her enchanted starry sphere, which floated unsupported in midair. He could see the edge of a table and a long-fingered white hand toying with a wand, then Snape spoke, and Harry's heart lurched. Snape was inches away from where he crouched, hidden. My lord, their resistance is crumbling. And it is doing so without your help, said Voldemort in his high, clear voice. Skilled wizard though you are, Severus, I do not think you will make much difference now. We are almost there. Almost. Let me find the boy. Let me bring you powder. I know I can find him, my lord please. And with that, I will turn this chapter over on page 653 to Chase, and he will take us the remainder of this chapter, and we'll discuss it afterwards. Awesome. Snape strode past the gap, and Harry drew back a little, keeping his eyes fixed upon Nagini, wondering whether there was any spell that might penetrate the protection surrounding her, but he could not think of anything. One failed attempt, and he would give away his position. Voldemort stood up. Harry could see him now, See the red eyes, the flattened serpentine face, the pallor of him gleaming slightly in the semi-darkness. I have a problem, Severus, said Voldemort softly. My lord, said Snape. Voldemort raised the Elder Wand, holding it as delicately and precisely as a conductor's baton. Why doesn't it work for me, Severus? In the silence here he imagined... He could hear the snake hissing slightly as it coiled and uncoiled, or was it Voldemort's sibilant sigh lingering on the air? My, my lord, said Snape blankly, I do not understand. You, you have performed extraordinary magic with that wand. No, said Voldemort. I have performed my usual magic. I am extraordinary, but this wand, no. It has not revealed the wonders it has promised. I feel no difference between this wand and the one I procured from Ollivander all those years ago. Voldemort's tone was musing, calm, but Harry's scar had begun to throb and pulse. Pain was building in his forehead, and he could feel that controlled sense of fury building inside Voldemort. No difference, said Voldemort again. Snape did not speak. Harry could not see his face. He wondered whether Snape sensed danger was trying to find the right word to reassure his master. 
Voldemort started to move around the room. Harry lost sight of him for seconds as he prowled, speaking in that same measured voice while the pain and fury mounted in Harry. I have thought long and hard, Severus. Do you know why I have called you back from the battle? And for a moment, Harry saw Snape's profile. His eyes were fixed upon the coiling snake in its enchanted cage. No, my lord. But, but I beg you will let me return. Let me find Potter. You sound like Lucius. Neither of you understands Potter as I do. He does not need finding. Potter will come to me. I know his weakness, you see. His one great flaw. He will hate watching the others struck down around him. Knowing that it is for him that it happens, he will want to stop it at any cost. He will come. But, my lord, he he might be killed accidentally by one of the other than yourself. My instructions to my Death Eaters have been perfectly clear. Capture Potter, kill his friends the more. The better, but do not kill him. But it is of you that I wish to speak, Severus, not Harry Potter. You have been very valuable to me. Very valuable. My lord knows I seek only to serve him, but let me go and find the boy, my lord. Let me bring him to you. I know I can. I have told you no, said Voldemort. And Harry caught the glint of red in his eyes as he turned again, and the swishing of his cloak was like the slithering of a snake, and he felt Voldemort's impatience in his burning scar. My concern at the moment, Severus, is what will happen when I finally meet the boy. My lord, there can be no question, surely. But there is a question, Severus. There is. Voldemort halted, and Harry could see him plainly again as he slid the Elder Wand through his white fingers, staring at Snape. Why did both the wands I have used failed when directed at Harry Potter? I, I cannot answer that, my lord. Can't you? The stab of rage felt like a spike driven through Harry's head. He forced his own fist into his mouth to stop himself from crying out in pain. He closed his eyes, and suddenly he was Voldemort looking into Snape's pale face. My wand of you did everything of which I asked it, Severus, except to kill Harry Potter. Twice it failed. Ollivander told me under torture of the twin cores, told me to take another's wand. I did so, but Lucius's wand shattered upon meeting Potter's. I, I have no explanation, my lord. Snape was not looking at Voldemort now. His dark eyes were still fixed upon the coiling serpent in its protective sphere. I sought a third wand, Severus. The Elder Wand. The Wand of Destiny, the Death Stick. I took it from its previous master. I took it from the grave of Albus Dumbledore. And now Snape looked at Voldemort, and Snape's face was like a death mask. It was a marble white, and so still, that when he spoke, it was a shock to see that anyone lived behind the blank eyes. My lord, let, let me go to the boy. All this long night, when I am on the brink of victory, I have sat here, said Voldemort, his voice barely louder than a whisper, wondering, wondering, why the Elder Wand refuses to be what it ought to be, refuses to perform as legend says it must perform for its rightful owner, and I think I have the answer. Snape did not speak. Perhaps you already know it. You are a clever man, after all, Severus. You have been a good and faithful servant, and I regret what must happen. My lord, the Elder Wand cannot serve me properly, Severus, because I am not his true master. The Elder Wand belongs to the wizard who killed its last owner. You killed Albus Dumbledore. 
Why you live, Severus, the Elder Wand cannot be truly mine. My lord, Snape protested, raising his wand. It cannot be any other way, said Voldemort. I must master the wand, Severus. Master the wand, and I master Potter at last. And Voldemort swiped the air with the Elder Wand. It did nothing to Snape, who for a split second seemed to think he had been reprieved. But then Voldemort's intention became clear. The snake's cage was rolling through the air, and before Snape could do anything, more than yell, it had encased him. Head and shoulders, and Voldemort spoke in Postle Tongue, Kill! There was a terrible scream. Harry saw Snape's face losing the little color it had left. It's whitened as his black eyes widened as the snake fangs pierced his neck, as he failed to push the enchanted cage off himself, as his knees gave way and he fell to the floor. I regret it said Voldemort coldly. He turned away. There was no sadness in him. No remorse. It was time to leave this shack and take charge with a wand that would now do his full bidding. He pointed it at the starry cage holding the snake, which drifted upward off Snape, who fell sideways onto the floor, blood gushing from the wounds in his neck. Voldemort swept from the room without a backward glance, and the great serpent floated after him in its huge protective sphere. Back in the tunnel in his own mind, Harry opened his eyes. He had drawn blood biting down on his knuckles in an effort not to shout out. Now he was looking through the tiny crack between crate and wall, watching a foot in black boot trembling on the floor. Harry! breathed Hermione behind him, but he had already pointed his wand at the crate blocking his view. It lifted an inch into the air and drifted sideways silently. As quietly as he could, he pulled himself into the room. He did not know why he was doing it why he was approaching the dying man he did not know what he felt as he saw snape's white face and the fingers trying to snatch the bloody wound at his neck harry took off the invisibility cloak and looked down upon the man he hated whose widening black eyes found harry as he tried to speak harry bent over him and snape seized the front of his robes and pulled him close a terrible rasping gurgling noise issued from snape's throat take Take it. Something more than blood was leaking from Snape. Silvery blue, neither gas nor liquid, it gushed from his mouth and his ears and eyes, and Harry knew what it was, but did not know what to do. A flask conjured from thin air was thrust into his shaking hands by Hermione. Harry lifted the silvery substance into it with his wand. When the flask was full to the brim and Snape looked as though there was no blood left in him, his grip on Harry's road slackened. Look at me, he whispered. The green eyes found the black, but after a second, something in the depths of the dark pair seemed to vanish, leaving them fixed blank and empty. The hand holding Harry thudded to the floor, and Snape moved no more. And that was chapter 32. So... I don't know if he deserves this, <laughs> but for just a moment, we're going to put our wands in the air because he has been with us from the very beginning. And uh, for the fallen, for Severus Snape, we'll take just a moment of silence here. Okay, so uh, another one of these major characters is gone. Um, so what are your takeaways from chapter 32, Jay Nelly? 
Yeah, from chapter 32, the Elder One here, here's some of my takeaways. The first one being the Acromantulas joined the battle, but for Voldemort's side, which is really interesting because yeah. they were in the Forbidden Forest, you know, on Hogwarts grounds throughout, you know, just I would say the peaceful years, quote unquote. You know, they, they were there for Hogwarts, so you'd think they would defend Hogwarts, but nope. <laughs> uh, I thought it was nice that they had the presence of mind to hide Fred's body when they were like escaping from that corridor that had blasted apart. It was good to not just leave him there to be wrecked and ruined. So I thought that was nice. Right. Uh, Voldemort being at the Shrieking Shack while the battle rages. I thought it was interesting. Like It makes sense, and they even explained it. But like you know, the whole thing was you know, Harry, Harry versus Voldemort, and they're having this whole battle over it. But Voldemort's not even entering the battle. If, if Voldemort did enter the battle, they'd have been fucked, man. So, like, like honestly, right. they are really, like, luck, lucky. They are very fortunate that Voldemort is arrogant. Or else they would have had a big, big... They would have been in big trouble. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, after that, uh, Voldemort put Nagini in this protective enchantment. They said it was, like, a magical tank, also kind of like a cage for safety. Like, almost like a force field. Like, like a mm-hmm. starry sphere, it said. So... I thought that was pretty interesting. Uh, the children doing Death Eaters, man. Is like, for example, it was Dean versus <laughs> Dolohov and fucking Parvati yeah. Patel versus Travers. Like we got these teenagers fighting full blown adults, man. That's crazy. Uh, uh, this next bullet point I have, we got this full circle. Peeves actually becomes useful and drops Snargleuf pods on Death Eaters' heads. So we get a little bit of a full circle from Peeves causing mayhem, and also a full circle from the Snargleuf pods themselves that made an appearance in previous books. So I thought that was pretty cool. Um, they save Malfoy again, this time from a Death Eater, and Ron, like, punches him in the mouth. He's like, this is the second time we saved your dumbass. You are a little piece of shit, basically. And then after that, we have Professor Trelawney making uh, impact. She dropped a crystal yeah. ball on Fenrir Greyback's head. That was pretty cool. You know, unfortunately, that was preceded by the fact that we don't know her, her fate yet, but Lavender Brown was stirring feebly after being uh, bitten by Fenrir Greyback, so we'll see later on how that turns out. Uh, from there, I thought it was kind of cool that Grop, a 16-foot giant, fights a 20-foot giant. That was really cool. Uh, next thing, Luna, Ernie, and Seamus save Harry, Ron, and Hermione from the Dementors with their own Patronuses. A hare, a boar, and a fox. So it's yep. pretty interesting because Harry's kind of always been in control of his Patronuses. He's always seemed to be the best at like summoning them, but he was in a moment of turmoil there. He almost I like honestly they kind of saved their lives because if that's done, that's done, man. So Luna, shout out Luna, shout out Ernie, shout out Seamus. Your Patronuses of the Hare, the Boar, and the Fox helped save the day up to this point. So Harry still uh, got another fighting breath left in him. Next takeaway I have is Snape repeatedly begging Voldemort to let him go and bring Harry to him. That's a foreshadow. Uh, Second to last one, Voldemort decides to kill Snape because he believes the wand is loyal to Snape for killing Dumbledore. That's a foreshadow. The way he did it was fucked up, though. Like, trapped the force field that held Nagini over Snape's head and made Nagini kill him. Yeah. But imagine how the story would have changed, guys, if Voldemort simply used the Avada Kedavra curse, because mm-hmm. if they use if he used that, there's no time for Harry to go talk to him and get this silvery substance that was brought yep. up at the end. That's right. So how crazy! Like you know, it's very strange too, because usually Voldemort, especially, he was saying how he regrets killing Snape, and Snape's been loyal, like like in Voldemort's mind, and up to this point where we know Snape's been loyal to Voldemort this entire time. 
Usually he like rewards those, and he think you think a quick easy death would be something that Voldemort would give Snape, but no, he had the snake bite him and let him bleed out. What the <laughs> fuck? Yeah, so, yeah, that's messed up. It's, it's very interesting because you know if, if it's a this whole series changes if Snape's not able to get those that silvery substance to Harry. So uh, I thought that was kind of cool to just to detail and notate that uh, he decided not to use a simple Avada Kedavra curse. So interesting. He didn't Anyways, have another wand Snape, though, did he? Sorry, not to interrupt you. I mean, he had his he had the Elder Wand. He said he could perform the same type of magic he could with his regular one. It just wasn't like the ultimate power of the Elder Wand that he thought he would be receiving. So he still could have gotcha. killed with the Elder okay. Wand. Yeah, I was thinking it like locked up on him or something where he couldn't use it at all or something because he uh, didn't, no, no. wasn't the true one. He, he yeah. can use it, but it's not. He, he, he said you know he's using his own regular. He's like, I am extraordinary. The magic I'm doing is the shit that I've been able to do with my old wand too. This isn't opened up or like opened up its secrets of the you know mm-hmm. the, the fabled elder one. And this is the last takeaway I have, and I'll turn it over to you for your takeaways. Is Snape gives Harry a memory, makes Harry look into his eyes one last time, and dies. And so yeah, like I said, another character that's been with us since you know day one in Sorcerer's Stone. Another one bites the dust. Snape's gone. And those are my takeaways for that chapter. <laughs> that was pretty brutal. Uh, <laughs> yeah. See, I, I'm a little bit more sentimental about that because of what we're going to talk about in the next chapter. But, um, yeah, any more takeaways you had on that one, though? That's it. I'll turn. I'll, I'll give you the, t- the rest of the takeaways you had, and then I'll let you go ahead and take away our final chapter that we'll cover today. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think you, pre- you pretty much hit most of them nail on the head. Just a few things I want to say. Um so at first when this chapter starts remember they still really can't believe fred's gone one thing i do want to say about that that is really a full circle moment people can't say that wasn't the plan because if you even look back at order of the phoenix remember the boggart in the closet when um you know molly was seeing the boggart in the closet so just bringing that back up that was a big foreshadowing of what just happened um the only other one i'll touch on was when hermione shot the spell at Finier Greyback and save Lavender. That was kind of like an ironic full circle because remember Lavender had that whole thing with Ron back in Half-Blood Prince, so she wasn't exactly a fan <laughs> of her. So it goes to show, you know, uh, she still cares about her. You never know. Could be related, you know, Chase Brown, Lavender Brown. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Anyways, but uh, that's the only thing I'd say about that. I would say I, I think you really hit the nail on the head on that uh, but i think the biggest thing is it was brutal the way he like trapped snape's head in there that was like messed up but uh yeah and, and uh this was kind of a shocking sort of a shocking it wasn't shocking that snape died it was shocking of how he died <laughs> i would say um, yeah, and uh, I'll go ahead and take it away with chapter 33, The Prince's Tale. Anything else you wanted to say before I take it away? Yeah, just this, this one spot. I was trying to find it in the um, in the beginning of this book because uh, you were talking about like a foreshadow of Fred like back from Order of the Phoenix when Mrs. Weasley saw the boggart and it was like the dead bodies of her kids and stuff. But there was also a part, and I remember saying it when we went through it, it's, it's you know really early in the thing. This is when they were kind of getting ready for the wedding. Remember, Fred had mentioned something when when I get married, uh, you guys can all come like however right. you want. Like it was just really sad because obviously we're never gonna see um, mm-hmm. Fred get married. So, no, hundred um, percent. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. With I'll that. go, <laughs> I'll go ahead and let you go ahead and take the the last chapter away. Then we'll discuss it, and then we'll get into the other parts of the show before we get out of here for the day. Sounds good, brother. Okay, let's dive into it. So, chapter thirty three, the Prince's Tale. 
Harry remained kneeling at Snape's side, simply staring down at him until quite suddenly a high, cold voice spoke so close to them that Harry jumped to his feet. The flask gripped tightly in his hands, thinking that Voldemort had re-entered the room. Voldemort's voice reverberated from the walls and the floor, and Harry realized that he was talking to Hogwarts and to all the surrounding area that the residents of Hogsmeade and all those still fighting in the castle would hear him as clearly, clearly as if he stood beside them, his breath on the back of their necks and a death blow away. "'You have fought,' said the high, cold voice, valiantly. "'Lord Voldemort knows how to value bravery. "'Yet you have sustained heavy losses. "'If you continue to resist me, you will all die one by one. "'I do not wish this to happen. "'Every drop of magical blood spilled is a loss and a waste. "'Lord Voldemort is merciful.' I command my forces to retreat immediately. You have one hour. Dispose your dead with dignity. Treat your injured. I speak now, Harry Potter, directly to you. You have permitted your friends to die, for you rather than face me yourself. I shall wait for one hour in the Forbidden Forest. If at the end of that hour you have not come to me, have not given yourself up, then battle recommences. This time... I shall enter the fray myself, Harry Potter, and I shall find you, and I shall punish every last man, woman, and child who has tried to conceal you from me one hour. Both Ron and Hermione shook their heads frantically looking at Harry. Don't listen to him, said Ron. It'll be all right, said Hermione wildly. Let's, let's get back to the castle. If he's gone to the forest, we'll need to think of a new plan. She glanced at Snape's body, then hurried back to the tunnel entrance. Ron followed her. Harry gathered up the invisibility cloak, then looked down at Snape. He did not know what to feel except shock at the way Snape had been killed, and the reason for which it had been done. They crawled back through the tunnel, none of them talking, and Harry wondered whether Ron and Hermione could still hear Voldemort ringing in their heads as he could. "'You have permitted your friends to die, for you rather than face me yourself?' I shall wait for one hour in the Forbidden Forest. One hour. Small bundles seemed to litter the lawn in the front of the castle. It could only be an hour or so from dawn, yet it was pitch black. The three of them hurried toward the stone steps. A lone clog the size of a small boat lay abandoned in front of them. There was no other sign of Grop or his attacker. The castle was unnaturally silent. There were no flashes of light, now no bangs or screams and shouts. The flagstones of the desert entrance hall were stained with blood. Emeralds were scattered all over the floor along with pieces of marble and splintered wood. Part of the banisters had been blown away. Where is everybody? Everyone. Where is everyone? whispered Hermione. Ron led the way to the great hall. Harry, stooped. Harry stopped in the doorway. The house tables were gone and the room was crowded. The survivors stood in groups, their arms around each other's necks. The injured were being treated upon the raised platform of Madame Pomfrey and a group of helpers. Ferenz was amongst the injured. His flank poured blood and he shook where he lay, unable to stand. The dead lay in a row in the middle of the hall. Harry could not see Fred's body because his family surrounded him. George was kneeling at his head. Miss Weasley was lying across Fred's chest, her body shaking. Mr. Weasley stroking her hair while tears cascaded down his cheeks. Without a word, Harry, Ron and Hermione walked away. Harry saw Hermione approach Jenny, whose face was swollen and blotchy, and hug her. 
Ron joined Bill, Floor, and Percy, who flung an arm around Ron's shoulders. As Jenny and Hermione moved closer to the rest of the family, Harry had a clear view of the bodies lying next to Fred. Remus and Tonks, pale and still and peaceful looking, apparently asleep beneath the dark enchanted ceiling. The great hall seemed to fly away, become smaller, shrink, as Harry reeled backward from the doorway. He could not breathe. He could not bear to look at any of the other bodies to see who else had died for him. He could not bear to join the Weasleys, could not look into their eyes. When if he had given himself up in the first place, Fred might never have died. He turned away and ran up the marble staircase, Lupin Tonks. He yearned not to feel. He wished he could rip out his heart, his innards, everything that was screaming inside him. The castle was completely empty. Even the ghosts seemed to have joined the mass mourning in the great hall. Harry ran without stopping, clutching the crystal flask of Snape's last thought, and he did not slow down until he reached the stone gargoyle guarding the headmaster's office. Password? Dumbledore, said Harry without thinking, because it was he whom he yearned to see. And to his surprise, the gargoyle slid aside, revealing the spiral staircase behind. But when Harry burst into the circular office, he found a change. The portraits that hung all around the walls were empty. Not a single headmaster or headmistress remained to see them all. It seemed had flitted away, charging through the paintings that lined the castle so that they could have a clear view of what was going on. Harry glanced hopelessly at Dumbledore's deserted frame, which hung directly behind the headmaster's chair, then turned his back on it. The stone pin sieve lay in the cabinet where it had always been. Harry heaved it onto the desk and poured Snape's memories into the wide basin with its runic markings around the edge. To escape into someone else's head would be a blessed relief. Nothing that even Snape had left him could be worse than his own thoughts. The memories swirled silver white and strange and without hesitating. With a feeling of reckless abandonment as though he would assuage his torturing grief, Harry dived. He fell headlong into sunlight, and his, and his feet found warm ground. When he straightened up, he saw that he was nearly deserted playground. A single huge chimney dominated the distant skyline. Two girls were swinging backward and forward, and the skinny boy was watching them from behind a clump of bushes. His black hair was overlong, and his clothes were so mismatched that it looked deliberate. Two short jeans, a shabby overlarge coat, and what might have belonged to a grown man, an odd smock-like shirt. Harry moved closer to the boy. Snape looked no more than nine or ten years old. Sallow, small, stingy. There was undisguised greed in his thin face as he watched the younger of the two girls swinging higher and higher than her sister. Lily, don't do it, shrieked the elder of the two. But the girl had let go of the swing at the very height of its arc and flown into the air, quite literally flown, launched herself skyward with a great shout of laughter and instead crumpling on the playground asphalt, she soared like a trapeze artist through the air, staying up far too long, landing far too lightly. Mummy told you not to! Petunia stopped her swing by dragging the heels of her sandals on the ground, making a crunching, grinding sound, then leapt up hands on hips. Mummy said you weren't allowed, Lily! But I'm fine, said Lily, giggling. Toonie, look at this. Watch what I can do. Petunia glanced around. The playground was deserted apart from themselves. And though the girls did not know it, Snape, Lily had picked up a fallen flower from the bush behind which Snape lurked. Petunia advanced, evidently torn between curiosity and disapproval. Lily waited until Petunia was near enough to have a clear view, then held out her palm. 
A flower sat there opening and closing its petals like some bizarre many-lipped oyster. Stop it, shrieked Petunia. It's not hurting you, said Lily, but she closed her hand on the blossom and threw it back on the ground. It's not right, said Petunia, but her eyes had followed the flower's flight to the ground and lingered upon it. How do you know it, she added, and there was a definite longing in her voice. It's obvious, isn't it? Snape could no longer contain himself, but had jumped out from behind the bushes. Petunia shrieked and ran backward toward the swings, but Lily, though clearly startled, remained where he was. Snape seemed to regret his appearance. A dull flush of color mounted the sallow cheeks as he looked at Lily. What's obvious? asked Lily. Snape had an air of nervous excitement. With a glance at this distant at the distant petunia now hovering beside the swings he lowered his voice and said i know who you are i know what you are what do you mean you're you're a witch whispered snape she looked affronted that's not a very nice thing to say to somebody she turned nose in air and marched off toward her sister no said snape he was highly colored now and harry wondered why he did not take off the ridiculously large coat unless it was because he did not want to reveal the smock beneath it. He flapped after the girls, looking ludicrously bat-like, like his older self. The sisters, consider the sisters considered him united in disapproval, but holding both holding on to one of the swing poles, as though it was a safe place in tag. You are, said Snape to Lily. You're a witch. I've been watching you for a while, but there's nothing wrong with that. My mom's one, and I'm a wizard. Petunia laughed. Petunia's laugh was like cold water. <laughs> Wizard, she shrieked. Her courage returned now that she had recovered from the shock of his unexpected appearance. I know who you are. You are that Snape boy. They live down Spinner's Inn by the river, she told Lily, and it was evident from her tone that she considered the address a poor recommendation. Why have you been spying on us? Haven't been spying, said Snape. Hot and uncomfortable and dirty-haired in the bright sunlight. Wouldn't spy on you anyway, he added spitefully. You're a muggle. Though Petunia evidently did not understand the word, she could hardly mistake the tone. Lily, come on, we're leaving, she said truly. Lily obeyed her sister at once, glaring at Snape as he, she left. He stood watching them as they marched through the playground gate, and Harry, the only one left to observe them, recognized Snape's bitter disappointment, and understood that Snape had been planning this moment for a while, and that it had all gone wrong. The scene dissolved, and before Harry knew it, it reformed around him. He was now in a small thicket of trees. He could see a sunlit river glittering through their trunks. The shadow cast by the trees made a basin of cool green shade. Two children sat facing each other, cross-legged on the ground. Snape removed his coat now. His odd smock looked less peculiar in the half-light. And the ministry can punish you if you do magic outside of school. You get letters? But I have done magic outside of school. We're all right. We haven't got wands yet. They let you off when you're a kid, and you can't help it. But once you're 11, he nodded importantly, they start training you. Then you got to be, you got to go careful. There was a little silence. Lily had picked up a fallen twig and twirled it in the air, and Harry knew that she was imagining sparks trailing from it. Then she dropped the twig, leaned in toward the boy, and said, It is real, isn't it? It's not a joke. Petunia says you're lying to me. Petunia says there isn't a Hogwarts. It is real, isn't it? It's real for us, said Snape. Not for her, but we'll get the letter, you and me. Really? whispered Lily. 
Definitely, said Snape, and even with his poorly cut hair and his odd clothes, he struck an oddly impressive figure sprawled in front of her, brimful of confidence in his destiny. And will it really come by Al? Lily whispered. Normally, said Snape, but you're muggle-born, so someone from the school will have to come and explain to your parents. Does it make a difference being muggle-born? Snape hesitated. His black eyes eagered in the greenish gloom, moved over the pale face, the dark red hair. No, he said. It doesn't make any difference. Good, said Lily, relaxing. It was clear that she had been worrying. You've got loads of magic, said Snape. I saw it. I saw that. All the time I was watching you. His voice trailed away as she was not listening, but had stretched out on the leafy ground and was looking up at the canopy leaves overhead. He watched her as greedily as he had watched her in the playground. How are things at your house? Lily asked. A little crease appeared between his eyes. Fine, he said. They're not arguing anymore? Oh yes, they're arguing, said Snape. He picked up a fistful of leaves and began tearing them apart, apparently unaware of what he was doing. But it won't be that long, I'll be gone. Doesn't your dad like magic? He doesn't like anything much, said Snape. Severus? A little smile twisted Snape's mouth when she said his name. Yeah? Tell me about the Dementors again. What'd you want to know about them for? If I use magic outside of school? They wouldn't give you to the Dementors for that. Dementors are for people who do really bad stuff. They guard the wizard prison, Azkaban. They're not going to end up in Azkaban. You're too... He turned red again and shredded more leaves. Then a small rustling noise behind Harry made him turn. Petunia, hiding behind a tree, had lost her footing. Toonie, said Lily, surprised and welcome in her voice, but Snape had jumped to his feet. Who's spying now? He shouted. What do you want? Petunia was breathless, alarmed at being caught. Harry could see her struggling for something hurtful to say. What is it you're wearing anyways, she said, pointing at Snape's chest. Your mum's blouse? There was a crack. A branch over Petunia's head had fallen. Lily screamed. The branch caught Petunia on the shoulder, and she staggered backward and burst into tears. Toonie! But Petunia was running away. Lily rounded on Snape. Did you make that happen? No. He looked both defiant and scared. You did! She was backing away from him. You did! You hurt her! No. No, I didn't! But the lie did not convince Lily. After one last burning look, she ran from the little thicket off after her sister and Snape looked miserable and confused. And the scene reformed. Harry looked around. He was on platform nine and three quarters, and Snape stood beside him, slightly hunched, next to a thin, sallow-faced, sour-looking woman whom greatly resembled Snape, was staring at the family of four a short distance away. The two girls stood apart from their parents. Lily seemed to be pleading with her sister. Harry moved closer to listen. "'I'm sorry, Toonie. I'm sorry. Listen!' She caught her sister's hand and held tight to it, even though Petunia tried to pull it away. Maybe once I'm there... No, listen, Toonie. Maybe once I'm there, I'll be able to go to Professor Dumbledore and persuade him to change his mind. I don't want to go, said Petunia, and she dragged her hand back out of her sister's grasp. You think I want to go to some stupid castle and learn to be a... a... Her pale eyes roved over the platform, over the cats mewling in their owner's arms, over the owls fluttering and hooting at each other's in cages, over the students, some already in long black robes, loading trunks onto the scarlet steam engine, or else greeting one another with glad cries after a summer part. You think I want to be a freak? Lily's eyes filled with tears as Petunia succeeded in tugging her hand away. I'm not a freak, said Lily. That's a horrible thing to say. 
That's where you're going, said Petunia in relish. A special school for freaks. You and that Snape boy. Weirdos. That's what you are. That's what you are. It's a good. You're being separated from normal people. It's for our safety. Lily glanced toward her parents, who were looking around the platform with an airhole-hearted enjoyment, drinking in the scene. Then she looked back at her sister, and her voice was low and fierce. You didn't think it was such a freak school when you wrote it to the headmaster and begged him to take you. Petunia turned scarlet. Beg? I didn't beg. I saw his reply. It was very kind. You shouldn't have read, whispered Petunia. That was my private... How could you? Lily gave herself away by half glancing toward where Snape stood nearby. Petunia gasped. That boy found it? You and that boy have been sneaking in my room? No, not sneaking. Now Lily was on a defensive. Severus saw the envelope, and he couldn't believe a muggle could have contacted Cogwarts. That's all. He says there must be wizards working undercover in the postal service who take care of. Apparently wizards poke their noses in everywhere, said Petunia. And now as pale as she had been flushed, freak, she spat at her sister and she flounced off to where her parents stood. The scene dissolved again. Snape was hurrying along the corridor of the Hogwarts Express as it clattered through the countryside. He had already changed into his school robes and perhaps taken the first opportunity to take off his dreadful muggle clothes. At last he stopped outside a compartment in which a group of rowdy boys were talking. Hunched in a corner seat beside the windows was Lily, her face pressed against the window pane. Snape slid open. The compartment door had sat down opposite of Lily. She glanced at him and then looked back out of the window. She had been crying. I don't want to talk to you, she said in a constricted voice. Why not? Toonie hates me because we saw the letter from Dumbledore. So what? She threw him a look of deep dislike. So? She's my sister. She's only a... He caught himself quickly. Lily, too busy trying to wipe her eyes without being noticed, did not hear him. But we're going, he said, unable to suppress the exhilaration in his voice. This is it. We're off to Hogwarts. She nodded, mopping her eyes, but in spite of herself, she half smiled. You'd better be in Slytherin, said Snape, encouraged that she had brightened a little. Slytherin? One of the boys sharing the compartment who had shown no interest in it at all in Lily or Snape until the, that point looked around at the word, and Harry, whose attention had been focused entirely in the two beside the window, saw his father slight, black hair like Snape, but with the indefiable air of having been well cared for, even adored, that Snape so conspicuously lacked. Who wants to be in Slytherin? I think I believe, wouldn't you? James asked the boy, lounging on the seats opposite him. With a jolt, Harry realized that it was Sirius. Sirius did not smile. My whole family have been in Slytherin, he said. Blimey, said James, and I thought you seemed all right. Sirius grinned. Maybe I'll break the tradition. Where are you heading, if you got the choice? James lifted an invisible sword. Gryffindor, where dwelled the brave of heart, like my dad. Snape made a small disparaging noise. James turned on him. Got a problem with that? No, said Snape. Though his slight sneer said otherwise. If you'd rather be brawny than brainy. Where are you hoping to go? Seeing as you're neither, interjected Sirius. James roared with laughter. Lily sat up rather flushed and looked from James to Sirius in dislike. Come on, Severus. Let's find another compartment. Ugh. Ooh. James and Sirius imitated her lofty voice. James tried to tip, trip Snape as he passed. See a snivelous? A voice called, 
as the compartment door slammed and the scene dissolved once more. Here was standing right behind Snape as they faced the candlelit house tables. Lined with rapt faces, the Professor McGonagall said, Evans, Lily! He watched his mother walk forward on trembling legs and sit down upon the rickety stool. Professor McGonagall dropped the sorting hat onto her head and barely a second after it had touched the dark red hair hat cried, Gryffindor! Harry heard Snape let out a tiny groan. Lily took off the hat, handed it back to Professor McGonagall, then hurried toward the cheering Gryffindors. But as she went, she glanced back at Snape, and there was a sad little smile on her face. Harry saw Sirius move up the bench to make room for her. She took one look at him, seemed to recognize him from the train, folded her arms, and firmly turned her back on him. The roll call continued. Harry watched Lupin, Pettigrew, and her father join Lily and Sirius at the Gryffindor table. At last, when only a dozen students remained to be sorted, Professor McGonagall called Snape. Harry walked with him to the stool, watched him place the hat upon his head. Slytherin! cried the sorting hat, and Severus Snape moved off to the other side of the hall, away from Lily, to where Slytherins were cheering him. To where Lucius Malfoy, a prefect badge gleaming upon his chest, patted Snape on the back as he sat down beside him. And the scene changed. Lily and Snape were walking across the castle courtyard, evidently arguing. Harry hurried to catch up with them, to listen in. As he reached them, he realized how much taller the both of them were. A few years seemed to have passed since their sorting. Thought we were supposed to be friends, Snape was saying. Best friends. We are, Sev. But I don't like some of the people you're hanging around with. I'm sorry, but I detest Avery and Mulciver. Mulciver? What do you see in him, Sev? He's creepy. Do you know what he tried to do to Mary MacDonald the other day? Lily had reached a pillar and leaned against it, looking up into the thin, sallow face. That was nothing, said Snape. It was all laugh, that's all. It was dark magic, and if you think that's funny, what about the stuff Potter and his mates get up to? Demanded Snape. His color rose again as he said it, unable, it seemed, to hold in his resentment. What's Potter got to do with anything, said Lily. They sneak out at night. There's something weird about that Lupin. Where does he keep going? He's ill, said Lily. They say he's ill. Every month at the full moon, said Snape. I know your theory, said Lily, and she sounded cold. Why are you so obsessed with them anyways? Why do you care what they're doing at night? I'm just trying to show you that they're not as wonderful as everyone seems to think they are. The intensity of the gaze made her blush. They don't use dark magic, though, she dropped her voice. And you're being really ungrateful. I heard what happened the other night. You went sneaking down the tunnel by Whomping Willow, and James Potter saved you from whatever's down there. Snape's whole face contorted, and he spluttered. Saved? Saved? You think he was playing the hero? He was saving his neck, and his friends too. You're not going to... I won't let you. Let me? Let me? Lily's bright green eyes were slit. Snape backtracked at once. I didn't mean I just... I just don't want to see you made a fool of. He fancies you. James Potter fancies you. The words seemed wrenched from him against the wall, his will. And he's not... Everyone thinks... Big Quidditch hero. Snape's bitterness and dislike were rendering him incoherent. And Willie's eyebrows were traveling farther and farther up to upper forehead. I know James Potter, an arrogant toe rag, she said, cutting across Snape. I don't need you to tell me that, but Mulciver and Avery's idea of humor is just evil. Evil, Sev. I don't understand how you can be friends with them. Harry doubted that Snape had even heard her strictures, strictures on Mulciver and Avery. The moment she had insulted James Potter, his whole body had relaxed. 
And as they walked away, there was a new spring in Snape's step, and the scene dissolved. Harry watched again as Snape left the Great Hall after sitting his owl in defense against the Dark Arts. Watched as he wandered away from the castle and strayed inadvertently close to the place beneath the bench, beech tree where James, Sirius, Lupin, and Pettigrew sat together. But Harry kept his distance this time, because he knew that he knew what happened after James had hoisted Severus into the air and taunted him. He knew what had been done and said, and it gave him no pleasure to hear it again. He watched as Lily joined the group and went to Snape's defense. Distantly, he heard Snape shout at her in his humiliation and his fury. The unforgivable word, mudblood. The scene changed. I'm sorry. I'm not interested. I'm sorry. Save your breath. It was at nighttime. Lily, who was wearing a dressing gown, stood with her arms folded in front of the portrait of the fat lady at the entrance of the Gryffindor Tower. I only came out because Mary told me you were threatening to sleep here. I was. I would have done that. I never meant to call you mudblood. It just slipped out. There was no pity in Lily's voice. It's too late. I've made excuses for you for years. None of my friends can understand why I even talk to you. You and your precious little Death Eater friends. You see, you don't even deny it. You don't even deny that's why you're all aiming to be. You can't want to join new you-know-who, can you? He opened his mouth but closed it without speaking. I can't pretend anymore. You've chosen your way. I've chosen mine. No, listen, I, I didn't mean to call me Mudblood? But you call everyone of my birth Mudblood, Severus? Why should I be any different? He struggled on the verge of speak, but with contemptuous look, she turned and climbed back through the portrait hole. The corridor dissolved, and the scene took a little longer to reform. Harry seemed to fly through shifting shapes and colors until his surroundings solidified again, and he stood on the hilltop, forlorn and cold in the darkness, the wind whistling through the branches of a few leafless trees. The adult Snape was panting, turning on the spot, his wand gripped tightly in his hand, waiting for something or for someone. His fear infected Harry, too. Even though he knew that he could not be harmed, he looked over his shoulder, wondering what it was that Snape was waiting for. Then a blinding, jagged jet of white light flew through the air. Harry thought of lightning, but Snape had dropped to his knees, and his wand had flown out of his hand. Don't kill me! That was not my intention. Any sound of Dumbledore apparating had been drowned by the sound of the wind in the branches. He stood before Snape with his robes whipping around him, and his face was illuminated from below in the light cast by his wand. Well, Severus, what message does the Lord Voldemort have for me? No, no message. I'm here on my own account. Snape was wringing his hands. He looked a little mad with his straggling black hair flying around him. I, I come with warning. No, no request, please. Dumbledore flicked his wand. Though leaves and branches still flew through the night air around him, silence fell on the spot where he and Snape faced each other. What request could a Death Eater make of me? The, the prophecy, the prediction, Trelawney. Ah, yes, said Dumbledore. How much do you relay to Lord Voldemort? Everything, everything I heard, said Snape. That is why it is for the reason he, he thinks it means Lily Evans. The prophecy did not refer to a woman, said Dumbledore. It spoke of a boy, born at the end of July. You know what I mean. He thinks it means her son. He is going to hunt her down. Kill them all. If she means so much to you, said Dumbledore, surely Lord Voldemort will spare her. Could you not ask for mercy for the mother in exchange for the son? 
I have. I have asked them. You disgust me, said Dumbledore, and Harry had never heard so much contempt in his voice. Snape seemed to shrink a little. You do not care. Then about the deaths of her husband and child? They can die, as long as you have what you want. Snape said nothing, but merely looked up at Dumbledore. Hide them all, then, he croaked. Keep her, them safe, please. And what will you give me in return, Severus? In, in return? Snape gaped at Dumbledore, and Harry expected him to protest. But after a long moment, he said, Anything. The whole top faded, and Harry stood in Dumbledore's office, and something was making a terrible sound, like a wounded animal. Snape was slumped forward in a chair, and Dumbledore was standing over him, looking grim. After a moment or two, Snape raised his face, and he looked like a man who had lived a hundred years in misery since leaving the wild hilltop. I thought you were going to, to keep her safe. She and James put their faith in the wrong person, said Dumbledore. Rather like you, Severus. Weren't you hoping that Lord Voldemort would spare her? Snape's breathing was shallow. Her boy survives, said Dumbledore. With a tiny jerk of, his head, of the head, Snape seemed to flick off an irksome fly. Her son lives. He has her eyes, preciously her eyes. You remember the shape and color of Lily Evans' eyes? I am sure. Don't, bellowed Snape. Gone, dead. Is this remorse, Severus? I wish... I wish I were dead. And what use would that be to be anyone? Said Dumbledore coldly. If you love Lily Evans, if you truly loved her, then your way forward is clear. Snape seemed to peer through a haze of pain, and Dumbledore's words appeared to take a long time to reach him. What, what do you mean? You know how and why she died. Make sure it was not in vain. Help me protect Lily's son. He does not need protection. The Dark Lord is gone. The Dark Lord will return, and Harry Potter will be in terrible danger when he does. There was a long pause, and slowly Snape regained control of himself, mastered his own breathing, and at last said, Very well, very well. But never, never tell, Dumbledore. This must be between us. Swear it. I cannot bear, especially Potter's son, I want your word. My word, Severus, that I shall never reveal the best of you. Dumbledore sighed, looking down into Snape's ferocious, anguished face. If you insist. The office dissolved, but reformed instantly. Snape was pacing up and down in front of Dumbledore. Mediocre, arrogant, as his father, a determined rule-breaker, delighted to find himself famous, attention-seeking, impertinent, you see what you expect to see, Severus, said Dumbledore, without raising his eyes from a copy of Transfiguration today. Other teachers report that the boy is modest, likable, and reasonably talented. Personally, I find him an engaging child. Dumbledore turned a page and said without looking up, Keep an eye on Quirrell, won't you? A whirl of color, and now everything darkened, and Snape and Dumbledore stood a little apart in the entrance hall, while the last stragglers from the Yule Ball passed them on their way to bed. Well, Reverend Dumbledore, Kakarov's mark is becoming darker too. He is panicking. He fears retribution. You know how much help he gave the ministry after the Dark Lord fell. Snape looked sideways to Dumbledore's crooked nose profile. Kakarov intends to flee if the mark burns. Does he? 
said Dumbledore softly as Fleur Delacour and Roger Davies came giggling in from the grounds. And are you tempted to join them? No, said Snape, his black eyes on Fleur's and Roger's retreating figures. I am not such a coward. No, agreed Dumbledore. You are braver. You are a braver man by far than Igor Kakarov. You know, I sometimes think we sort too soon. He walked away, leaving Snape looking stricken, and now Harry stood in the headmaster's office yet again. It was nighttime, and Dumbledore sagged sideways in the throne-like chair behind the desk, apparently semi-conscious. His right hand dangled over the side, blackened and burned. Snape was muttering incantations, pointing his wand at the wrist of the hand, while with his left hand, he tipped a goblet full of thick golden potion down Dumbledore's throat. After a moment or two, Dumbledore's eyelids fluttered and opened. Why? said Snape, without preamble. Why did you put on that ring? It carries a curse. Surely you realize that. Why even touch it? Marvolo Gaunt's ring lay on the desk before Dumbledore. It was cracked. The sword of Gryffindor lay beside it. Dumbledore grimaced. <laughs> I was a fool. Sorely tempted. Tempted by what? Dumbledore did not answer. It is a miracle you managed to return here. Snape sounded furious. That ring carried a cause of extraordinary power. To contain it is all we can hope for. I have trapped the curse in one hand. For the time being, Dumbledore raised his black and useless hand and examined it with the expression of one being shown in an interesting curio. You have done very well, Severus. How long do you think I have? Dumbledore's tone was controversial. He might have been asking for a weather forecast. Snape hesitated and then said, I, I cannot tell, maybe a year? There is no halting such a spell forever. It will spread eventually. It is the sort of curse that will strengthen over time. Dumbledore smiled. The news that he had less than a year to live seemed a matter of little or no concern to him. I am fortunate, extremely fortunate, that I have you, Severus. If you had only summoned me a little earlier, I might have been able to do more. Buy you more time, said Snape furiously. He looked down at the broken ring and sword. Did you think that breaking the ring would break the curse? Something like that. I was delirious, no doubt said Dumbledore. With an effort, he straightened himself in the chair. Well, really, this makes matters much more straightforward. Snape looked utterly perplexed. Dumbledore smiled. I refer to the plan Lord Voldemort is revolving around me? His plan to have the poor Malfoy boy murder me? Murder me? Snape sat down in the chair. Harry had so often occupied across the desk from Dumbledore. Harry could tell that he wanted to stay more on the subject of Dumbledore's cursed hand, but the other held held it up polite refusal to discuss the matter further scowling snape said the dark lord does not expect draco to, su to succeed this is merely punishment for lucius's recent failures slow torture for draco's parents while they watch him fail and pay the price and short-lived the boy has had a death sentence pronounced upon him as i surely have said dumbledore now I should have thought the natural successor to the job once Draco fails is yourself. There was a short pause. And that, I think, is the Dark Lord's plan. Lord Voldemort foresees a moment in the near future when he will not need a spy at Hogwarts. He believes the school will be will soon be in the grasp, yes. And if it does fall into his grasp, 
said Dumbledore, almost it seemed as an aside. I have your word that you will do all in your power to protect the student of Hogwarts. Snape gave a sniff nod. Good. Now then, your first priority will be to discover what Draco is up to. A frightened teenage boy is a danger to others as well as himself. Offer him help and guidance. He ought to accept. He likes you. Much less since his father has lost favor. Draco blames me. He thinks I have unsurped Lucius's position. All the same, try. I am concerned less for myself than for accidental victims of whatever schemes might occur to the boy. Ultimately, of course, there is only one thing that has to be done if we are to save from Lord Voldemort's wrath. Snape raised his eyebrows and his tone was sardonic as he asked, Are you intending to let him kill you? Certainly not. You must kill me. There was a long silence, broken only by an odd clicking noise. Fox the phoenix was gnawing a bit of cuttlebone. Would you like me to do it now? asked Snape, his voice heavy with irony. Or would you like a few moments to compose an epitograph? Epitaph. Oh, not quite yet, said Dumbledore, smiling. I dare say the moment will present itself in due course, given what has happened tonight. He indicated with a withered hand, we can be sure that it will happen within a year. If you don't mind dying, said Snape roughly, why not let Draco do it? That boy's soul is not yet so damaged, said Dumbledore. I would not have ripped it apart on my account. In my soul, Dumbledore, mine? You alone know whether it will harm your soul to help an old man avoid pain and humiliation, said Dumbledore. I ask this one great favor of you, Severus, because death is coming for me as I surely as the Chudley Cannons will finish bottom of this year's league. I confess I should prefer a quick painless exit to the protracted and messy affair it will be if, for instance, Greyback is involved. I hear Voldemort has recruited him, or dear Bellatrix, who likes to play with her food before she eats it. His tone was light, but his blue eyes pierced Snape, as they had frequently pierced Harry, as though the soul they discussed was visible to him. At least Snape gave another curt nod. Dumbledore seemed satisfied. Thank you, Severus. The office disappeared, and now Snape and Dumbledore were strolling together in the deserted castle grounds by twilight. What are you doing with Potter all these evenings? You are closeted together, Snape asked abruptly. Dumbledore looked weary. Why? You aren't trying to give him more detention, Severus. The boy will soon have spent more time in detention than out. He is his father over again. In looks, perhaps, but his deepest nature is much more like his mother's. I spend time with Harry because I have things to discuss with him. Information I must give him before it's too late. Information, repeated Snape. You trust him? You don't trust me? It's not a question of trust. I have, as we both know, limited time. It is essential that I give the boy enough information for him to do what he needs to do. And why may I not have the same information? I prefer not to put all of my secrets in one basket, particularly not a basket that spends so much time dangling on the arm of Lord Voldemort, which I do on your orders, and you do it extremely well. Do not think that I underestimate the constant danger in which you place yourself, Severus. To give Voldemort what appears to be valuable information while withholding the essentials is a job I would entrust to nobody but you. Yet, 
Yet, you can find much more in a boy who is incapable of a clemency, whose magic is mediocre, and who has a direct connection into Dark Lord's mind. Voldemort fears that connection, said Dumbledore. Not so long ago, he had one small taste of what's truly sharing Harry's mind means to him. It is pain such as he has never experienced. He will not try to possess Harry again, I am sure of it. Not in that way. I don't understand. Lord Voldemort's soul, maimed as it is, cannot bear close contact with a soul like Harry's. Like a tongue on frozen steel, like flesh in flame, souls. We were talking of minds. In the case, Harry and Lord Voldemort, to speak of one is to speak of the other. Dumbledore glanced around to make sure that they were alone. They were close by forbidden force now, but there was no sign of anyone near them. After you have killed me, Severus, you refuse to tell me everything, yet you expect that the smallest service of me, snarled Snape, and real anger flared in his thin face now. You take a great deal for granted, Dumbledore. Perhaps I have changed my mind. You gave me your word, Severus. And while we are talking about services you owe me, I thought you agreed to keep a close eye on our young Slytherin friend. Snape looked angry, mutinous, Dumbledore sighed. Come to my office tonight, Severus, at eleven. You shall not complain that I have no confidence in you. They were back in Dumbledore's office, the windows dark, and Fox sat silent as Snape sat quite still, as Dumbledore walked around him talking. Harry must not know. Not until the last moment. Not until it is necessary. Otherwise, how could he have the strength to do what must be done? But what must he do? That is between Harry and me. Now listen closely, Severus. There will come a time after my death. Do not argue. Do not interrupt. There will come a time when Lord Voldemort will seem to fear for the life of his snake. For Nagini, Snape looked astonished. Precisely. If there comes a time when Lord Voldemort stops sending the snake forth to do his bidding, but keeps it safe beside him under magical protection, then I think it will be safe to tell Harry. Tell him what? Dumbledore took a deep breath and closed his eyes. Tell him that on the night Lord Voldemort tried to kill him, when Lily cast her own life between them as a shield, the killing curse rebounded upon Lord Voldemort, and a fragment of Voldemort's soul was blasted apart from the hole, and lashed itself onto the only living soul left in the collapsing building. Part of Lord Voldemort lives inside Harry, and it is which gives him the power of speech with snakes, and a connection with Lord Voldemort's mind that he has never understood. And while that fragment of the soul unmissed by Voldemort, remains detached to and protected by Harry, Lord Voldemort cannot die. Harry seemed to be watching the two men from one end of the long tunnel. They were so far away from him, their voices echoing strangely in his ears. So the boy? The boy must die? asked Snape quite calmly. And Voldemort himself must do it, Severus. That is essential. Another long silence, and Snape said, I thought all these years that we were protecting him for her, for Lily. We have protected him because it has been essential to teach him, to raise him, to let him try his strength, 
said Nimelor, his eyes still tight shut. Meanwhile, the connection between them grows even stronger, a parasitic growth. Sometimes I have thought he suspects it himself. If I know him, he will have arranged matters so that when he does set out to meet its, his death, it will truly mean the end of Voldemort. Dumbledore's, Dumbledore's opened his eyes. Snape looked horrified. You have kept him alive so that he can die at the proper moment? Don't be shocked, Severus. How many men and women have watched, have you watched die? Lately, only those whom I could not save, said Snape. He stood up. You have used me. Meaning? I have spied for you and lied for you, put myself in mortal danger for you. Everything was supposed to be to keep Lily Potter safe. Now you tell me you have been raising him like a pig for slaughter. But this is touching, Severus. And Dumbledore, seriously, have you grown to care for the boy after all? For him? shouted Snape. Expectro Patronum! From the tip of his wand burst the silver doe. She landed on the office floor, bounded once, across the office, and soared out of the window. Dumbledore watched her fly away, and as her silvery glow faded, he turned back to Snape, and his eyes were full of tears. After all this time. Always, said Snape. And the scene shifted. Now Harry saw Snape talking to the portrait of Dumbledore behind his desk. You will have to give Voldemort the correct date of Harry's departure from his aunt and uncles, said Dumbledore. Not to do so will raise suspicion. When Voldemort believes you so well informed, however, you must plant the idea of decoys. That, I think, ought to ensure Harry's safety. Try confunding McDungus, Fletcher, and Severus. If you are forced to take part in the chase... Be sure to act your part convincingly. I am counting upon you to remain in Lord Voldemort's good books as long as possible, or Hogwarts will be left to the mercy of the Carrows. Now Snape was head to head with McDungus in an unfamiliar tavern, McDungus' face looking curiously blank, Snape frowning in concentration. You will suggest the Order of the Phoenix, Snape murmured, that they use decoys, polyjuice potion, identical potters. It is the only thing that might work. You will forget that I have suggested this. You will present it as your idea, you understand? I understand, murmured McDungus, his eyes unfocused. Now Harry was flying alongside Snape on a broomstick. Though a clear dark night, he was accompanied by other hood hooded Death Eaters. And ahead were Lupin and Harry, who was really George. A Death Eater moved ahead of Snape and raised his wand, pointing it directly at Lupin's back. Sectumsimpra! shouted Snape. But the spell intended for the Death Eater's wand hand missed and hit George instead. And Snape was kneeling in Sirius's old bedroom. Tears were dripping from the end of his hooked nose as he read the old letter from Lily. The second page carried only a few words. Could ever have been friends with Gellert Grindelwald? I think her mind's going. Personally, lots of love, Lily. Snape took the page bearing Lily's signature and her love and tucked it inside his robes. Then he ripped in two of the photographs he was also holding so that he kept the part from which Lily laughed, throwing the portion showing James and Harry back onto the floor under the chest of drawers. And now Snape stood again in the headmaster's study as Phineas and Agelius came hurrying into his portrait. Headmaster, they are camping in the forest of Dean. 
The mudblood. Do not use that word. The Granger girl then mentioned the place as she opened her bag, and I heard her. Good, very good, cried the portrait of Dumbledore behind the headmaster's chair. Now, Severus, the sword. Do not forget that it must be taken under conditions of need and valor, and he must not know that you give it. If Voldemort should read Harry's mind and see you acting for him... I know, said Snape curtly. He approached the portrait of Dumbledore and pulled at its side. It swung forward, revealing a hidden cavity behind it from which he took the sword of Gryffindor. And you still aren't going to tell me why it's so important to give Potter the sword? said Snape as he swung a traveling cloak over his robes. No, I don't think so, said Dumbledore's portrait. He will know what to do with it. And Severus, be very careful. They may not take kindly to your appearance after George Weasley's mishap. Snape turned at the door. Don't worry, Dumbledore, he said coolly. I have a plan. As Snape left the room, Harry rose up out of the pensive, and moments later, he lay on the carpeted floor in the exactly the same room. Snape might just have closed the door. Wow, man. And now everyone can see why he is... I'll go ahead and just tell you now, one of my favorites. Uh, because now, full circle, looking back through everything, imagine what this man had to go through. And uh, I'll let you go ahead and take it away with your takeaways, brother. Awesome. So, got a few takeaways for this chapter. I'll just kind of go through them quickly. Voldemort allows the battle to pause for an hour, so that way the you know protectors of Hogwarts can tend to the fallen and treat the injured. At that same point, Voldemort calls out Harry, basically tells him to stop being a little bitch and meet him in the Forbidden Forest, or he'll join the battle himself and fuck everyone up. This is pretty much what he said. <laughs> yeah, uh, pretty much. It, it was pretty tough to read out to read all about the dead friends and family in the Great Hall. You know, we learned that Lupin mm -hmm. and Tonks died too. Um, yep. From there, it was kind of shady that the password to the headmaster's office was Dumbledore, seeing as how Snape was the headmaster and Voldemort visited Snape's office after seeing the after securing the Elder Wand. That was mentioned earlier, so I don't know how Voldemort's going to sit there and say Dumbledore to the password and open it up. I'll kind of talk about that in plot holes, I guess. But uh, <laughs> I thought also next it was ironic that Aunt Petunia hated magic so much because we find out that it's actually jealousy. She wanted to be a witch too and even begged Dumbledore to let her go to Hogwarts. So that's kind of interesting how, you know, we read about her through the whole series starting in Sorcerer's Stone and how she hated anything to do with magic. Well, it's because she didn't get to do it as well. So interesting. Um, I do love the sweet innocence of kids. Like Snape tells Lily that it doesn't make a difference being Muggleborn even though he knew other pureblood wizards would treat her less. So I thought mm -hmm. that was really interesting. Like, he used that sweet innocence of kids. Like, oh, no, it doesn't matter that you're muggle-born. But, you know, to some people, it actually did matter. Uh, next, uh, I thought it was interesting to learn that Lucius Malfoy was a prefect. That uh, was really interesting. Yeah. <laughs> uh, then from there, what I like most about this chapter is the progression in which we see how two people, like, they, they, they can start in the same place and life takes them in completely different directions. And I'm talking about Lily and Snape. They start right near each other in Spinner's End, and they go to school together, they live really close together, but you know how they just take two different forks in the road. Snape chooses the life of a Death Eater and following you know, Lord Voldemort. Of course, he comes back around on that, but Lily chose the, 
the side of you know just being a kind and good person to everyone so just interesting how you can start in the same spot but end up in totally different places uh next thing i got is we learned that gaunt's ring uh was gonna like the curse was gonna kill dumbledore regardless and that snape contained the the curse in his hand for the time being and told dumbledore he only has a year to live so the big takeaway was that dumbledore was gonna die regardless and so he had yeah. to come up with a plan to make it, you know, so that way he could kind of save Draco's life. And it's almost a full circle because remember in in uh, Half Blood Prince where Draco and Dumbledore are up at the Astronomy Tower talking, and he's like, "No, Draco, it is my mercy that matters now." Well, now I got that full th- circle thing because if Draco killed Dumbledore, like his soul would have been kind of fucked up. So interesting how that kind of comes around. I also thought it was astonishing how much Dumbledore was ahead of the curve on everything. You know, he's like, "Keep an eye on Quirrell." It's like plan for you know what about the plan for Draco Malfoy? Like keep an eye on Malfoy, make sure he does that. Uh, you know to, they, when like he said that when there's gonna come a time when Lord Voldemort fears for a snake. When that happens, go ahead and tell Harry. Like he knew all these things were gonna happen well before they did. Like he was yeah. playing chess while everybody else was playing checkers. Man, he really had it all mapped out to turn <laughs> almost out exactly how it did. It was very very interesting. Um, you know uh, from there. I thought it was interesting. Yeah, I mean, that's important of having a man on the inside, right? So then another full circle yeah. moment. We've been hinting towards this for a while. Phineas, the portrait, like Phineas and Jealous, the portrait heard Hermione say Forest of Demons. She opened her bag. So that's how they learned where they were and how the silver dough was sent to Harry and Hermione. At that point in time, Ron wasn't with them. But that's exactly what, how they learned about it and how they got the sword there. And Snape actually himself showed up. That's another full circle because he said he grabbed his traveling cloak and he left. He's like, make sure they don't see you because they might not take too kindly after George Weasley mishap. And that yeah. was exactly who was in behind that tree. Remember when Ron says, I think I might have saw something over there, but I'm right. not sure. And they ran over there and there was nothing there. Well, that was Snape. So big full circle there. Uh, the real sword of Gryffindor was behind Dumbledore's portrait. That was pretty cool. I like that. Yeah, that um, was cool. And yeah, then we, everything kind of comes full circle. We learn Harry is the eighth unplanned Horcrux, and that he must die. And the last and final takeaway, and probably the biggest takeaway of that entire chapter, is we learn Snape's true loyalty. He was loyal to Dumbledore and Lily Potter from the time that she was murdered until the time that he was murdered by the same person. So, wands up for Severus Snape. It's time to give him his due. We'll go ahead and take a moment of silence for your boy. I never cared much for him, but let's go ahead and give a moment <laughs> of silence here. All right. So those awesome. are my big takeaways. What other ones do you have to add to it, or is it pretty much the same? It's pretty much the same. My biggest thing here is it's kind of like The Departed. Like Now we're really finding out. Like Think of what, all the way from the beginning. Like Remember when even from Sorcerer's Stone, when Harry always questioned Snape, and really it was Snape like protecting Harry the whole time. Or think of in Half-Blood Prince, where we brought it up. And, you know, they literally could have taken Harry right there. But because Snape said, no, he's for the Dark Lord. Like, think of how many times he's really stuck up for Harry, and no one's even noticed it, like, just in passing. Um, and now you see it's like The Departed, almost like if you've ever seen that movie... We talk about it on this show a lot with Leonardo DiCaprio. Think of all the shit he was going through. Like, no one has any idea. Think of, literally, he, this guy had to sit in meetings with the sickest killer on earth. Like, think of what that does to your mind. Remember, even back in Order of the Phoenix, when he was like, has it ever occurred to you I don't want to do this anymore? 
Remember when he was saying that? Like it's it's all coming full circle now, and that's why I have so much respect for this guy because he really was Dumbledore's right hand man the whole time. No one ever believed it. No one would even know. Just like you said, if it wasn't for this one moment, like think of what determination that takes. You in your mind so many times you'd be like, "Fuck this, man!" Like, screw this is the shitty end of the deal. Not to mention, I turn to the good side to regain back everyone's loyalty, and I'm just treated like shit the whole time. Like, that's pretty crappy. And I did really like, really into like Snape's kind of backstory. You know, he was kind of that odd character where he like didn't really have a lot of social skills, and he was kind of quiet. Like, he wasn't like that asshole. It was just really like. James and Sirius always wanted to be the class fucking clown, so they had to pick on someone that was an easy target. And that's really what it was. And, uh, you know, and just his character progression is absolutely phenomenal. And I, I think that line is perfect where he says, after all this time, because it, it goes to show, you know, everyone thought his loyalty was swayed, even into your favorite book that it brings up here for a little bit. You know, it shows. He even was the one that brought up, you know, Igor Kakarov. Like, can be trusted? And everyone thought, like, he was on board with, like, Igor Kakarov and all that other shit with the Dark Mark, and Harry didn't trust him. And, and it shows, just like you said, I think it's the biggest takeaway, his loyalty for the entire time, no matter what controversy he went through, he was always one of the good guys. And I, I rank him his testament as being one of the good guys stronger than almost anyone else because i don't know that anyone else could have had the determination to go through with that literally to the point you killed the guy and um it's just it's that's why he i think he deserves some respect there but yeah man uh you want to go ahead and uh, take away with plot holes yeah, and just to feed off of that one last time, not even just the t- determination to do it, the skill as well. Remember, he was a master mm-hmm. at clumency, and Voldemort was a master at reading people's minds, and somehow yep. Snape was able to, to seal off the truth from Lord Voldemort. So I will give Snape that credit. That That is a badass, badass thing, but still, and we'll probably argue this over when we do our rankings, there's no reason <laughs> to treat children like shit for six years. That doesn't matter. Like, Harry was an asshole to It wasn't him. just was Harry. Like... <laughs> it wasn't just Harry. He treated every kid like shit. It's not his own I, class. I mean, I agree with that. Yeah. So, but <laughs> okay, regardless. Fair enough, yeah. What about your plot holes, man? Yeah, let's jump into the plot holes. I only got two here. One I've kind of already mentioned, so let's go ahead and tackle that. Like, the headmaster's office password being Dumbledore. Because remember when uh, Voldemort, like, like Harry had that vision at Shell Cottage of Voldemort like talking and walking with Snape on the Hogwarts ground. He said, go up to your office, Severus. I'll be with you shortly before he grabbed the Elder One from Dumbledore's tomb. Well, like, if he's going up to Dumbledore, if Voldemort's going up to Snape's office, how is the password going to be Dumbledore? Wouldn't Voldemort be like, what the fuck? Why is your password Dumbledore, Snape? Like, you know what I mean? I just don't, I don't get it. Like, it's not a big deal. But, like, it's just a little nuance. Like, you don't think Voldemort would be a little suspicious if he has to say the password Dumbledore to the gargoyles to get inside the office? Isn't that a little weird? <laughs> yeah, that's a little strange. <laughs> a little weird. So, that was my first one. I don't know if I can consider it, like, a full plot hole. It doesn't really mess up a ton of the storyline unless, you know, it could, I guess it could have potentially because it could have blown Snape's cover of being one of the good guys the whole time. Just something small like that. It is a big deal. But whatever, we'll we'll let it slide. It's not you know it's not the end of the world. 
But this is another one that I do have, and this one actually is a plow because I did some research on the side of it. So if you guys will with me, we're going to turn to page 620. So that way I can kind of show you guys the evidence of what I speak about. On page 620, it's like the second to last paragraph, well the second to last biggest paragraph. I'll go ahead and read it for you. It says, Tom Riddle, who confided in no one and operated alone, might have been arrogant enough to assume that he, and only he, had penetrated the deepest mysteries of Hogwarts Castle. Of course, Dumbledore and Flitwick, those model pupils, had never set foot in that particular place. But he, Harry, had strayed off the beaten track in his time at school. Here, alas, was a secret he and Voldemort knew that Dumbledore had never discovered. Well, that's a big old fat fucking lie, and I'll tell you exactly why. <laughs> if you guys remember, in book number one, and I'll just go ahead and pull this right up here, Dumbledore returned the Mirror of Erised to the Room of Requirement, and it, along with everything else being hidden there, was destroyed by Fiendfire yep. in the Battle of Hogwarts. So Dumbledore hid the Mirror of Erised in the Room of Hidden Objects in the Room of Requirement. He knew where it was the whole time. You can't sit here and say that Dumbledore had never discovered that secret because he discovered it the very first book because he had to find a place to hide the mirror of said so that way Harry wouldn't like get lost in it and like you know you know he said the people can lose themselves looking in this mirror and just let their lives waste away like thinking that like you know, looking at what they truly desire. So after the whole thing with Quirrell and all that, he put the, the mirror of Erised in there. It's like literally I just read it from here. I have it on the phone. You guys can go ahead and look it up if you want the link to it. I can go ahead and send it to our next post that we make about it, but there's a there's full blown evidence right here through Pottermore. Dumbledore returned the mirror to the room of requirement, and it, along with everything else being hidden there, was destroyed by Fiendfire in the Battle of Hogwarts. So, that's a big plot hole. And those are my two. What do you think about them? Yeah, because even Dumbledore said in Sorcerer's Stone, remember he was telling Harry, he was basically saying like, enjoy it while it lasts, because come tomorrow, like it will no longer be here. So. Yeah, I, I agree with you 100%, which is, yeah, it, it, it's it's actually a little bit conflicting, too, because also on Pottermore, they made that game the Calamity, and, like, the Mirror of Eriset, they try to say that's also part of the Calamity of, like, the artifacts that were missing, uh, <laughs> that, like, went missing from the rumor requirement, but, <laughs> like, everything in the rumor requirement was destroyed. <laughs> So unless it had some magical protective spell, no, I gotta agree with you on that, man. That doesn't make any sense to me. But which actually, like, is a better ending for the mirror because no one should be allowed to look at it, in my opinion. Because remember, a Dumbledore even said it doesn't do good to dwell on on what do you say? It doesn't do good to dwell on uh, dreams, Harry. So I think that was the exact quote. But. Uh, yeah, so I mean, I think that's even a better ending. But yeah, I have no answer for that one. <laughs> no, no idea there, man. <laughs> Point one, Jay Nelly. <laughs> awesome. That's those are my only two plot holes that I found. The password to the headmaster's office being Dumbledore, while Snape was headmaster, and you know them stating that Dumbledore had not found the room of hidden objects, you know, via the room of requirements. So those are my two. What do you have for your plot holes? Yeah, I've talked to you a little bit about these. These aren't too big of a deal. Like, I can buy it. My first one, I have a big problem, though, because we spent an entire interesting facts ranking and explaining fire spells. So the most powerful fire spell ever is um, <laughs> Protega Diabolica, followed by Firestorm, which Dumbledore himself 
had to call upon the fire in the cave in Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. And the third most powerful fire spell of all time is Fiend Fire. And it, it, I get it. Like, it's so powerful, you can almost can't even control it. My problem is, you have Crab that can't even say the word diadem, but yet he can conjure Fiend Fire? Voldemort, that was like one of his, in my favorite book, Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix, Remember the one he the only one he never he the only one he ever feared during that whole battle in the ministry like that was the big thing Voldemort like conjured and he was so proud he conjured to throw it at Dumbledore but you got fucking crab that's like conjuring fiendfire that can destroy the whole shit like what but yeah the fucker can't even like make a corporeal patronus like please explain to me how the fuck that can happen I don't fucking get it like yeah like the it literally i think the only people that could ever make that spell are probably like albus dumbledore gellert grindelwald and voldemort but yeah we got fucking crab that's like conjuring this shit out of nowhere in a duel with harry ron and hermione that's like a schoolboy fight please come fucking on come up with some other shit i get it it was visually probably stunning in the film it was really badass to read it was very creative because you got to have something that was kind of like the whole vault incident or like the locket incident to make this thing badass when it gets destroyed but like is it very logical whatever i'm gonna let it slide i'm gonna let it slide maybe he was like took a fucking summer reading list i don't i don't know maybe he like literally went out to the elves of uh of uh fucking arzengard and fucking lord of the rings or some shit and hopped timelines and we're not to do like magic well, i have no said, fucking idea it said in the book that uh you know he well he must have learned it from the carols like the carols must have taught him and i think like the only yeah. way i the only thing i can add to it just to make it like at least acceptable like i do agree i don't think that he would have the skill to summon it but there, I think that the flip side of that is it showed that he wasn't able to control it. So, you know, yeah. it, it, fucked, it fucked everything up and he ended up dying by his own curse because he didn't really know what he was doing. But should he have been able to even have the skill to do it? Probably not, but that's not something that bothers me too much. Yeah, I'll let it go. Uh, the only other issue I had was Percy. So Percy's standing right next to George and that entire castle fucking falls and Percy's just fine. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, everyone was fine except Fred. Like, you know, Harry and Haran and Hermione are right there, and <laughs> Percy was right there, and the wall exploded. I guess maybe a chunk of the brick hit him in the temple or something. Like, I don't know, man. I don't know. Maybe he was in the wrong place at the wrong time in terms of the exact placement of everything. Who knows? But it does suck because that was my boy, and of all the people there, he was the one I would have liked least to die out of all of them, if I'm being, being, if I'm being <laughs> I'll completely let honest. It go. But yeah, yeah, I'll let it go. But yeah, it's. It just makes no sense to me how an entire building only crushes one person. Just kind of throwing that. Yeah, out it was there. a wall. But it was yeah, a wall, no not a building. The whole castle didn't collapse. It was like a side of the wall. Like, okay, right, well, side of the through. wall. I, I can. I'll, I'll let it slide. I'll let it slide. Just <laughs> <being> generous. <laughs> but yeah, okay. After you, man. What about interesting facts? My interesting facts super quick today, and I'm happy it's super quick today. You know, we've had a big one. You know, for everyone to take a hold of uh, for this episode. So my interesting fact is just. Uh, on the the potential inspiration for the curse on Marvel of Gaunt's ring, so the effects of the curse on Marvel of Gaunt's ring is similar, if not identical, to the effects of severe necrosis, which is the premature death of cells, and uh, rhabdomyosis, which is the death of muscle tissues throughout the body. And after a venomous snake bite, usually from 
the Bothrop's Asper, the bitten limb will also eventually turn black, withered, and rotted unless the victim is treated with anti-venom shortly afterwards. And this obviously might not be a pure coincidence as Voldemort, due to his fondness of snakes, might have deliberately designed the curse to replicate the Bothrop's Asper's venomous effect. So that's just a little oh, bit about cool the inspiration one. from the curse on uh, Marvel O'Gaunt's ring. So the nephil necrosis, the black and withering, and it coming from the snake's venom, it all kind of makes sense. And it's something that, that might, might have drawn inspiration from that curse. So that was my quick interesting fact. What's yours? Yeah, man, mine's pretty quick too. Mine's on my boy, <laughs> you know? Uh, I gave this one too because uh, it's on the Doe Patronus. I will say, so uh, the interesting facts this week, we're going to spend the majority of the time talking about Patronuses because we saw a lot of different Patronuses here. Um, keep in mind, guys, this is it. There's this interesting facts this week, and then there's the one next week, and, and that's it. So uh, that's it for the mini series. You know, maybe sometime in the future at some point, but for now, that's that's it because uh, we are on the final ride here but mine's on the doe patronus so the only way to conjure a doe patronus is it has to be motivated by love um, and it has to be true motivation is the way they describe it on pottermore um, so it has to be motivated by uh, not necessarily like a relationship love even having a crush but it has to be uh, true love wanting to uh, help somebody um, so I thought that was really interesting. And that's the only other thing that's known. That's the only thing that's known about it, which was uh, very interesting there. So mine was really quick, but uh, tune into the interesting facts this week. And we'll talk about some of the other ones uh, that we heard on the episode today. Perfect. Well, guys, I mean, we've given you a lot today. We've tackled five full chapters, 29, 30, 31, 32, and 33. So, and, and all of them had huge moments. We got to... You know, like learn about the final Horcrux. We got into a huge battle of Hogwarts, you know, where the students are fighting Death Eaters, teachers fighting Death Eaters, Voldemort's, you know, raining down his giants on the school. The Acromantulas are attacking. Like, it's a full blown war at Hogwarts. Uh, you know, we find out Snape's true loyalty after all. Voldemort kills and we lose a lot of good wizards. We lose. Fred Weasley, we lose Remus Lupin, we lose Nymphadora Tonks, we lose Severus Snape. I'll say we lose Vincent Crabb. Uh, not saying he's a great, you know, I'll, I'll just give him his 12 <laughs> seconds real quick saying we lost him as well, but, you know, we lost a lot of important characters, and that's why you will see, uh, you know, coming next week in the Differences episode the week following, and then our rankings following that. Well, our rankings, we might bring back some of our visuals just because it's the very end and we want everyone to be whole and happy again as we leave you. We don't want to leave you with all the death and destruction. But you're going to see our <laughs> visuals here. If you are watching us on YouTube, all of them are going to be dwindled down because we've lost a lot of really important people. So uh, I would say, you know, guys, before we, we get out of here today, we're going to go ahead and uh, raise our wands one more time towards the end for everyone I just mentioned. But before that, I just want to thank everyone for sticking with us this long. This is the episode where the climax came to head. Everything kind of really, we, we we're at the mountaintop. Like this is the peak climax action. We're gonna get, the, obviously we're gonna get the conclusion resolution next week when we tackle chapter 34 through the epilogue. But man, everything that you wanted to know, all the big moments really came to a head right here today. And it was a pleasure giving it to you. So thank you for tuning in on all the platforms that you use. So if you haven't subscribed to us, please as Chase coined the term, cast a spell on that subscribe button you can find us anywhere you get your podcast so if you got an iphone you can find us on apple podcast you got an android you can find us on google play 
We are on iHeartRadio. We are on Spotify. We are on Podbean. We are on every single platform uh, for listening to podcasts. And then if you're looking at our social media and our fan pages, you can find us on Instagram at Official Ridiculous Patronus. You can find us on Facebook at Chase and Josh Factor Fantasy. We have our own website as well that will be updated by the end of the season with everything that we have kind of given to you. In addition, Chase has done a lot of great work on TikTok. You can follow us on TikTok at Ridiculous Patronus as well. Chase has a little surprise of something else he added. He told me about. I'll let him speak to it <laughs> before we sign off here. But just you know, finally for the end of this episode, I want to say thank you on behalf of myself. Just to say, you know, you know, it's been a wild ride. It's all been kind of leading up to this point. Obviously, we do have the conclusion and resolution next week. Now we've got the differences episode, then we'll rank it out. But really, man. This is, this is where everything comes ahead. A lot of the big full circle moments. We lose a lot of good characters. We learn about Snape's true loyalty after all this time. Always, right? I, like So many yeah. iconic moments and pieces of the puzzle fit together right here today. And it was an absolute pleasure to give it to you. We hope you enjoyed it. So before I give our sign-off cadence, I'll turn it over to Chase to talk a little bit about uh, the new addition to our social media, uh, you know, <laughs> renovations, I should say. And then we'll, <laughs> well, then we'll get out of here for the day. Yeah, uh, guys, uh, I know a lot of y'all were requesting for us to add Pinterest. So, you know, I'm not the biggest like picture taker. I, I try to make myself look good. Maybe, you know, highlight my hair or something <laughs> in the, in the uh, what do they call them? The filters? <laughs> yeah. But uh, we are on Pinterest now. So um, you can find us on there at Ridiculous Patronus uh, for Pinterest. It does have our link to our official Ridiculous Patronus Instagram on there. Of course, you can get to from there. You can actually even follow, of course, uh, jnelly83 or you can follow rbro129 for our personal accounts if you want you know we say uh, something funny every now and then like go bills <laughs> something like that maybe talk about football on our personal ones but for anything fantasy uh, y'all can find it there uh, I just want to sign off with a couple things today once again guys you know I looked today it was October uh, 25th that our first Harry Potter episode premiered right around Halloween and um man what a ride it has been and we got a couple episodes left ending right around harry's birthday ironically in the 20th anniversary so what a great ride and for all of factor fantasy you know you've been there for a year and a half you've been through a small small little episodes like mcu star wars witcher um and then you did the big arcs game of thrones westworld our mini arc we did and now this is the biggest and baddest this has been a hell of a giant i'll tell you right now i think it's been it's a, it's definitely made jay nelly and i age a few years <laughs> doing this arc right here but that's you know that's that's uh and the words of jay nelly this is where we separate the children from adults that's why they call us in so i got two things to say i'll say as we always say you guys are the shields that guard the realms of fantasy we're nothing without you for this i will say all the way from the beginning for Cedric for Sirius for Dumbledore for Dobby for Lupin for Tonks for Fred for Crab and after all this time for Snape and I'm going to let Jay Nelly sign us off today wands up baby alright we'll have our final moment of silence here
Thank you for joining us, guys. We're off to next week. That's it for today because you know this has been another ridiculous production. Chase and Josh. Factor Fantasy. Signing Signing off. off.